Consequence Podcast Network. For 15 years, I've been obsessed to find out what was going on inside of it. It's been my life work and my ultimate failure. This force, this thing that lived inside of him came from a source too violent, too deadly for you to imagine. It, it grew inside him, contaminating his soul. It was pure evil. What makes you think he'll come back here? This house is sacred to him. He has all his memories here. His rage. Mrs. Strode, I beg of you, don't let your family suffer the same fate that Laurie and her daughter suffered. Jamie, I, I, I thought that... She's been found outside Haddonfield. Stabbed. What should I do? I, I've written it all down for you, but you haven't a moment to lose. Mrs. Strode, Michael Myers has come back to Haddonfield to kill. From the candlelit tombs underneath Smith's Grove to the leafy streets of Haddonfield, Illinois, we are Halloweenies! Hello and welcome once again to another episode of Halloweenies, a Michael Myers podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network, a podcast where you'll find us covering one movie from the Michael Myers Halloween franchise every month, leading up to David Gordon Green's retconning, reimagining, rebooting, requel, re- requel, sequel, requel, Ooh, sequel. I like requel, a squeakel of <laughs> 1978's Halloween this October. Pumpquel? Pump, a pumpquel. Gross. Pumpquel. <laughs> I'm caught. Uh, I am one of your co-hosts, Justin Gerber, senior writer at Consequence of Sound. And if you're just joining us, be sure to check out our first five episodes on the first five Halloween films, as well as a bonus episode about, of course, the trailer, the trailer for, for Halloween. Halloween. <laughs> Although I'm sure some of you Thorn worshippers out there and Paul Rudd stands are more than happy to dive in right now with this episode. A lot of you have been waiting for it, believe it or not, and the time has finally come for discussion on both the theatrically released Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, as well as the producer's cut of that film, which was titled Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. But before we dive into a dissection of both versions, as well as recent Halloween news, let's head around the table as we always do and listen in on the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully there's no uh, obnoxious chewing on the other end. Oh, God, that was a Halloween reference. <laughs> <laughs> We'll introduce ourselves, and let's all discuss the first time we saw Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. I will uh, kick it off to my right. This is Mackenzie Gerber, um, constant contributor to this podcast, as well as the Losers Club podcast. And uh, my first experience with Halloween 6 was a very, very special one. Mm. It was the first Halloween film I got to see in the theaters, and I was absolutely underage. And my mother drove my brother here and my twin and I to a theater and had to strong arm the manager into letting us go see it without her being present. And they finally agreed to letting us in with my brother to see the movie. And then we sat about two rows back, I don't know why, and watched this film. And so I have a very special place in my heart for this film. 
I do too. This is uh, Michael Myers Rothman, oh, straight out of Haddonfield. We uh, we we do have a special place for this because I think this is of our generation's Halloween. I, I think uh, you're right. Yeah. You know, this is the one where we, I feel like all of us were at least old enough to actually understand the nuances of the Halloween series right. <laughs> at, at a right age. I was 11 years old when this uh, film came out, so I was like a little Tommy Doyle, uh, and I saw Tommy Doyle. Uh, similar to Mac on the big screen as well at uh, AMC Coral Ridge 10, uh, which is now a dine-in theater. But at the time, it was a very cool, fun, low-rent theater that at the very uh, – they kind of had like a – the theater shaped almost like a bat. And you'd have like uh, the core place where you get your popcorn and then you'd have one hallway down to the right and then one hallway down to the left. And I remember vividly Halloween, the Curse of Michael Myers with that orange font being on the title card right above it. And I wasn't there to see Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers, but I snuck in and uh, I watched uh, a great majority of it, not knowing anything that was really going on because I still I don't think I had seen five or four or any of that stuff. I had just seen the first one. So I was very confused, but I was interested enough that that day I did go to Blockbuster. That that's I think that's when it started the quest of this like wacko thing of just me finally watching these other movies. It's my my whole background is so disjointed and I don't even actually remember all of the order of how I even saw uh-huh. a lot of the Halloween movies at this point, but rest assured they've been in my life. And uh, this film has been in my life and a, and a big part of uh, my viewing experience with this film involved my best friend, Cap Blackard. Oh, hi, I'm Cap man in black Blackard. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Whoa. Special visit from Thorn. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's why you're, I'm spurs. feeling really thorny the tonight. Spurs. How about you guys? <laughs> you know, I, I gotta say, uh, the, the hat looks good on you. Mm. And the Spurs will will be jingle jangling all throughout the show. Uh, so well, please, not, please uh, do add in the sound effects um, you know, later in the production. Mike, so get a hold of those. <laughs> um, yeah. So like my entire background in Halloween comes directly from Mike. We go way back. I mean, I I know you don't know exactly like your origins are fuzzy, but yeah. I know that your blood is candy corn, pure it's candy, you're candy, corn. candy yeah. corn. Yeah. And I definitely saw both versions of Halloween six while seated on the carpet of Mike's bedroom, his upstairs bedroom in a townhouse in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Where I think we, I fell asleep during uh, two. Oh, was it during our marathon? Yeah, during your marathon. We had, we had, yeah. I don't know. Has he, has he discussed the oh, marathon on no, the show? No, 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 no. <laughs> There was there was one specially arranged sleepover night where Mike had us marathon at what at the time were all existing Halloween films, including the producer's cut, which happened, I believe, the next morning yeah, when he finally woke morning. up. I was there for like I was zeroed in on all that shit. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember vividly that you had this giant like we had this liter of like ginger ale <laughs> that just kept decreasing. <laughs> As the night I went on, that. and I kept, and I was falling asleep on the bed, and I would just keep waking up, being like, "Oh, he's on, okay. We're on four now," and then I'd fall asleep, and then, "Oh, we're on six now." Like I'm like, "Whoa, that went fast. Like what happened to five? And you had just actually put the tapes in yourself and done it, and just gone ahead with it. If I recall, so you're a great host. Oh, I was a great host. <laughs> yeah, I was very tired, and I'm a very dedicated um, attendee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. so, but I remember, you know, like hating, loathing Halloween Six. Mm-hmm. It, the insult of killing off Jamie in the first act and everything going with that. That was a big deal. Like and all and all the, the plot, we were we were both really irate children about Halloween six. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Though apparently I didn't even realize it provoked Mike's entire interest in the yeah, series, yeah. which is yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Um yeah. but then the producers cut, like Mike attained a bootleg copy of the famed early test print that became known as the producer's cut and was bootlegged for years and years until a DVD release in the past like what, six years or seven years. But it was or so? so muddy. 
Um, yeah, it was it was terrible. It, I mean, like the quality of it was really bad. Yeah. What the timestamps on and everything? Yes. Like it was a straight screener. Yeah. It was, yeah, yeah, and Jeez. it was, but it was like maybe a tenth generation, yeah. and it just was. I mean, there were sections that you couldn't even actually hear. You couldn't actually even understand what you were seeing at, at points, like especially when you're in like the darker caverns of <laughs> Smith's Grove. So <laughs> the darker it was, caverns. yeah, like when you're in like the tombs, so to speak. You couldn't understand anything that was going on. So honestly, when we saw that Blu-ray, eventually, it, it really is kind of like eye-opening. But I, I'm happy that you're here, Cap, for this one because this is this is this is really special. You were you were there right when we started, like right when I started like this the site and like my fandom for Halloween blossomed. Yeah, you saw me when I would make my custom action figures. You helped me seek out all the the products for it. We, I think, your mother drove us around. Uh, yeah, for sure. There was so, a lot of driving on her so, part. So yeah, Cap is the mad props. The, the your <laughs> mummy. <laughs> you're also the Consequence Podcast Network director. And also runs State of the Empire, yeah, uh, and Nerdy Show, yeah. So you've heard you've heard my voice around on all these programs, no doubt. And uh, and yeah, you mentioned uh, Nerdy Show as well. The pod, the other podcast network I run, where we do um, lots of uh, lots of programming, such as our uh, RPG audio drama horror podcast, The Call of Cthulhu Mystery Program, which Ooh. has a new season coming up this October. That's my favorite Metallica song. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but you're not the only Halloweeny here. Hi, this is Dan, Danny Strode, uh, Caffrey, oh. <laughs> calling, calling from, uh, I'm actually in Tennessee right now at the Swanee's, Swanee Writers Conference. It's beautiful up here, but uh, I have two big open windows, and Michael Myers could easily be outside, both of them, so uh, I'll have to keep them drawn at night. Um, my experience with Halloween 6, uh, I actually didn't see it in the theaters, because I got into the Halloween series probably a year after this had left theaters. So this was kind of in my marathon of four or five and six over three nights. We'll talk about it more, but I, I kind of hated it as a kid. It just was so confusing and made no sense to me, but it's actually <laughs> for obvious reasons. But it's actually become one of my favorite sequels in the franchise as I've gotten older. I think there's a lot of cool artistry going on in there that we'll, we'll talk about in a bit. You're not alone, Dan. You're not alone. Well, that leaves me. Hi, I'm uh, Justin Gerber. <laughs> now I already introduced myself. Uh, yeah, Mac and I had this, a similar experience seeing this on the big screen for the first time. It was in Osceola. Remember they had the two yeah, movie theaters yeah. in Osceola? Osceola in, West and Osceola East. That's right. I, can't remember if we saw, I think we saw it in the West Theater, actually. And yeah. that was... Uh, so these are separate theaters. Separate theaters. They, they literally right, right across, across the street, street from, each from each other. Very strange. Wow, kind of like the uh, the Doyle and Wallace house. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, think, yeah. I guess we would have seen it in the We ran down the McKenzie's, I guess, yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, but Mac, I don't know if you remember this though. We oh. had tried to see it either a day before or a week earlier, but we were not able to get in. I and this don't is, remember and then that. My, and then Mom had to call the following week to arrange it with the manager to get us in to go see it because we were all we were going to go see it. We could do, not get in. I don't do know if you, you think, remember that at all. Do you think this still Very happens today? I remember being in the parking lot in the car, like waiting, and like Mom was at the window, you know, trying to get tickets and talking to them. Yeah. And was that when we didn't? That's get when in? we did not get in. Okay, see, I'm I'm mixing it. <laughs> I mean, upsetting. this was early. This was this was I was fairly well, young. I'm, I'm, I'm just saying. Of no, I'm you just saying. That, remember, you were, yeah, you yeah. Know, Ten years old. But I will say that I felt like I had been waiting my entire life for this. But I'd only just started watching horror movies about two years earlier. Wow. But when you're young, you know, time is infinite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I was extremely thrilled to see this. I remember the first time I saw a trailer for it was on the Crow home video release. Yeah. And that was back when it was called Halloween 666, The Origin of Michael Myers. Some of those sequences in that movie, of course, or in that trailer, of course, were only in the producer's cut, which we'll be talking about. And yeah, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I still enjoyed it just for the fact that, again, we were so close and we were seeing something fresh after, not, after having relived it on USA reruns and 
home video releases, yeah. home video screenings. And there was something about seeing that and feeling like you were like one of the first people to see it on the big screen that really resonated. And I don't think it's nostalgia speaking when I say I, I, I still enjoy this movie. Mm-hmm. Because, for instance, the first R-rated movie I ever saw in theaters was Jason Goes to Hell the Final Friday. Oh, and wow. over the years, and, it's, and we watched it again about a week ago for Friday the 13th. Oh, sadly. That movie's awful. <laughs> but I liked it as a kid. Because, again, it was yeah. the first time I was seeing Jason on the oh, big yeah. screen. It's a big deal. My, wait, wait. My you were in for that theaters wing. for Jason Goes to Hell? I was in yeah. theaters for Jason Goes to Hell. So, wow. what, wait, yeah. wait, so that ending... Yeah, oh, the ending's tremendous. So people must have flipped out in the theater. Oh, yeah, nobody knew it was coming. This is before the internet. So do you vividly remember? Absolutely. Like, I remember that That's wow. huge hand popping up and grabbing the mask. Easily the best part of the movie. Oh, yeah, easily. But, um, wow. Yeah, I'm looking forward to talking about Halloween Curse of Michael Myers, just because it does have a huge cult following. Should I say a thorn cult following? A thorn cult following, Over sure. the years. Sure. Before we get into our dissection of the film, Mr. Sandman, bring me a tweet. <laughs> Boogeyman is coming. Leave me alone. He doesn't believe us. Don't you know what happens on Halloween? Yeah, we get candy. (laughs) Boogeyman. Ooh, the boogeyman. 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 You know, we, we do have a lot to talk about. Uh, there, there's, over the last 48 hours, yeah. yes. an explosion of news. An explosion just like the Halloween 5. Yeah, Halloween uh, 2. Or Halloween 2, yeah. Uh, I think those what are the only two movies that have explosions. What other explosions happen in this series? Yeah, do they have any other ones? Maybe uh, four? four? Yeah, four. There's the gas tanks. Uh, and I guess, yeah, and the, the electrical, the power oh, plant. Oh, yeah, that's right. So I guess there are a lot of explosions in this series. What about in the zombie movies? Any explosions? I don't think so. That's surprising. Uh, there's a helicopter, uh, though. Explosion of diarrhea. Explosion of crude language. My mind exploded. Well, first off, there was a screening. There was another screening. We were actually, uh, Cap, you were invited to this screening. That's right. Okay, so this is super weird. Like, I'm on press lists and so on, but this mm-hmm. was seemingly unrelated. I have no idea how this happened. I got an email mm-hmm. that was inviting me. I was. It, this came on a Friday, and it yeah. was inviting me to a screening on Monday just outside of New York City. I'm in Florida. I'm in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right now I'm in Chicago. At this moment I'm in Chicago, but I live in Orlando, Florida, and that was like I I was I call I call up Michael's like, what do I do? <laughs> like Yeah. I mean well, you, you empty th- out your savings. <laughs> yeah. I mean they're gonna they're gonna NDA me every which way. I can't mm-hmm. talk about it. Which is why nobody's actually talked about it since the screening. Yeah. Right. You know? There might have been an NDA on the public. But don't worry because <laughs> Blumhouse producer Ryan Turek had this tweet after the screening. <laughs> So get excited. He said, so, so, so happy with what the team has done with Halloween. I couldn't help but get caught up in it and jump up and applaud. Yes, take that from someone who also worked on it however you want, but I'm stoked for you to see it. (laughs) He was like, yeah, pretty happy with what the team did. You know, well, we need some more cuts. Um, There was some some crap-pleasing moments, but uh, we'll get back to you in a couple months. Jamie's okay. It, It is still weird that we haven't heard even just like random things about it just like even like little bits and pieces there's just been nothing i mean we've yeah. we've scoured the internet we've searched every attic and basement but well, we're searching room. these attics like the cops in halloween five yeah we're not really we're, they're not really searching the attic entirely they're not searching for that wide open door with yeah. a candlelit corpse <laughs> of rachel of rachel crothers cops and everything else yeah yeah no so it's uh it's out there just like michael just like michael should be Actually, in the sequel, it's out there, and uh, they're going to probably be doing some screenings. I would imagine, uh, you know, this leads into our next story. There's a Halloween convention 
They've had a bunch of conventions in the past. Sean Clark was around during the uh, the big boom of uh, Halloween websites in the 90s. Mm. He's uh, since become the uh, godfather of Halloween fans. So what does it, that make you? Uh, nothing. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm Malika Cad. Boss baby over here. A boss baby. But no, he. Um, they, they've done a bunch of really great conventions over the years. Uh, they, they did a 20-year one. They did a 25-year one. And I think they just did a 25 one and then 30 and 35. And now there's a 40. Haven't really announced everything that's going to be happening. But it's literally the weekend before the movie opens. So I imagine they're going to have a screening of this movie there. How could they not? Yeah, I I think they will. And I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, listen, Jamie Lee Curtis is going to be there, for God's sakes. And I I feel like everybody who's ever been in these Halloween movies is going to be there. Yeah. Even as the new movies keep discrediting those films. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah, which is going to be interesting when they talk about that at the, uh, the convention. And be like, hey, here's Tom Atkins. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited about the new film, except you know that it totally erases our existence. Yeah, we want to thank the cast and crew over the last thirty years, but your movies are mean nothing to us. Yeah, here's the story. Yeah, it's forty years later. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like watching Newsroom. You know, it's like oh, here's how we should have handled the franchise. Yeah, and it's just kind of a slap in the face and a little on the nose. I am still real excited to see this film of course. because oh totally I mean we've we've given it a hard time but and I'm not I really wasn't excited that they were doing a second screening of another ending and just kind of in a backdoor like oh we're gonna do it in some random screen and never you know I don't know it just seemed very like hush hush and kind of thrown away but it is uh, funny we'll though it is funny regarding the um you know the the retconning of everything because it did come out this week too that uh, apparently in the original script they they actually worked all of the movies into it like that, like linearly, like narratively, they, I guess bound all the movies in one of the many, many drafts of the script that, uh, they were like 80 drafts or something, which I have no idea how you would do that, but I would be interested in, re- in reading that script. And Wait, seeing... for David Gordon Green's? Yeah. David Gordon Green, Dan McBride, there's an interview with them and they said they did 80 drafts of the script and that, that one point <laughs> they great. actually, they actually had, um, incorporated every single movie so far. And, and do you remember back in when they first announced this, we were wondering if they were going to go in some crazy bold direction. I wonder if one of those drafts was like metafictional or something, you know, and, and actually managed to do that. It could be, you know, I mean, I don't know how you rope in all the other movies at this especially point, especially after H2O and resurrection. Yeah. yeah. And especially but, since they want to bring Jamie Lee Curtis back. Well, I guess that was before they introduced the, yeah. they wanted Laurie to come back. Considering, the, the thing, you know, the only thing I can think of is that, yeah, they just, they made it like, Oh, these, this is the real world. And the past few movies have, been actual sequels you know i feel like they would have done something crazy metafictional and given david gore green and danny mcbride's past work that wouldn't that wouldn't be completely out of their wheelhouse to do something like that but mm-hmm. it would be a very different halloween movie i think this draft was even before they took it to john carpenter or anything like that well i i like the idea that uh if they did do like a real world version of halloween kind of like new nightmare uh the one plus about that would be we'd get a uh, christopher guest in a, a halloween movie pro- probably you know cuz oh, oh yeah Jimmy Lee Curtis saying, yeah. Would actually be in it yeah this is going to be a wild ride i think for the next couple of months figuring out what exactly we're going to expect because while we're several months away from the halloween 40 convention there was a convention over the weekend you might know it called san diego's comic con mm-hmm. uh and uh, a lot of cosplayers there, uh, mm. including Michael Myers, who's handing out posters. And uh, Mel Castle, our a fellow co-host in, uh, of the Losers Club, was out and about uh, around San Diego. She's currently learning how to shape some uh, students' minds with writing and writing her own stuff. So she was there. Uh, and, uh, I, Caffrey, you were trying to get her to get a poster 
Yeah, no luck so far. She had, no I think, luck. I think those posters, uh, you have to like sign up for Twitter notifications. Um, our friend Martin Carlson has written some stuff for the site. His friend went and he got one and, uh, I'm very jealous of him. Uh, <laughs> am I, am I, am I jealous to the point where I, where I'll Michael Myers him when I get back? Yeah, to I was going to say, no, no, we'll see, we'll see. you could, could, you could go wear a costume and just, you know, go right into the house and be like a Halloween five. <laughs> I, I the the thing that you had to do though at one point was you're waiting around for a number and then they you meet up a, a shape that's just wandering around outside and under bridges under bridges. Caffrey, I don't think you would be able to do that though. I couldn't handle it. I mean, I I said before I would just like stare at him and piss my pants and <laughs> run away. Or you'd, <laughs> yeah, you'd still grab a poster though. Yeah, I would grab the poster. I mean, I would grab the poster from him and like you know, kick him in the balls or something. And, and like a poor guy, it's like a you know down in his luck actor in like San Diego that hasn't gone to Los Angeles yet. So at Comic Con, they had a panel for Halloween that was uh, shortly after um, Justin's incredibly highly anticipated uh, panel for Glass. It was right after that they uh, they brought out they rolled out uh, David Gordon Green and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> yeah, they rolled them out like uh, Mr. Glass, an upcoming <laughs> Glass. But what's interesting is that John Carpenter wasn't there on stage, although on his Twitter account he tweeted him from the crowd saying how proud he was, like be there. So I don't understand what the hell was going he on. Probably with that. gave it to Cody, his son, and <laughs> yeah. said, "Go out there, take a picture." I don't really want to go up there. So yeah, they they screened a clip. Now, this mm-hmm. clip didn't drop online, unfortunately. I guess fortunately. I'm kind of glad that we didn't get to see it. I don't want to see it. I don't this want... is the clip that I teased about months ago yeah. that I heard about. Set up the runestones if you don't want to hear. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's good. <laughs> okay, go. so we're, we're going to go over this scene real quick. So if you don't want to hear it, scan ahead like a couple minutes. So we weren't there at the, the convention. No. It's expensive going to San Diego. I'm not going to do that. I'm not doing it. But I will read the post that was from our friends over at Birth Movies Death. Uh, Evan Safoff was there, uh, and he wrote, Holy shit, the Halloween San Diego Comic-Con panel was nuts. Jamie Lee Curtis came out with a ton of fire, pretty much everything she was passionate and inspiring, but she leaned hard into an amazing speech about why she came back to the role and how it relates to female empowerment. There comes a point where you say, I am not my trauma. The narrative of my life is that I'm not a victim. I can't quote the whole thing, but man, it was amazing to witness. In terms of movie tidbits, we also learned that Laurie Strode's obsession with safety and Michael Myers caused her to have her child taken away before the film begins. Also, and if you already knew this, I apologize, but according to David Gordon Green, John Carpenter uses the Halloween theme as his cell phone's ringtone. But of course, what we really came for was some rumored footage. They didn't waste any time getting to it, and what we saw blew me away. This is the scene. Kids are trick-or-treating. Two run right into Michael Myers, which we saw on the trailer. Yeah. Uh, to everyone on the street, he's just some guy, which is a little weird. I guess no, maybe if it's 40 years later. Time, yeah. yeah, if it's 40, 40 years, years later, later there's a one-off There was never another incident. Yeah, uh, most right. popular costume in Haddonfield, no doubt. Myers walks behind a house where he finds a hammer. He then walks directly into the house and murders a regular old woman in her kitchen, which gives him an opportunity to trade up to a classic butcher knife. Now, where have we seen the scene? Miss Elrod. Yeah, Halloween and too. it's it's important to note too. I think with this, apparently with this first scene, this first kill, I think it's off screen. You see him follow her inside, and he disappears, and then he comes back and with like the bloody hammer. So I think I think you, this is like an off. It's like I don't, I don't know off screens, right? Because he's in the house, but we don't see the actual violence of of this particular kill. Okay. Which is interesting because of everything we have seen. So like <laughs> yeah. It's going to be very violent deaths. Yeah. And the fact well, that they wouldn't show this is interesting to me. And it's also interesting, though, given the, the next uh, kill that Mike, Mike will get to in a second. So okay, so then he walks into the next room as Evan continues. And we hear a crying baby. 
This isn't the first time in Halloween that we've heard some crying babies. Where else have we heard some crying babies before? Well, Halloween, too. Well, actually, a lot of them, yeah. That's <laughs> Six, think about two. Yeah. yeah, okay. Well, either way, <laughs> Myers checks out the baby, believes it alone. And Evan's pretty happy about this. He says, thank goodness. I'm pretty happy about it also. I don't really need to see There's Michael no Myers point. killing Why babies. Why would he kill babies? I don't so know. dumb, yeah. He walks outside where kids are still trick-or-treating, and no one pays him any mind. Avoiding children, he happens to see a lady talking on the phone in her living room. He spies on her for a bit through her window and walks behind her house while the camera stays on her. Suddenly, he appears behind her and stabs her in the neck. Now, I think we've seen this scene. This is in the trailer when he yeah. kind of jerks his head to the right. This scene's going to be great. I'm telling yeah. you right now. I don't know about the rest of the movie, but this sequence sounds like it's going to be something we haven't seen in the slasher movie. Because it basically, I think it's like a one shot. It's supposed to be a one shot, yeah. right? Okay, cool. So then he says the footage then transitioned into a new trailer. It's a little faster and typical than the previous trailer, more plot based, which. It's crazy because I thought the trailer that we got was literally the entire plot. The Very entire plot. So, I mean, yeah, what, what, what's up? What else is happening? All he says is, "A good grief! This movie looks impressive. That's a very present sense of care and deliberation that was given to this this movie." David Gordon Green does wonders with the slasher. Myers moves like a normal person. He sees no reason not to do what he's out there doing. In other words, he's not creeping around like a horror villain. There's a lot of talk about how he's. And I've seen this a lot online, especially since I was monitoring on Twitter when it was happening live, is that everyone's talking about how Myers does feel scary again, which is good. That's great. I'll just have the battle. At this juncture, that's really the the least you could hope for. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. You know, I don't see any description about the the trailer. Are there anything more in the trailer? Oh, yeah. I don't think so. I think it. I think it was just like a sizzle reel of some of the stuff. Um, I'm trying to think if I because some of the descriptions I read, they just they pretty much just focus on those those two kill scenes. Yeah. Uh, oh, didn't they actually show that shot of the human head that's been made to a jack o' lantern? I think they showed that maybe the one that that was in Rumor magazine. Remember? Uh, maybe. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I think, yeah. I think, I think they showed that shot and a couple maybe some of the bus stuff, but yeah, nothing. I no no like new scenes or anything that would give us insight into you know where this story is going to go exactly. Well, it's interesting because I remember when we were talking about this a couple months ago, you had talked about this scene, Justin. Yeah. Like, yeah. to me. But we thought that it might be the ending. No, or, I just thought it was going to be just, just gonna be during one. the movie. Yeah. Okay. Like, okay. Yeah. I mean, I love the I, idea that, I mean, this scene sounds great. I can't remember the last time in this franchise where we've had that sort of, like, cat and mouse thing where he's kind of, not even cat and mouse, but just stalking. Oh, yeah. yeah just like, stalking I mean. Casually. Yeah. In the streets like that. Like two is the last one, maybe? I mean, not the, even six does it. Well, they, the they, fi- there's a, bit, a little bit of that in four, I think, when yeah. in the beginning. But not, not like killing random people, just like appearances of him wandering around, yeah. you know, doing nothing. I, I was going to say, too, I mean, I've said this before. Like, I don't I don't mind if this movie has a high body count. I mean, he's been locked up for 40 years. And I, I do like that this clip conveys a certain sense of randomness about him. Mm-hmm. Like, that he's just kind of stalking whoever. Like, in, in the clip, you see him maybe go for a young couple. But then he decides to go for this woman. And the only thing that – I don't, don't want to say it worries me. But it, I like that we don't see that first kill. That sounds really cool. But when they describe the second kill, they say he just kind of comes out and, like, plunges a knife – into this woman in the, like the back of her neck and it comes out her throat. Like it, it sounds super violent. And, and I've said before, I'm not against graphic violence in these movies. I just don't want him to turn into like Kane wrestler, Tyler main, Michael Myers again, you know, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not saying he will. That was like the only thing that gave me a little bit of pause, but I mean, overall, like it sounds like Gordon green is truly using his skills with the camera. And as a director, like the, the whole, the whole single tracking shot thing, that's like a very bold move, I think, you know, so I like that he's bringing some visual finesse to the whole thing. Yeah. And the, the, that also reminds me a lot of that, uh, the second death in Halloween two that they shoehorned in where he 
the, you know, the woman's on the phone, and then he, yeah. she goes into the living room, and he jumps up. And but Alice, or I think it's Alice. I think, I think it's uh, Alice. Yeah, 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 it's Alice. Yeah. And, it, and it's, that's back-to-back with, with the old woman and he, where he gets the butcher knife. So yeah. it, it's very a nod to Halloween 2 right out the gate. So whenever that, I don't know when that happens in the film, obviously, but I feel like it'll probably be pretty early on. I, th- I think he, I don't know. I think he's gonna like just start killing people, and I feel like Laurie's gonna be the only one who really sees it for what it is. You know, I don't know. That's just my suspicion. But there's a lot of. St- I feel like that's gonna happen at 30 minutes slash. I, I don't know because the whole problem is there's a lot of stuff that happens with him leading up to. Is this all gonna happen the same day where this this crew yeah. interviews him? And then they go to the town. And they're able to interview Lori, and then there and there's there seems to be a lot of daylight stuff going on. Yeah. So I've I've got to imagine if this is at night, it's going to happen at least halfway through the movie. I, I don't necessarily think he's just going there to get her, though. I, I mean, th- well, I think he's back to no. I don't think he's back to get her. I think that's why they strayed away from the brother angle. Mm-hmm. I think that he goes back to kill babysitters and all sorts of yeah. whoever. And once he stumbles, I mean, once they cross paths, I think he, he probably is like, oh, here's the one that got away. Yeah, I, I don't think we're ever going to see anything happen in the, his mind or like, you know, yeah. we're not going to see Look, him go, I wouldn't be, oh, I wouldn't hey, be, wave at her. <laughs> but I wouldn't be surprised if he is going back to kill her for some reason. I mean, you think so? I, I wouldn't be surprised about anything at this point. None of it really, it's all open for interpretation, literally. I mean, it's all yeah. been rebooted, so it could be anything. Yeah. He could yeah, be going true. back for her. He could be going back to Haddonfield to kill again for a specific reason. For and no I, reason, I don't know. I think we mentioned this earlier too, where if that if that interview with her happens before they actually go to visit Michael, it's very possible they bring her up in the interview, and that's what triggers him to like Could leave be. and go back and yeah. try to get her, knowing that she's still out there, etc. <laughs> Did you guys see the new action figure they had at Comic Con from NECA? I think no, no, uh, I didn't see no, that. yeah. It's really, it's really cool. Again, so the action figure of the new movie, and it comes with um, it actually comes with that human jack o' lantern head from that that shot in the picture and it also comes with the jack-o'-lantern but the jack-o'-lantern's eyes are hearts it's like the eyes are hearts and then the nose is an upside down heart and that was really interesting to me i have no idea how that's going to play into the movie or if it's meant to be specific oh, or weird yeah it's it's really bizarre and, and I, I like i said such a little thing and may, maybe that's just how a pumpkin looks in this movie but to me it distinctly looks like the eyes are hearts so i don't know if like yeah no like valentine's hearts yeah yeah it's mm. very it's very strange so yeah i don't know there, also I, I, strange is that it comes with the judith myers grave yeah, I've seen this. And the oh, head, it doesn't yeah, come with the yeah. head. Yeah, it's a, that, that's the Jack Lennon head. Yeah, it's it's really weird. Like, Which why would Judith Myers? Maybe I mean, he digs up the grave again. Tra- <laughs> he just does it again. Well, no, I think if they're trying to do this whole thing where he's reenacting that the same events or the same night, you know, like he's obsessed with that, it would yeah. make sense. We haven't seen him do this ever again since the first one, apparently. Yeah. So maybe he is trying to literally set up the the deaths again and set up his sister's death and, and you know what i mean well, like, it's, it's something that the something that the comics uh the stefan hutchinson's comics uh, have always gotten at and and uh, i've heard from various sources that like new scripts for the movie back when it was like halloween returns kind of ripped off some stuff from the comics i'm not saying this movie did but i'm saying it's a theme that's there they really lean into this idea that michael killed his sister and it was kind of the ultimate kill it was like the ultimate thrill for him and every other woman he's killed he's been trying to recreate that but he can't hey maybe but we... how do you convey that to an audience in a movie <laughs> yeah. that'll be the question right yeah that's the well, well, start sure talking have, or writing a journal i'm sure you have at some point they carrying the grave out and laurie says oh he's trying to recreate you know what i mean like yeah that's true feed it to the audience <laughs> Wait, if they have they, to. i, I just hope it... we find out what happens to charlie bowles oh charlie but oh well hey you can read the uh, stefan hutchinson halloween story charlie and uh, of the comics and find out <laughs> oh, why yeah. do they do it why do they do yeah. it 
in it's, Halloween uh, Legends uh, <laughs> extended universe. Now. <laughs> mm. I, I, I still do maintain. It's funny. I reread all the comics in between uh, the last episode and this one. And like, they're so good. And it, it, it really did make me just kind of crave for that a little bit, like not eliminating the sequels, but really just having these sto- these Michael Myers stories that take place during the years we don't see him. There's just, so, there's such good stuff in there and it's so well done. And like, it'll never happen now, obviously, but like it, it did make me kind of long for that no matter how, how good the movie is going to be or yeah, won't be. I agree. They did yeah. such a good job. There's such like, as far as like extended universe, pop culture, referential comics, no one knows about them really, but I still view them as one of the greats. Yeah. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, they're like I think they're like the best like horror franchise comics to come out. They're so good. But anyway, I, I, th- I think Shudder should just do like a twenty episode series on these comic books. Adapt them. Let's go. Shudder's on the roll. Do an anthology thing. Hell, some of the comics are anthologies. They're just like mini stories. That's what I'm about saying. It. Just knock yeah. it off and then go on to the next story next week. It would be cool. I mean, like like the you know the Halloween tales or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we got two more stories that came out of San Diego. One was that during the panel, there was the Q and A at the very end. And one of the attendees got choked up talking to Jamie Lee and had explained that he experienced a life-threatening incident. There was a, a person who had cut his phone line and tried to break into the house. And he had told Jamie Lee Curtis that at the time he had thought to himself, what would Jamie Lee Curtis do? And he like ran out of the house and screamed in the street, kind of similar to the 1978 film. So he goes, uh, to make a long story short, I'm here today because of the way that you portrayed Laurie Strode. I'm a victor and not a victim. He says, you're the only reason I came to Comic-Con this year, he confessed. And then Curtis actually left the stage, embraced the fan, and gave him a long hug and kissed him. And she was visibly moved and said, these kind of emotions are real. And it's interesting because, you know, prior to, like, the hype machine starting for this film, I kind of had the idea that the Myers thing was definitely going to be leaning into, like, the Me Too movement. And this is going to be a person that's going to take agency of what happened in their own hands. And... It seems like they're really leaning into that based on all the quotes and stuff that I had been hearing out of Comic-Con. And without getting too presumptuous with a lot of stuff, I mean, this is Blumhouse who did Get Out last year, who had a very successful political film last year that came out, brought him Oscars and, yeah. and attention and all. But I do wonder if like Blumhouse, if that's something that's in their marketing in there, they're like, all right, if we can connect to this, this would make it even bigger of a movie. You know, that's me being cynical. I'm just saying, like, I'm just throwing that out there as like a, a question because it is something to, I mean, literally, it's not just Jamie Lee that's talking about it. It's a lot of other, the, the producers, writers, that they're all like putting this idea out there. Yeah. Well, then I'm sure they're doing it. Why, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, yeah. they smell money. Like, why not? What, how does that hurt the film? Like, it's just yeah. going to promote the film more. Like, yeah. No, totally. You know, there's no, well, are you? I guess my wonder is like, yeah, did when they wrote the film? I mean, they obviously wrote and starred on it before. Well, maybe not. No, I guess they started filming after the Me Too movement had really taken off, but they didn't write it when that was going on. I mean, that, the, the situations are always going on, right? But they wrote it before the hashtag and whatever else. And yeah, so I do wonder if it was like something they were super conscious of when they were writing it. And, and you know, it does make sense. Like, you know, Michael Myers likes to kill young women. And, and yeah. this, it sounds like he's ruined the life of a, of a young woman. Um, yeah, and she's gotten older now. But yeah, and so, but it's like a thing of were they so conscious of that when they're writing it, or is it more of an afterthought of like, oh yeah, this? I guess the nonsensical way to look at it would be like, oh, our movie happens to line up with some themes that are really resonant. Let's like do that. Or is it like, ooh, this is a good thing to hop on and make money with, you know? And and who knows? It's Hollywood, so uh, money's the name of the game. I think you know, as long as they're not, they're not leaning into the you know like the God's not dead narrative. 
and trying yeah. to make that into a horror movie. I, I have no problem bringing yeah. politics into a horror movie as long as you don't forget that it's a horror movie. Well, that's, I think that's why, for me, Get Out succeeded because, granted, obviously it's very political, undertones, overtones, everything else. But I still think it's, it's really, really effective as a thriller. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, I think, for me, The Babadook loses steam at the end because I think it forgets it's a horror movie. Yeah. I would agree with that, yeah. Um, so as long as this still scares me, they can have whatever narrative they want. You know, As long as it scares me, that's all I care about. My, my only concern, I guess, with that topic is that doesn't it feel like we kind of know what the ending a little bit is to this film? Well, they keep this point? Well, I don't know. Though, they, so... they keep changing the ending, so I have no clue now. <laughs> that's actually a good <laughs> point. A good point yeah. Yeah. Maybe she'll die yeah. for the third time in the franchise. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just find it hard to believe that like, if they're going hard for this message... That they would end it with her dying. My perfect ending would be her killing Michael. And then at the end of the movie, we see that she has the mark of thorn. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's your game now, Lori. You know, that brings us back to Halloween 6. But we got one little treat that you wanted to talk about. You know, we were doing a lot of research for this episode, not just with Halloween 6, but with the upcoming Halloween, as we call it. And I stumbled upon, you know, the bastions of entertainment journalism, Entertainment Tonight, the great hack Kevin Frazier who knows absolutely nothing about what he's talking about except he's able to read the teleprompter <laughs> and this is perfect for him because he's interviewing Jamie Lee Curtis and David Gordon Green you know everybody would kill for this mm-hmm. he knows nothing about Halloween a lot of the questions he was asking didn't make any sense if he'd seen at least one Halloween movie but the one that really stuck out at the end was so Jamie over the last 40 years have you ever had fans come up to you you know with with the hockey mask and, and try to scare you <laughs> And she shot him down right away. He goes, no, honey, honey, no, no, no. That's that's a different franchise. No, but what I mean is, blah, blah, blah. it was just infuriating oh, to watch this hack at work. Um, embarrassing. Yeah. And, that's, and they get all the access. And that's, the access. that's classic Comic-Con for you. I mean, not oh, so sure. very long ago, shamed fraud, Chris Hardwick, um, <laughs> he was on a panel for Vertigo Comics. And he was with Scott Snyder and someone else oh, from, yeah, like, yeah. from the new set. And he said, so when you guys created Vertigo... Mm. Blah blah blah. I was like, I think it was oh, with Jeff Lemire, man. and like, and both of them just cracked up. But like, <laughs> it's really funny because like Scott Snyder did was the uh, he was the head writer on the new Swamp Thing for such a long time. Yeah, and one of one of Vertigo's first titles was the old Swamp Thing, which is like from like yeah, what like forty years, no, 30, 40 years ago at this point. Like Jesus Christ, that's not even like a a deep cut fact. You know, that's just really surface level knowledge. But I always yeah. thought that Vertigo Comics was based on the old Swamp Thing movies. So I guess I. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> totally in the dark. Wait, there's another tweet here, Dan. Sorry, it says, uh, "Oh, it's from a few months ago." Truth or dare? Not since Rosemary's Baby have you seen a horror movie this compelling, Jason Blum. So there you go. <laughs> so this is I like exciting. I like Jason Blum. He, he really. I do good, too. What I'm saying is, <laughs> you can just Great take smile. these producer comments for what they're worth. Okay? Yeah. So, yeah. Someone did challenge him on that quote on Twitter. They were like, "Yeah, but." Are you, were you going to come on here and tell us it sucks? And he said, no, I wouldn't. But if I if I truly did think it wasn't good, I just wouldn't tweet anything. And I, and I kind of believe that. I don't think he would like be raving about it if it was a piece of shit. I, I know. I think uh, well, this is the tentpole movie for Blumhouse for twenty. This isn't like some rando like Truth or Dare movie. You know, yeah. like this is this is like you're going to tweet about this movie. Period. You uh-huh. know, because people are going to go see it regardless. Well, even if even seen... if they came out and said it wasn't any good, people would still go see it. There would still be press on it. He was like, guys, I've got to tell you, like it's great. Strap in and get off my back. Like, it was, <laughs> it was like it was something like that. It was like this mock, like mock, like uh, annoyance thing. But I, but I, I, I like Jason Bowman. Well, look, we're out of time for this week. But thanks for what? tuning in. <laughs> okay. <laughs> are, we, are we all done with the news? We're done tweets? with the news. Good God. All right. Halloween. Directed by David Gordon Green coming out this October. <laughs> Let's move on down to this hospital that we all know and love. 
That is actually full of tombs that have candlelit uh, thorn ceremonies. Let's go down to the Smith's Grove Archives. Are you all right? You're all right? Yes, I'm okay. He's gone. He's gone from here. The evil is gone. I got it. Okay, so I'm going to just blow through this incredible note-taking I, I took for the uh, the background production of Halloween 6. You know when people talk about development hell? I feel like it starts with Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a long story short, well, as, as short as I can possibly make it. It took six years for Halloween 6 to come out since 1989's Halloween 5, The Revenge of Michael Myers. And this was the first one since Season of the Witch that had a major distributor, Miramax. I don't know if you've heard of Harvey, Michael Harvey, Myers, Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein. So they ultimately had more control than the Akkads did, and they had total control over Halloween 4 and 5. Now, the Akkads, Trancus International label, still served as co-producers here. Now, after several, several, several treatments were rejected, the Akkads finally hired newcomer Daniel Ferens to write the script in June of 1994. Jesus. And shooting was underway only three months later. Oh, my God. Which seems like a lifetime compared to the... I think Halloween 4 had a month to, to write their script. But uh, anyway. Uh, Ferens had the task of A, explaining what happened to Jamie after part 5. B, explaining who the man in black was. And C, explaining just what the symbol was that we would see on the man in black's wrist and, and Meyer's wrist in part 5. Ferens reached out to the 35 writers of Halloween 5. <laughs> and even they didn't have any answers, as we established in the last episode. Right, they didn't know they, they where promised they were going. They promised we would figure it all out in Halloween 6. I don't think they think, thought it would take six years and into the mid-90s to figure that out. Mm. Uh, so the Thorn Cult was created. The Man in Black was ultimately the original Halloween's Dr. Wynn. And Jamie was impregnated with... Uh, that's complicated. We'll get to that later on. <laughs> After an initial cut was rejected by test audiences in Brooklyn, a cut which we'll discuss in detail throughout. There were major reshoots that included an alternate third act and really ramped up, you know, cool, badass deaths. These are all with quotation marks, of course. Sadly, the great Donald Pleasance died before any of these reshoots took place. So we're mm -hmm. left with Halloween, the Curse of Michael Myers still opened. At number two at the box office in September of 1995. Do we know what it finished second to? I do. Oh, what? Hold on, Cap. Let, okay. let, let, Dan? Sorry, I was just Googling it. No, um, I found <laughs> out, but I don't want to say it because I Googled it and it was not fair. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Cap. Well, yeah. this is Halloween 6, but weirdly it finished after 7. That's a very good. Wow, great transition oh, there. Oh, nice. Yeah, David Fincher's 7 beat it wow. out the box office. That's How really funny. That? And it's funny because bleeding up to that, I had no interest in Seven. I know David. I know David Fincher was really. I was a little <laughs> kid. Yeah. Obviously, Halloween: The Curse of Michael Myers had a better shelf life. I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, any other little tidbits behind the scenes that would not work their way into future segments on this episode that anybody would like to share? Yeah, there, there, there are a bunch of little kind of random roads. Yes. To go on, and before we get to Haddonfield, 1995, and I've got a bombshell I'll share at the end. Oh, really? Uh, some behind-the-scenes things I, th I found to be very fascinating, but go ahead. Oh, interesting. You got something. Sure. I mean, like, you mentioned the writer, right? Yeah. Daniel Ferens. Yes. This guy was a hardcore fan mm -hmm. who was already working on this project just on his own in 1990. And like when you said he, he, like, he, went, he went to other writers, I mean, he, was, he, he showed this to everybody, and they're like, oh, you like, you get this. Okay, cool. Now, granted, 
I don't know the whole process, and I'm sure there's a lot of in and outs that I would love to know the details of. Yeah. But eventually, he had to start taking what he'd written and inject it and shift it all around and it you know, turned <laughs> turn well, into a mess of a film. Basically, what I gathered from the producer's cut and also the special features that are tied with it on the Blu-ray that came out in 2014... I mean, they have interviews with like Paul Freeman and, uh, you know, like Malika Cad, and they all talk about how there are about three different voices. You want to talk about Michael Myers and Danny hearing voices mm. in this movie. Joe Chappelle had to really just listen to three different people this entire time. Mm-hmm. So he had the Weinsteins, which, you know, that's the real uh, Michael Myers in, in his head, the real Curse of Thorn in his head right there. And then he also had the Akkads who were trying to kind of retain some quality control. And then you also had Daniel Ferens, who was like trying desperately to hold on to a story that, as Cap pointed out, had spent years and years piecing together. And he says this is the meeting that he had when he set up a meeting with Mustafa Cad, who was really um, kind of won over by Ferens. Ferens says, I spent weeks preparing for the meeting and came in with a huge notebook filled with Halloween research. I had the entire series laid out in the timeline, a bio of every character, a family tree, he quotes, of the Myers and Strode clans, as well as all of the research I had compiled about the runic symbol Thorn that was briefly shown in Halloween 5. I then laid out how I thought all of this might be explored in Halloween 6. So basically, you know, you mentioned 7. You know, he almost becomes uh, Kevin Spacey's character in that movie prior while he's writing this script, he's laying out sh- everything. He's got bookshelves and notebooks. Yeah, and- <laughs> just nonstop research. But honestly, if you really do, I mean, we, I, I've watched this movie multiple, multiple times over the last 20-something years. But over the past week, it is interesting now that we've been so indebted in the Halloween lore over the past four, four or five months, just seeing where all these threads come from. I mean, like, I imagine he had access to a lot of the archives for old scripts. So I don't think it's coincidence that, you know, the farmhouse with the pumpkin patch outside is eerily similar to the Halloween 4 script. I mean, there's just a lot of weird things that he pulls from different directions, especially which you would, you know, you would outline religiously with the, the Curtis Richards uh, novel. Exactly, Mike. Uh, and he mentions that in the producer's cut commentary mm-hmm. that he does with Alan Howarth, the, the composer. He says that a lot of the opening chapters of the novelization that Curtis Richards did for Halloween, they follow a big Sam Haney ritual. They follow the Michael Myers bloodline. They talk about how I believe his grandfather snapped and killed a family member years prior. Because he was hearing voices too. Yeah, so he's also hearing voices too. They kind of allude to the fact. I think I don't think she's called Miss Blankenship, but there's a very Miss Blankenship esque character. Yeah. In this novelization, and he said that he absolutely wanted to play with that that folklore for the new movie. And why not? At this point, you're trying totally. to connect everything anyway to that disaster part five and those <laughs> loose threads there. So, if you're going to try to make sense of that, at least try to make sense of it with the history that's been laid out in the in the franchise. Yeah, and and honestly, like to that point, there's a lot of love. In this story, and I think that love is one of the reasons why I actually really do appreciate and like this movie a lot. Mm-hmm. Because in terms of, if you want to talk about like a modern film, out of all of the Halloween movies, this is probably the most modern film in terms of how like franchises are built today. I mean, it is so expansive and wide-reaching this movie that, and and so in, indebted to everything that came before that it really does almost feel like you're watching like a Marvel Cinematic Universe it's a movie. Bit, it's a bit incredible that for to be a sixth film yeah coming out on the big screen and adhering to 
all of the prior sequels. Yes, exactly. I mean, and not just doing like what they do these days, which is just a, a total reimagining or reboot, which which always seems to work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm right. joking there. Well, hey. well, and also too, like we'll talk about it a little bit more once we get into the differences between the producer's cut. But in the producer's cut especially, I mean, yeah, I guess the Mark of Thorne is kind of far-fetched if you think about it, but it still works. And like you said, given that he was just thrown this random-ass symbol in the fifth movie, the, the whole explanation of everything does hold together pretty well. You know what I mean? And, and I think it's, like Mike was saying, I think it's treated with such style directorially that it, it, it does stand on its own better than five and maybe even better than four just like as a, a kind of lean and mean movie in my book. Well, The Cult of Thorn also actually brings in Halloween 3. Exactly. In, which is one of the most bizarre aspects of it. But it, it says, you know, hey, this druidic warlock conspiracy, we've, you know, we've warlock. got that. Seen let's, that before, yeah. let's roll it into the, the story. Why not? And they did. And Mike and I watched the producer's cut in this past week. And it's the first time I've seen it since I was sitting on the floor of Mike's townhome in, in middle school. It was fucking great. It was so, the third act is a hot mess still, yeah. but like it's so much better in so many ways. It's a classy movie for most of the film. Yeah. 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 I, I've, I've been calling this the last slasher film yeah. because a year later Scream comes out and that changes everything. And mm-hmm. I'm sure there were some more or less direct-to-video movies in between September of ninety five and was it September? When, when did Scream come out? Was it the summer or the was, fall of ninety six? It was uh, it was the it was December of ninety six. It was the winter of ninety six. So yeah. there you go. So it was like a full year later. But uh, yeah, the third act, I, I I don't have any issues ultimately with the Thorn angle. If you're gonna do it, yeah, that's fine. I, I just don't like the look. I agree. Of the finale, and I think that's when it like we we'll talk about this later. Yeah, on. it falls apart. Yeah, um, almost but, as much as the theatrical cut. But Farron's wasn't the only one that was. Uh, you know, tagged f- to write this though, allegedly. Is I've that... got a little interview from Fangoria magazine. Interesting Epis- uh, episode, <laughs> uh, issue one forty-seven. This was around the time of Halloween: The Curse of Michael Myers. Okay, and these are direct quotes from QT himself. Oh my God, Quentin Tarantino. So check out this interview. I'm not going to do the Quentin Tarantino voice. Okay, ah. people turn this off immediately. So imagine QT talking about this, my boy. Uh, he was. He and Scott Spiegel, old Sam Raimi associate, and mm-hmm. Scott Spiegel, I believe, worked on From Dust Till Dawn with Quentin yeah, Tarantino in some yeah. capacity. So Quentin Tarantino had this to say about his involvement of the pitch for Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. Quentin says, that was weird. It was one of those things where Scotty was bringing me along, and I was the one who put two and two together and came up with at least the first couple of scenes. I thought, hands fucking down, the best part of Halloween 2 was the first 15 minutes when Michael was trying to get out of suburbia. It was very Bride of Frankenstein. The monster's now stuck in the village, and the scenes are of everyone he bumps into until he gets the fuck out. Well, that's what Michael does in part two. He's going through the backyards and going through houses and someone's kitchen and killing everyone along the way. That shit was magnificent. Then when it got to the hospital, it totally fell apart. Now, side note, I 100% disagree with him on that. I love the hospital stuff. Okay. I do too. Anyway, using that idea, I had the whole thing with the man in black. I hadn't figured out who he was. He was leaning towards something demonic, but I didn't go there. I also thought he could have been a bounty hunter, a, a Lee Van Cleef character. I didn't write it down, but what I would have done is have it begin with 15 or 20 minutes of just the man and Michael having left the jail. What it takes to get him out of sight. He literally takes him to a diner. They sit down. Shit happens at the diner. They have to escape. They go to someplace else. Shit goes down at the motel. They have to go someplace else. And I would have stayed with them as the man in black worked out with Michael whatever they were trying to do. The thing is, they have to take a road trip, 
So they're on the road, which is not possible because Michael knew how to drive all over the place. <laughs> I imagine Fangoria like writing these notes down. Yeah. This is the guy from Pulp Fiction, Reservoir Dogs. Like, oh my god, I can't are, believe he's saying all this. Are you, Justin? Are you are you serious? I am. This, this is a this real is, quote. This is real. This is insane. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. And um, oh but once god. again, it just goes to show you that Quentin Tarantino's no. Kevin Frazier, Chris Hardwick, he is absolutely a fan of these horror films yeah. and a fan of the Halloween franchise. So that would have been would have taken a awful. different direction for sure. Yeah, it would have been it would have been like you know he would, he would have been the Man in Black. Yeah, it would have been, it would been like a very Destiny takes the radio or whatever the hell that movie was called. Yeah, <laughs> it would be like like what if, what if it was like Devil the, the Devil's Rejects? You know, like them just showing up at motels, but like Michael's there and he has to keep leash on him. <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting like, because I mean we'll be talking about zombies movie, but there are a lot of weird elements of that, especially the second one that seems to fall in line with that movie a little bit. I agree. Yeah, yeah, you know, totally. Um, uh, which is kind of funny seeing how that movie ditches a lot of the stuff that Tarantino doesn't as well. So this was around, this is right when the movie came out or this is right when Curse of Michael Myers well, came out? Well, this interview came out once the film was done. Okay. So I'm assuming this interview took place after or during Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. <laughs> Pulp Fiction. <laughs> wow. Pulp so he had already done true. Reservoir Dogs. He'd already yeah. done True Romance. I mean, he probably, killers. yeah, he had already written Natural Born Killers and I guess he did, had already done his uncredited writing for It's Pat. So this is like almost his, it's not even his salad days. Like he had already been. Oh, he was done. Like, he was, he, was, he had made it. I wonder if he would have tagged Roger Avery to help him out a little bit. But. Well, Avery went on to do Killing Zoe and, and then, um, uh, Killing Himself. Rules um, of Attraction. Yeah. Love Rules of Attraction. Love Rules of Attraction. Hey, you know what? I so follow good. Roger Avery. He's on Letterboxd. Great film review site. It's like with IMDb head quality yeah. people writing on is, it. Is Roger Avery still in jail? No, he's been out. Oh, he's been out. He's been oh, out okay. For a while. I was gonna say if they just give him some time to like go and he's you know, he's got an hour in the what library. Was in, what was he in jail for? Was it? Oh boy. Was um, it again? There was some controversy. He with... uh, gosh. It, hopefully, I'm gonna remember this correctly. And it sucks. And I feel terrible about the whole thing. I'm sure he feels a thousand times worse. Yeah. <laughs> he was uh, drunk driving. Yeah. Killed a person, and also someone, maybe his wife was his passenger, also dead. Oh I Jesus! Think. I think something like that. I'm sorry if this is wrong. But, like, that's what I remember. Uh, well. Oh, yeah. Either way, they uh, weren't involved. <laughs> Halloween 6 carried on. Uh, we did not get the road trip in Myers with the man in black. I, would, I love the idea of Myers sitting in a diner. Like, would he have the mask on? Like, would it be like a post-Halloween thing where they're like, all right, look, you can get whatever you want. If you want pie... Like a chicken salad sandwich. Just I want to write these scenes. I want to know. I like. I my brain is teeming with. What would this be? How can you do this? There's nothing like it in Halloween. No, there's. I nothing. think Dan. I think Dan. You'd still be terrified <laughs> if it was just Thorn and total Thorn, like black hat, black cloak, <laughs> sitting across from Michael Myers at a coffee shop, just have it, with, with mask on, just talking. Yeah. Well, yeah. I know what's funny is, you know, the joke is always like, oh, I can't even handle watching Michael Myers do normal things that are supposed to be funny. Yeah. However, I did have for the first time ever when watching the producer's cut, um, one of the differences is there's a flashback in the beginning to the end of Halloween 5 where Jamie sees um, the cult of Thorn shove Michael into a van. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and watching I, for the first time in my life. It was he, the sight of him was not scary to me because it was it was just weird seeing him interact with like these two Joe schmoes, you know. And he kind of shambles backwards like, ah, like guys, what are you doing to me? And it like, uh, it was the first time where I'm like, ah, eh, maybe watching Michael Myers do mundane things like 
fall into the back of a van or is not as scary as, <laughs> as well, I thought. Also, it's important. So maybe I can handle it. I just want to mention that um, Roger Avery's latest update on Letterboxd, he gave um, Ant-Man and the Wasp three and a half out of five. So I would agree. Good movie. With our uh, Paul Rudd, Boy Wonder. With our Paul Rudd boy. I mean, other than Paul the Steven fact Rudd? that, like, apparently he went through 10 different drafts mm-hmm. between June of 94 and October of 94, which means that... Uh, during writing, during filming. Oh, my God. Well, that's not enough, because as we know, David Gordon Green, they've, they've gone through 80 drafts. Yeah, that's true. On this new script, so... Well, let's hope it turns out as good as Halloween 6. Uh, well, do we want to kick into the dissection? Now we've got a little bit of the background. Uh, everybody who agrees, say Michael. 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 Ooh. Michael, kill for me. Kill for me. Kill for me. <laughs> oh, <wah. laughs> uh, hey, let's turn on the sweet radio. Let's turn on the FM dial. Let's go to WKNB. 17-year-old Lori Strode was found directly across the street from the home where the murders took place. The teenager was taken across town to Haddonfield Memorial Clinic. Well, you've been waiting. A very long time, Justin, to get to Halloween 6. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, what, what is that noise? <laughs> you know, I feel a little bit hot tonight. I can barely see the road, the heat coming <laughs> off of it. We leave us alone! It sounds um, like the breakdown of Van Halen's Panama. It does. <laughs> it really does. It does. Or like even, like, the, even the beginning of Pretty his, Woman, uh, where it's like, dun dun Bum 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 bum. Well, it is uncredited. I think I think they did bring Eddie in to do some of the guitar work for this. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Oh, Michael Myers. So yeah, the score is awful. Alan Howarth is back. He co-composed Halloween Two. He added to great effect, I believe, all the synth work onto that score. Did the incredibly underrated Halloween Three Season of the Witch soundtrack uh, with Jim uh, Carrey? Yeah, love that song. Which is amazing. For whom is it underrated? Not for those oh. who know it. Well, yeah, yeah. a lot of people don't. Uh, the casual fan might not know the Halloween Three. No, season. no. The Everybody only one I the, own. Yeah, but you need to oh, know. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. To On vinyl, thanks to Michael Rothman. Hey, that's uh, and I didn't even have to buy it myself. I don't know what I just said just then, but <laughs> something. Mike didn't even uh, buy himself. Yeah, didn't no, even no, buy no, myself. No, how, anyway, oh. how, and Alan Howarth also did the Halloween Four, and. Five scores, so he's back. So there's some continuity at least. But we liked four. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And we scored. liked five? No, we didn't like five. Five was no. just the recycle of, of the. Yeah. But here's the problem, and here's the thing. I don't know what else Alan Howarth was doing at the time, but they're coming. They're coming to you and saying, "Hey, do you want? If we're going to give you work, and I'm assuming he's always going to be like, "Yeah, of course." Now, having done this is his fifth outing, right? Mm-hmm. The Halloween Five score is so underwhelming and ridiculous. But they had to come to him and say, "Hey, you know, we want you to do six. He was probably like, "Okay, great. This is a great paycheck. Cool." And then went back to his house and thought, "What else am I gonna do with this score? How else do I make that? You know, because they want the theme to be there." So he's trying to make it interesting for himself. Now I'm not making excuses because I don't like the score at all. But I understand why they're doing all this new stuff and the electric guitar and all these things you know it's like it's like a, it's like what if it's like a view to a kill <laughs> you know like they're like really yeah. really uh really trying to bring in the times well, that and they are i mean even down to how people look and 
the 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 Alice in Chains ripoff song that we'll talk about in a second. Uh, you know, Tim is literally just like they're like the producers like, look that that I don't know uh, who's that guy, Bobby uh, Bobby Vetter. Uh, no, that's uh, Eddie Vetter. Oh yeah, yeah, Eddie uh, Eddie Vetter, the 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 Pearl Jim, Pearl Jim. Uh, the, give me that guy. And they're like, well, he's not an actor. And he's like, well, give me somebody that looks like him. You know, and you know they they, they basically have like grunge all over this. I mean, this is the, well, he, the grungiest Halloween movie. That's he even out there. quotes. Uh, he even quotes uh, Beavis and Butthead at one point. Uh, oh, oh save, save that, save that, Dan, save <laughs> oh, that for God. a deeper dissection later on. Yeah, and, and the commentary I mentioned earlier, Daniel Ferrance does it with Alan Howarth, and Ferrance is very, very complimentary. It has to be because Howarth's sitting right next to him, mm-hmm. uh, and Howarth actually says that he added the guitars yeah. to help the score evolve. Which which um, I understand, and again, I don't think it works. No, but I get at the time you're trying you're trying to be edgy and trying to reach a a younger audience that are going to see movies like you know what's what Scream would come out in next year, and like that they just didn't they didn't know how to reach these younger audiences, and and they're like you know a piano score is not going to work. They thought well. That was wrong. <laughs> I think I, it would have still really worked. But, but I, I, th- I want to say that this is pretty emblematic of like horror in general in the early '90s. Like, mm. even if you go back to like, Pet Cemetery gets away because they only include the Ramon song at the very end in the credits. That's the '80s, and that's the, and that's '89. Yeah. But then you go to Pet Cemetery Two, oh, which is oh, nothing gosh. but that yeah. stupid fucking like electron like the electric guitar like score. Gilmore in. But think about all the other big early '90s releases at the time. Like they all have that sort of like rock and roll wash to it, well, and like disturbing behavior. Well, that's '98, and it's that's a great film. Era, um, and Mark Snow's story, and that is awesome. But the whatever, that's a long. <laughs> we'll, we'll have a disturbing behavior podcast. Disturbing uh, podcast. Disturbing. Can't wait uh, with my uh, with my boy Nick Stahl. We'll we'll bring him back. But this is like I don't I don't want to single out Halloween Six too much because I just do feel that it, he was trying to mirror a lot of the stuff that was going on around the time. I mean, like I'm trying to like I I vividly remember horror almost being marketed. And you're right, like it's almost like all the producers like, hey, these rock and rollers, these grunge rockers, they're gonna like horror also. So we just got to fucking roll it out. To that sort of like the heavy metal crowd, the the sort of it's like, a lifestyle thing. That's yeah. like that's 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 yeah. the the the, I, the horror genres fan base had, or like the more so the Hollywood producers' idea of that fan base yeah. had turned into and mutated into this very specific thing. Because you think of John Carpenter's movies too. Sure, it was yeah. Pals with how I mean, you always make fun of. <laughs> with oh, like, yeah. I was, mean, his soundtracks went to shit after. The 80s were over with. And what was his last great iconic soundtrack? I think that the main score to Prince of Darkness, which Alan Howarth participated yeah. in, is actually really strong. But that's like there's 80, no guitar in that. What is that? 87? 87, yeah. Oh my god. It is weird or though, 89, maybe. 88 I remember, you know, I watched Halloween 6 about I guess like a year after it came out, probably. And even as as a 12-year-old, the guitar sounded so weird to yeah. me. Yeah. That's why I wanted to so point out. I mean, I was I'm, I, you know, I was just in like Candlebox back in the day, you know, and obviously Alice in Chains and all the grunge bands, STP. The list goes on on Bush. Uh, oh. But even, yeah, Dan, I remember the first time you hear that guitar, I think right when they're emerging from the um, the underground Smith's layer of Smith's Grove yeah. Sanitarium. Even as a, I guess, 13, 14 year old thinking, this doesn't sound good. This is really stupid. This is not well, do- effective at all. This is not creepy at all. This is just cool, you know? 
do we want to talk about, I mean, one of the biggest differences between the producer's cut and the theatrical cut is that the score is more traditional and there is no electric guitar. And, you know, I watched both of them back to back and I think the the original score I think is great. Like I think it's the best one since Halloween two probably. Yeah. But the problem is is they use elements of just Halloween two and the first one and like you feel like it didn't change. Well, I I also don't feel it fits in a lot of scenes too. Just watching some of the more horror, like there's a, the way they use the score when Deborah Strode is being killed is, is just doesn't it, it, that's it, true. It, yeah. it loses the punch. Like I do think that there are parts of the score in the original cut that really work well. Do I think? I mean, I think the bludgeoning on the over the head with like the dun dun dun. Oh. I mean, it's, oh, it's ridiculous. The whammy bar. Oh, it's so insane. Oh, yeah, I do. But, remember, I do remember that pulling me out of it when I was a kid. Even then, I was like, oh no, because no. it was like tr- it was. It felt like they were trying to make it make Michael Myers cool. Yeah, and I was just like. You know, I think you don't um, need that. Like, no. it's, like it, I don't know. But the, the producer's cut is as close as you're going to get to what they want to do 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and because they couldn't go in there and really put on a brand new score that would resemble the Halloween 2 reaction deaths with the ding, yeah, you know, that yeah. type of thing. But they just kind of had to say, this is an approximation of what we would have done here. Yeah. So it's a temp track, right? Too. I mean, like, there's no one directly responsible for making new score for the producer's exactly. cut. Just, it's literally just Sting's from Halloween 2 that they're literally just cutting and pasting onto yeah. it. It's not something that was recorded back in 94 or anything like that. I mean, yeah. it's definitely more effective than what you get in a lot of this, in the majority of the original cut. However, I actually don't mind the score for the original third act. I think it actually helps embellish like the, the tension that's sequence? going on. Yeah, I don't mind that stuff. Well, yeah, but I mean, the you know your your blood's up at that point. You know, it's going. Yeah, it's, yeah. It is the climax. So I, yeah, that, that doesn't, it doesn't bother me as much as it does in earlier scenes. Yeah, where he's just like walking across the street or something. Yeah, or like when that. you first see him, Michael appear and kill the you know the woman that's like overacting and like hey, your baby. Like and oh, then like you gosh, know she's the worst. Yeah, we'll get to her in a bit. But <laughs> that th- that whole opening sequence is when you really do get like the rock and roll. Movie. Michael Myers does not work. No. No, um, and, and that's why the Rob, that's why the Rob Zombie movies would work so well. Oh, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> you know, do, do what do you think about Brother Kane? Brother Kane, yeah, we we thought it was Sutter Kane. Speaking of John Carpenter, yeah, yeah. Brother Kane's song is is a joke, and there's actually a, a TV trail, a TV commercial that uses yeah that song. What's even more bizarre about it is this is a, there's a theatrical trailer that ends with like the the titles are up Halloween si- or Halloween Six Curse of Michael Myers, however they branded it at the time. And then the last card you see yeah. is like featuring Brother Kane. I'm like, who the fuck is this? Like, I mean, on what universe is this music a selling point to see the film? I, I, think, I think John. I think Brother Kane is actually John Kane, like the second nephew of Bob Weinstein or something like that by marriage, and he, it, he wanted to promote his. It's interesting his because brand. so they're from Alabama. They're a Southern rock band. Uh, it's their their big song in full shine on which was from their second album, Seeds, it actually stayed on number one on the Billboard Rock charts for six weeks. What? Yeah. Like at like number 93 or something like that? <laughs> number one for for Billboard Rock chart. That's crazy. I never heard this song once on the radio. I didn't either. And, you know, I was listening to this type of music at the time, but there's, you know, there's three other songs on the, the soundtrack, Hung on a Rope, 2020 Faith, and Horses and Needles. But it just seems oh, so... Horses and Needles. Oh, that's, my, that's, my, that's a good one. But <laughs> it just feels that... It, it, for, for me, I always saw like when they used to like push the brother Kane, it felt mm. so like so lesser than just like this movie in some ways. Like it just felt so like it's just cheap. it's more lifestyle branding. Yeah, yeah it is. exactly. 
I'm more of a uh, bird brain fan from the movie Scream, uh, Youth of America. You guys oh, remember yeah, that song? Oh, yeah, that's a great that's song. A that's that's yeah. actually a significant improvement from what we're discussing. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I, think I, so. I, I used to love those Scream soundtracks. <laughs> I did too. Scream 2, I, I pretty much just wore out when that when that came out. Halloween 6, uh, I did not actually... I, don't, I still have never owned a Halloween 6, but you did. I bought this thing before it came out. I was pumped. Yeah. yeah. Pumped up. Yeah. And I remember the back of it is just... It's Michael standing there with the red light from the tunnel on him, and then to the right. I don't believe the song is on the actual. The brother Kane score. I don't I remember that. Yeah, it was just it was the just score. the Howard score. It was just the Howard score. Yeah. So you listen to those uh, whammy bars and you know Howard just rocking out he, to creepy Michael he, Myers emerging from tunnels. You know Howard. Howard does talk on the Blu-ray that came out in 2014 because he just did a ton of interviews for this, but. He talks about how, like, I guess he felt that he he did feel the repercussions of a film that was taken away from its creators, uh, too. That he describes it almost like a mile mark where he was like, I was with them at every mile. And, you know, at mile 90, I was with them. And then when they all of a sudden they're at mile 180 and I wasn't there anymore. And then, so I, you know, again, it's I do wonder how much it was out of his hands. Having said that, he still went fucking nuts on the guitar. So, I mean, we, you know, he well, laid the tracks of, down. In terms of placement, I think. Yeah, you know, I, I, that's probably why some of that stuff just doesn't work. They just use yeah. use portions of of his soundtrack and put it in places where he probably never really intended. And yeah. if he wasn't there for any of that and the editing process, then you know what can you do? Yeah. However, the source material still isn't like fantastic. And I guess I we were also being pr- pretty critical because this is the guy that brought us the score for three, which we all love. Mm-hmm. And it's just you know what they're capable of. Yeah. And I think they were, it was just a product of. How do I? How do we bring this to a new generation of kids who, honestly, what we've only realized now, actually just love the old scores and old synths and all, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, like, had they just stuck with what worked, I think fans would have loved it anyways. Well, because it just would have reminded them of the prior films, of do the you original like, films. Do you like the huge like hammer, like, ding, like? Like that, those cuts that, the cut that happen, like sounds. when they like when things happen, like you know when like Deborah turns around. And they're, they're, the axe isn't there anymore, and it's like a shing, like you know, like or you know, or like see something, or like when Loomis shocks her, no, and there's those jump things. I, it's I like it like... almost sounds like there's like a hammer hitting like a fucking metal thing. No. Or I don't like that. I no. mean, the sound design for this film is bonkers. Yeah, because like in the original cut, when Jamie's sneaking through the barn, the thing that tells Michael where she is is she steps on not what is visibly a twig, but it's her. In her, with her foot, which is wearing a sock, stepping into what looks like some very soft hay, which then in the in the audio track makes this extremely loud branch break. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Well, and, and Ferens and Howarth talked about the sound design on the commentary as well, and, and he said that the producers really had him ultimately lean more into the sound design as opposed to just the score. And that's why you're getting, in that theatrical cut, all those lame transition scenes, you know, in between... A scene at the, at the bus depot, and the next day, you'll see these flash cuts of like knives and Michael walking, and then yeah. people screaming, and then boom. Well, and, it, and, and it's, it's and that's by the way, that's all removed from the producer's cut. It is the better. Yeah. yeah, that is. Yeah, that is one of the big. I mean, I, I actually, th- I, uh, I still think there's a more ideal version of the movie to be had that uses elements of both the producer's cut and the. Yes. I agree. Cut. 
However, oh, one of the distinct improvements over of yeah of the producer's cut is taking out those like MTV you know smash cut things, mm-hmm. and it's so stupid too because the footage they're using for that is just footage from later on in the movie, like the the yeah. um, like a Michael Myers walking from across the street, and isn't isn't it the first thing that um it's like the first thing you see in the theatrical yeah. cut? Well, that, right? you like, made the joke that's like um, Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Which oh, I guess would come out a year like later. A fuse that's being lit. But, I mean, it's definitely not like a deal breaker for me, but yeah, it, it feels very dated. It feels very much trying to, you know, appeal to the MTV generation and all that. And um, yeah, just like I, I think just taking them out completely, along with the this stupid sound design that comes with it. Because I hate when they, I hate when they make jump scares solely based on sound design. I mean, so many modern horror movies do that, where it's just like, it's like, dink. Oh no, it's just someone running into me. You know, like yeah, someone, yeah. like Doctor Loomis bumping into me, and there's this this like clang with it, and it's like. That wouldn't even be remotely jarring if it didn't have that stupid sound thing under it. So yeah, I think you could just do away with them because altogether. Otherwise, it's a pretty patient movie, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, actually, very it's very slow. It's, you know. A lot slower than 4 and 5 are, you know? And I, it actually feels... Michael's stalking of his victims actually feels the most similar to 1 or 2 for me, you know, throughout yeah. the movie. Yeah. Well, something else that I, I noticed from um, being a big fan of Werner Herzog's Nosferatu is that some of the score from that film is actually in the producer's cut. Really? That's the music that you hear in the very beginning during the oh. ceremony. Yeah. It's oh, from that film. Right. I think it's Popol Vuh. It's either Popol Vuh or the ones it's like their Vuh. composition of a famous score. I, I don't know the name of the piece, but that's something that I thought was also that's kind of crazy right. as well. I that's, remember I remember when we watched that or a while back that they had used some of that. But that's an example, too, of I, I feel a lot of the producer's cut is ultimately like a, glory, a glorified temp track. I think Happy Media yeah. mentioned that, yeah. too. Where the, we, uh, like they wanted to get a vibe of... The Nosferatu soundtrack. They want to get a vibe from Halloween too, yeah. and we just this is a, an amalgamation of that, hey, which we know what, that Howarth could do. Yeah. What's the so, mo- What's the uh, silent movie that Mrs. Blankenship was watching? It's not, it's not Nosferatu, right? It looks more like Cabinet of Doctor Calgary or something. I think, uh, or, 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 remember her or Testament of Miss of Doctor Mabuse, I think, or something like that. It's I creepy though. Exactly what it was. Yeah, yeah, it is creepy because it's like on that, mute, but... right? And then she's just staring mm-hmm. at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that, the whole Blankenship house is actually. In terms but of the I, dread you get is great. I love that. Because, I mean, that's just also another nod to the original where they're, the Halloween marathon's on kind of thing. Yeah. You know, the old, they're showing old flicks. Oh, totally. Um, you guys, you know, it's been nicer lately. And in Wisconsin, you never quite know when winter is going to be in. But it's been nice for like four days in a row. And I'm like, if sunnier days are coming, it's time to fuel up. And so I'm going back to my factor meals that no prep, no mess. I want to hit my weight goals before it's time to hit that beach. You've got options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, Keto, Factor has these fresh, never frozen meals, dietitian approved guys. And here's the big thing for me, keeping out of the kitchen as much as possible, two minutes and these meals are ready. So it doesn't matter how busy you are, you've always got time. So treat yourself. They have 35 different meals to pick from, 60 add-ons to choose every week. You're always gonna have new stuff to try. Have it whenever you want, it's effortless guys. So if you'd like to try it yourself, head to factormeals.com slash badmovies50 and use code badmovies50 to get 50% off your first box. Plus, 20% off your next month. That's code badmovies50 at factormeals.com slash badmovies50 to get 50% off of your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. I'm getting a headache. The whammy bar here. Yeah. It's just driving me out of my, out of my mind. I'm turning off the radio. How old was Michael Myers? Uh, I would say he was probably, he was a young boy when he killed Judith. Granted. Yeah, I think Michael Myers was 21. Stop! 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 
after a brief absence from Halloween 5, George P. Wilbur is back as Michael Myers, the shape. He was in Halloween 4, the return of Michael Myers. Looks totally different here. I think it's because they didn't give him those lame like hockey pads to wear, and he's got a cooler mask, in my humble opinion. He does have a cooler mask. Also, something I learned was in any of the reshoots that you see, it's a different actor. Oh, my God. It's A, Michael Lerner, a stuntman whose credits include... Irrelevant. Nothing popped out to me. So oh wow! What, what were the reshoot scenes? The whole it's finale. A lot, yeah. It, okay. the, the whole finale. He. You can tell he looks a lot taller and slimmer than George. Yeah, Field. he does because like when he's. It's in that scene where he's walking by and they're trying. You know, Kara and Tommy and uh, I guess Danny. And baby. They all have to be in the baby Stephen. They all have to be kind of quiet. And when he walks away, and then something falls or whatever, and he stops in the hallway to like look and turn around, but they show his profile. And his shoulders are so big, and his waist is so narrow. It's just like he becomes Michael Michael Hunk Myers. Uh, yeah, a little bit. Period. Becomes like Hunk what's Myers. His name? Tyler Maine, Michael Myers. Yeah. I, I kind of I like uh, I don't know I like George P. Wilbur in this just because I, I like that we can see Michael age a little bit. You know, even in the new yeah. one too. I like that he's not this com- this like machine. You know, I mean, I, I think it's scarier if we see a little bit of a uh, little bit of flab and some heft to him. My favorite moments of him are actually the out-of-focus moments. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of those where you'll see somebody notice him in the distance as out-of-focus. Now, normally, you'd cut back again after the notification, and he's in focus. But there's a lot of moments here where he's just out-of-focus, somebody sees him and runs away. And it's something much more, I don't want to say spiritual, but there's something otherworldly about that spectral. that we haven't really had in a while. Spectral, that's a perfect yeah. example. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Those moments are the most like off- that to me. That is authentic Halloween. That yeah. is that is the mm-hmm. film series that it's at its best. And there's so much of it here, especially in the producer's cut, or like yeah. at least played up in the producer's cut in a way that is really that you can you can attach yourself to it in a meaningful way. Yeah, there's a connection. I just things made. are more frightening when they're in the dark and or out of, or like you said, out of focus. You know, like it's the more peripheral scares. You know. The one you that uh, you wouldn't turn um, and just stare at him and really get a good look at, you know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like you're right there with them. Mm-hmm. The, the one that that really comes to mind is when he's stalking uh, who's Deborah Myers. Is that the mom's name yep. in the house? When he's stalking her in the house, and you see him a few times in that out of focus thing, and then when she does finally see him, we see that she sees him, but we don't cut back to him. And I love that, and she just runs. Yeah, you know, exactly. Wait, did just, you call her Deborah Myers? That's her, yeah. Oh, wait, well, Deborah, Deborah Strode. Deborah Strode. <laughs> Deborah Strode. Yeah. Oh, Deborah Strode. Sorry, oh, took a close enough. Yeah. I'd believe I it. I'd believe it with this movie. This though. movie has the least amount of screen time for Michael, right? It has I think to. So, and I think it, it, well until the end. I think both versions of the endings. There's a lot of Michael Myers, obviously, but I think leading up to that, this is the least amount of screen time you have with him because even in Halloween, especially in the second half of that film, there's a lot of stalking that you see going on, whether he's outside somebody's house or across the street. Well, I but also this says you'll see him with like there'll be the brief like a lightning flash will happen. Yeah. you'll see him outside somebody's house. Which is, in my opinion, pretty creepy. Keep him yeah. in the background. Or even there's some scenes where you you think you see him, but he's not actually there. I, and I, I think the good thing with this movie is that they actually have a cast and characters that you want to spend time with. And you, unlike part five, where it's yeah. just like anytime they're not on Michael or, or, or someone important, you're just like, oh, good God, let's move to the next scene. The only time for me that uh, it, it's weird because it's actually a pretty scary introduction to him, but it's it's more just the way it's shot is where he emerges from the shadows in the beginning. It's the first time we see the new mask and everything, mm-hmm. and he impels that nurse on the spike. 
I love how he emerges from the shadows. Like that's pretty cool. But there's something about <laughs> there's something about um, George P. Wilbur's walk. Just the way he's walking, it almost seems like cocky. Like, well, here I am. He's kind yeah, of, he's kind of like, yeah. It's weird. He's almost like strutting out of the shadows a little bit, and it's always yeah. kind of funny to me when, when we first see him. But I mean, overall, I do love him, and I. I I think it's the best mask since one and two. I think probably down, yeah. the only, my only complaint is like its ears are a little big, but other than that, I think it's like, it's very gritty looking. We don't see his eyes at all. Which it's really funny appreciate. in the 20 years I've been watching this. I've never noticed his ears, but for the rest of my life, I will now notice his ears. Yeah. Thanks. Dan's right. This really takes it. I'd like to say, I'd like to say that this is the first film where it feels like this is daddy Myers now. No, I agree. Even though it's obviously a mask, it's uh-huh. not his actual face. He does seem, although even you know, it's funny thinking about the age. He's only supposed to be like my age in that. He's supposed to be like thirty five, thirty six. Well, uh, maybe mm-hmm. it's because in the in the producer's cut, he is a daddy. Also, that's so, true. Well, and, that's also open to interpretation. But we'll talk about that a what? little bit later on. <laughs> okay, I, I agree, Dan. Like, there's something about his walk that just seems so like when a dad. Has to get up and do something in the house. Very cavalier. It's He's very, been through it. Yeah, yeah. It's all, me- it's all mechanical at this point. Yeah, like, and then even the way he kind of just stares at the nurse that he's impaled. Mm. It's kind of just like a like well, we're doing this again, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> Wizard, like it must uh, be the thirty first of October. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, I mean, the thing that's really creepy about the mask too is that you never see the eyes. I don't think. I, well, no, I yeah, think you said until the until the producer's cut. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think because even when we were watching the original cut at the end, when he does that stop and look in the, and yeah. you said that you didn't like that shot because you can see like his eyes. I yeah, think. and but the, when you see the hollow, like when he first appears in the basement uh, with um, uh, was it uh, is it John Strode? Yeah, yeah. John Strode, Bradford Inglis, uh, English. Uh, he uh, his eyes are terrifying. I remember actually that being a gif in the late 90s mm-hmm. where his head just kind of turns and it literally looks like you're just looking into the abyss. Because well, the mean, water's kind of reflecting off of him too. Yeah, yeah. yeah there's just a, it's, it's a lot of really great iconography with Myers here, especially with that mask because it, does, does, it doesn't actually feel like a mask anymore. It really kind of feels like, like, like you face. never see this yeah. anymore. I, I, like, I can't imagine there being any stores with this mask. Whereas, you know, you kind of obviously with four, you, you see him literally take the mask. Uh, but yeah, in this one, it does feel like it's, it is him now. Yeah. Yeah. Something that doesn't work a hundred percent for me though, is the fact that in these other movies, it seems like he is the all powerful uh-huh. shape. And like, like <laughs> Dan pointed out earlier, and the producer's cut is being kind of shoved at the back of the van, like, we got to get out of here. Get in there. And I think there's something taken away from him in this that it doesn't work 100%. I, mm. The fact that they make it out like the Thorn cult is the He's one being... that's responsible for everything. Yeah. And Daniel Ferentz actually says that when he was writing the script, he felt like the cult was worshiping him. Yes. And they were adhering to him. But the way it's presented in both movies, it feels like it's the other way around. They're uh-huh. controlling him. And, and, and even in the, in the non-producer's cut, granted, he does sort of break free and go on this rampage at the end. But at the same time, like Tommy Dillard beats him with a pipe. Although I don't know, it is kind of satisfying just because we haven't seen anyone like beat the shit out of Michael Myers yet. You know, so I kind of well, do. Well, like, Halloween, five. Halloween five, you but Donald Pleasant's taking that too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's kind of like a weak old man hit, you know, just like, but oh, I, shots fired. yeah, I, it's interesting because <laughs> I feel them. like even that sequence is totally unwarranted. Like you don't know why all of a sudden Myers is turning on them. Do you know what I mean? And that's in the in the theatrical cut. He just shows yeah. up and starts oh, killing everybody. It's like so bizarre. Okay, so so, so, so t- more blood. the the scene specifically is 
that there's this there's a surgery happening. I believe there's no explanation as no. to what it is, and it's actually really well shot. They use yeah. the strobe to great effect. Um, probably one of the best strobe sequence sequences uh, I can yeah, think of. Yeah, I don't mind the scene. Um, but yeah, it means nothing. But yeah, what is yeah, Justin? Yeah. What is the what's the reason for this? Uh, this mayhem? Again, that's not in the of, cut at all. Of the thorn. No, this is in the cult. regular cut, the theatrical yeah, version. Cut. Daniel Farren has asked about the ending of Halloween Six. And he doesn't even know what it is. Well, it's it's very weird. It's I, I, I'm rewatching it for a second time this week because I just rewatched it this morning. Uh, I, I watched the theatrical ending this morning so that you'd see it, Cap. And we, you know, we had just watched the producer's cut, and it seems as if that entire sequence, that third act, is to sort of um, ground the cult a little bit more. So it's not it's less the serpent and the rainbow and more just kind of like a bunch of really corrupt doctors or weirdos that are in, in a hospital. Because yeah. of that scene and, and that's fine. Like, Yo, it's not Halloween anymore. You can take that off. Exactly. You know, like, and that's that line is so direct. Yeah. And and like but the problem with that is that so I imagine that there's just maybe they're just going back to work or something like that, and then he happens to go in there and do something. But then there's Steven that's there. In the room, so it's it's. I really do think it's literally this sequence right here where everything like truly goes out of whack. Because then you see like the baby fetus that's in the the thing. So then it's like, wait, is this alien resurrection now? Like, are you like testing multiple babies to see if you can pass the curse on to someone else? The it's weird. The producers cut. Although I I do I don't think that ending has any kind of momentum. The producers cut because no. it's a lot of stopping and explaining no, yeah. rituals and yeah. Tommy Tommy defeats him with these rune stones. So I don't think it works cinematically. However, the the advantage that the producers cut has that the theatrical cut does not is it makes all the thorn stuff pretty clear. The because they so the idea is that they're going to pass the mark of thorn on to Danny who will then kill his mom. And so they have like a new, you know, a new Michael Myers that they can grow and control. And that at the same time, they're going to have Michael Myers kill the baby. So the curse will leave him and he essentially dies. So that's just like, so the whole thing is like they're passing on to new, new generation. Now, you know, whether you, someone likes that or finds it far fetched, that's debatable, but it's at least very clear in the producer's cut. But yeah, the theatrical cut, you had to fill in a lot of those gaps yourself and they don't really, they don't really make it clear in the in the theatrical cut why Danny is hearing voices and what his purpose is and no. all this. It just gets very muddy. Well, it, it's all muddy, yeah, because it's like you. All right, so you want the baby, but then you also want Danny, and so that that, that yeah, none of that ever really made any sense whatsoever with, with with regards to like where they're going with this. And then on top of that, you they doubled down on the stupidity by them, and it's literally one cut that they probably saw like, oh, they go through a door here let's let's shoot here because honestly like once they get past that whole surgery sequence you're like okay well i guess we can kind of assume what's going to go on there but then they doubled down on the stupidity by having this this like sequence where they're they're in a room that literally looks like something from like muddy Morphin power rangers with like these huge green tubes and this adrenaline that for some reason tommy's like or whatever the syringes that tommy just grabs and immediately Plunges into Myers, not even knowing what it is, and we don't even know. Which means we don't know. Bleed green goo. Which bleed green goo for no reason, and then, but then Danny's still being sought after, and it's just, it it was so made for shock effect and writing it off, like to just keep it going. It it just, it's that one scene, the set dressing and everything about it is 
sci-fi. It's yes. a sci-fi scene yeah. in Halloween. And it should be noted, the re- another reason I think it looks so bad is because even for the reshoots, a, n- a new DP. Yeah. I think Billy Ray DP'd the rest of it. But um, yeah, so it, it doesn't even look, it doesn't even match no. the rest of the film. Yeah. Not tonally, but even the look of it doesn't even match the rest of the film. You know what it so, does match, uh, though? There's a lot of iconography to, I've mentioned this franchise before, The Terminator. When literally Tommy grabs a gun and throws it to the bar and shoots Myers, like almost similar to how the T-800 shoots oh, the T-1000 yeah. Yeah. through the bars. It's literally the same type of shot. And then... Also, what is uh, Kyle Reese uh, beat up uh, the Terminator with in the first one? Like a pipe. And oh, he's just yeah. bludgeoning him that. It just seems like to, to mention the sci-fi angle, it, it is true. It, the whole, that whole final act, once they get Kara out, because I actually really love where Kara is compared to where she is in the producer's cut and how Tommy gets it out. And I actually think Paul Rudd delivered, we'll talk about Paul Rudd in a second, but I actually think he delivers a, a, a much stronger performance in the theatrical mm-hmm. reshoots than he does in whatever the producer's cut is. But that section is all sci-fi. The minute they, they leave that, that surgery sequence or whatever. Yeah, like, I, no, I agree. I yeah. wish that, that um, for, like I was saying before, I still think there's a happy middle ground between the cuts. Yeah. I wish what they would do is keep all of the explanations of the Mark of Thorn and, and, the, and you know, what, they're, what exactly they're doing in this ritual, but then combine it with the escape stuff that they – just so, so there's a mm-hmm. little bit more of like yeah. you know, scariness and an action sequence. And look, I, I don't think that escape sequence is perfect in the theatrical cut, but it feels at least more like a riveting ending than the producer's cut. So I think you could combine both of those things and, and have something that's a little bit more satisfying. You know, I'm a big fan of a big star, the band. And I've said it at least six other times in this podcast, but my favorite song is probably September Girls. The only reason she babysits is to have a place to... shit. I have a place for that. I forgot my chemistry book. So who cares? I always forget my chemistry book and my math book and my English book. Not a lot of heroines in this. Uh, You have a few... I've got got six people of note. Oh, six people. Here we go. I'll break it down. You can break it down. off with... Kara Strode, played yeah. by Marianne Hagen. Actually, I, I take that back. There are actually a lot yeah, of heroines yeah, in this. Yeah. I, feel, I think, uh, again, when you're comparing this to the fifth movie, oh, the yeah. fact that you want at least one character to actually live is pretty incredible. Yeah. And, I mean, you want most of these protagonists to live, right? I, I think she's actually Love her. pretty good in this. Yeah, she's, she's a great model. Very, very naturalistic, yeah. Not, she's not like a screen queen. I mean, that is a compliment. You know, yeah. she's just she seems very just kind of grounded, and even even just the look she has, it's very similar to. I feel like Jamie Lee Curtis. You know, they're not trying yeah. to make her some like horror babe or something like that. Well, she's she's a good she's a good medium between the Laurie Strode we get in 1978 and the Laurie Strode we get in 1998 because she's yeah. got a lot of edge to her. Uh, she's clearly had some struggles with mm-hmm. her own child, uh, similar to Laurie Strode slash Carrie Tate in the following movie that we're going to be discussing. Uh, and, you know, all those scenes that they have of her walking around, especially in the producer's cut, you get that sense that like, oh, yeah, she is a Strode. Like, you know. And Farron said that that is what he was going through, going forward, not only in the script, but in the movie. Yeah. There's a lot of th- there was a lot of pacing yeah. that was changed for the theatrical cut. You know, you originally just see her walking around town much like Laurie Stroh at the beginning of Halloween, mm-hmm. observing people who are happy in relationships. She isn't able to have that for herself. Yeah. Again, all that was cut out for the MTV. Which sucks because like, there's a great sequence where she's just wandering around the college in the producer's mm-hmm. cut that I love so much. And you really do get to be with her a little bit more. However, I, do, I thought like Marion Hagen is, is awesome in this movie. Like, yeah. I mean, the way that she 
really sells the sort of pain sometimes. And one of the most tense sequences that I can recall in any of the sequels is that whole stairwell sequence. It's just very, I guess, it's like kind of quasi Hitchcock in a way, but just that the, when Myers just said that Liz laying there at the bottom, yeah. and it's actually a sequence I feel like Scream Two rips off, but and they have to like kind of walk over him to get out to the house, like yeah. the way the, the way that she sells her fear for her own child and then all for also for herself. I, I think it's great. Well, you yeah, know? you buy the fear. Yeah, it's not over the top in any way, at least from her. There's other elements of this movie that are much much more over the top. Well, even her incredulity, like or her like sort of like the she like the way she like she's like, are you insane? Like when she's talking to Tommy, is just so believable. Like, well, it, and she and it's a hard line to walk because you could it could be an annoying character because we all know and believe Tommy and but we are actually pretty much on board with her reactions to them because yeah. that's how I would have reacted if totally. I didn't know any of this stuff. You know what I mean? It's not like so, like terrible. It's not like mean and mean spirited. I guess it's just like real. So yeah. when she does come around. And finally, uh, we're we're, we're still with her. Yeah. And when you compare it again, the next year we've got Scream and then I know we did last summer and it's on like it's a brand new genre. But there's no real forced love relationship between her and Tommy at all. Which is so important. I mean, because like you, you said, she's very grounded. Everything about her character and her relationship with the other characters, even as the the plot of the film spirals into being completely insane. (laughs) She is a grounded, realistic human being dealing with remarkable circumstances. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, even, like, Tommy, is, the first time you fucking see Tommy, he's he's surveilling the Myers house, but he's also peeping on her. Yep. Yeah. And, like, she should treat him like a scumbag, and she does. Maybe yeah. she, like, yeah. sees it his way a little too quickly, but even still, it's it's well done. Yeah, it is funny when you mention the, the absence of a love affair be- between them, because, like, in a weird way, I remember them being there being one, but there really isn't. Yeah, and I think no. that is just because they have that that good chemistry on screen. Um, she she hasn't done much else after no. this. Has, no, she, yeah. I I figure she would have been, if not and my, a genre queen or a scream queen. I, I feel like I would have seen her like on an X Files episode four years later. Well, sex, and, sex monster uh, Harvey Weinstein or the Weinstein's had some uh, some poor yeah, things to say to her. Actually, that, that's oh, what I was wow. Gonna, wow. Oh yeah, you t- tell tell it, Dan. Well, yeah, I don't, I think they, well, cause they didn't, they didn't like, or I don't know if it was, it was Bob or Harvey or both of them, but yeah, they didn't like that she wasn't, you know, this kind of, I guess, traditional sex pot or whatever you want to call it. And they wanted someone, um, <sighs> yeah, who had more of like that kind of look and they actually told her that. And I don't, I don't, I can't remember if she has any stories of them like abusing her, harassing her or anything, but I do think she like was, it sounds like maybe she was a little dispirited from it, you know, yeah. just from hearing that kind of shit said to her. So yeah. Well, I, I will say this. You know, the I think that she's she's very indicative of just the casting as a whole. And the thing that I really think actually sells this film well is just how natural and realistic this cast is. And maybe that's just indicative of Joe Chappelle, who would go on to do The Wire, which is very natural and gritty style uh, filmmaking uh, that really changed the game for television. I mean, you're going to hear millions of people for the rest of your life, talk about how it's the greatest show of all time and they'll be right. But, uh, you know, what's, what I, what I really do think, I mean, like, you, you know, like, uh, like even like, um, Bradford English is John Stratton. Like he's so believable as the dickhead father. We'll talk about him soon, but like Marion Hagen, there is like, I believe that she's a single mom and she's struggling. Yeah. Like, I don't think for a second that she's just some person that they pulled off of Hollywood. And even like the little things like, you know, when it's like she gets the, the whole confrontation with uh, John at the, the breakfast table, 
And then afterwards, when she's just like kind of like nursing her wound with her with her nose and like looking over at Tommy, there's just such a naturalism to the way she interacts with her environment that a lot of the cast members kind of do as well, which makes me think that like, you know, why the Weinsteins probably wanted some like hot, you know, uh, for them, uh, a hot piece of ass, which is awful. Uh, that you know, they, they, that's what they probably looked at it as. I would say that this is this was probably Joe's territory, where he was like, "No, we need to have a fucking believable Midwestern family." And if we're starting with her, I think she's a really good in, indication for that. You know, it's, I, I would also say we can talk about it now since we're talking about the cast is of all the Halloween Michael Myers centric ones, at least this is the most adult. Yes. Because there are really only two teens in this entire movie, mm-hmm. right? Well, besides Beth, Jamie. You have Beth and Tim. I think Beth and Tim Beth and that's Tim. it. Yeah. And, and yeah. the rest of her, just, some of them are quite old. Mm-hmm. Like half the cast are in their 50s or 60s or yeah. 80s. For that Which matter. I like. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to Carpenter's but again, way. That, that, once again, that's, that style of movie making is gone a year later. You're not, yeah. How many old people are in Scream? Yeah. You know, how many old people are in I Know What You Did Last Summer? You know. Well, even think about the dialogue. Like the dialogue here is, you know, with the exception of the stupid pop culture references that you'll mention. Hold on to it. I know. But (laughs) there there is uh, the like just the dialogue at the table Mm. and, you know, the way that the interactions. I just keep going back to that breakfast table because I think we mentioned this in four. But with four with the Carruthers household is really kind of the first time we actually got a sense of family because, you know, one and two is just so like insular. And I guess you get to see like the dad say goodbye to Lori in Halloween one. But that's really all you get in terms of like any sort of like parental guidance there. But this you see like a real broken home that I think is adds a little bit more real world quality to Halloween that. Uh, the original Halloween might have had by showing the small town neighborhoods that felt palpable. I feel like this sort of lifestyle in this household feels like real and tangible as well, which goes into what you were saying before, where you actually kind of do care about the characters. Like, even mm-hmm. though John is a scumbag, I still kind of like am afraid for him when he comes home that night, really? you know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> no, he's an <laughs> asshole, but like, I, I am kind of like, I, I get the terror of like, of, of uh, like, I, you know, it's just, he's still like the provider for this household. So it's like, it is kind of sca- like, terrifying too. I, I feel for Deborah. I feel for even Tim. Like, all of them, they have like some sort of, they have some sort of soul to them that feels real, whereas characters in four and five don't necessarily have. Like, well, four and five, they all seem like characters from like fucking MTV movie, like generation type things. And I well, love it, Sasha it, Jensen, but this is, th- th- those characters would not fit in this movie, you know? Yeah. Well, th- with this thing, like, because we haven't, it, you know, if they introduce older characters in the other films, they're they're only in it for like a heartbeat. Yeah. You know, and or they're like the sheriff or something. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And so when you have the fact that we actually stick with this entire family and see what happens to the mother and father, it it's kind of it's cool. I mean, yeah. and you've connected with them already from this opening scene, and then you actually get more of them, which is nice because you know, like Halloween four, that they you do spend time with the parents there for a minute, and but then they just leave. You know, so it's kind of satisfying to see them. Uh, get what's coming I to mean, them. Just compare that <laughs> breakfast scene to the breakfast scene in, in Rob Zombie's it? Halloween. <laughs> I know. It's Halloween. just night and day in terms of <laughs> it really is. quality. And... But that's a dysfunctional family and, we, and grounded. Oh, yeah. and we, 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 you Fuck know, a bagel right? with my finger and, and making, you know, <laughs> whatever. I save that one for our... It's so wait. awful. We, to be fair, though, we have a lot of listeners who really love those Rob Zombie movies. So I'm yeah, curious. A lot of disappointed listeners when they get to that episode. Well, we really need to talk about 
is something I know Cap probably wants to talk about too, and that is Jamie Lloyd, not played by Daniel Harris, but by J.C. Brandy. Jamie is back. She's been gone for six years, and we find her about to give birth at the beginning of the film. And J.C. Brandy is great in this. Yeah. Like, every moment she's on screen is really compelling. And what I love the most about the producer's cut is, like, even though, like, Jamie gets killed, like, in in the actual theatrical cut, you're like, what are you doing? Like, this is, I remember Mike and I, I feel like we felt, like, growing up the same way about, like, Newt dying in Alien 3. You killed Jamie. Why'd you do that? Yeah. Like, um, but her death had more resonance and was so much more impactful in the producer's cut, where... After, like, the confrontation in the barn, she gets stabbed. But by the time the police find her in the morning, she's still clinging to life and has moments in the hospital with Dr. Loomis. And and then is the way she dies, which is, is pathetic and sad but fits the whole of the narrative, is she's just assassinated. Like, they just the – man the man in black comes and blows her brains out in the hospital. And – Daniel Harris was supposed to play yeah. this role. I, I mean, Daniel oh, Harris talks about how she was it's asked awful. and everything was going to happen. Money entered the fray. You can blame everybody. She, she, she managed to emancipate herself because yeah. they were worried about labor laws because she was only 17 years old mm-hmm. by the time of this filming. And they were like, well, no, we kind of want an adult so that we don't have to worry about the hours. So she literally spent like three or $4,000 in legal fees oh to emancipate God. herself. I, I know any of this. This is incredible. Yeah, I watched. She has a, they have, there's like a short little documentary about her um, on the, the, the Blu-ray. And she talks about this. And they screwed her over royally. And it was only Paul Freeman and... Um, Daniel Ferrance, who kept saying, "Like, look, we're in your corner. We're trying. We're going to try to make this happen." And ultimately, she, when she, she finally gets in. She gets the role. She gets the script, and she's like, "Wait a second, what is this? What is going on?" Because she hadn't seen the script before, and she's like, "Why am I being impregnated? Like, why is this happening? Where I'm like being killed off in like the opening scene?" And all right, well, if you're doing this, I'd like to get a little bit more money so I can at least recoup all the stuff that I've done to get into this movie. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't even do that. And they're like, no, you're a minor role. And it's like, well, yeah. I did two movies for you and all this. And so she, ultimately she had to walk. But like she also then in that same interview stresses that she is friends with J.C. Brandy. And she felt awful that like over the years, everyone's kind of given shit to J.C. Brandy for taking this role. when it really wasn't her fault. And it's actually the wine, the specifically the Weinsteins that yeah, I always wonder over. about that. Do people not know how Hollywood works? I know. Think yeah. These actors are I, well, like knocking don't. people out and walking no. into casting yeah. rooms. I mean, it's ridiculous. They have yeah. no idea. How, no one has any idea how Hollywood works. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's, where, that's where we come in to, to bridge the gap. <laughs> Finally, <laughs> the inside scoop about yeah. Hollywood hitmakers. But, but like, though, though I would have liked to have seen like, okay, so let me just get something straight. Like women are not walking wombs and in like the whole baby thing, this was a great performance under the circumstance yes. of this script. Yeah. I want to be clear about that. Because, like, this is a hard <laughs> experience that this woman has gone through. She's been imprisoned by cultists and impregnated who knows how many times, actually, yeah. Yeah. by Michael Myers, depending on which version of this film you see. And and is then, like, as soon as she successfully has this gorgeous cinema-ready incest baby... Then she's like, my baby, I need my baby. And not like, ugh, like seed of, of like all this awfulness that's happened to me, physical manifestation of all the evil. Like, yeah. Yes? Yeah. So when I, when I first watched this movie and maybe it's just because it's the theatrical cut, it's unclear. I never thought any of that. I always thought that she had gotten pregnant regularly from someone. Oh, she a lived friend, a life out that, there. She lived and a life, then they and got then her. they got her. 
and that would be fucking tragic. She you just happened to be pregnant, and they were like, oh, uh, you know, like delivering the baby, and then you know maybe taking the baby from her or whatever. But that's why she's so connected with the baby and trying to get away and all this stuff. And so when the baby stuff starts happening at the end of the movie, that's the only time where I was like, oh, did did they? do something to the baby or was or you know like are they well because when even says something about there's a new generation of you know children or whatever it is like like you you know that maybe they're trying to like you know start this new generation of evil kids or something i, I don't know it's, it's very halloween three well but i it's just bizarre but i never i never thought that at the beginning so i i actually was genuinely on board with her performance i i mean she it, it's like it's it's like at a hundred percent the entire time oh yeah but wow. that worked for me because I mean, you know, you're you're on the run from Michael, and and this at this point in your life, and this has happened so many times, and now you're trying to protect a child, and there's literally no one for her. The stakes, the stakes like, are really there because you yeah. really are like, oh god, are they gonna like? Is she gonna get away? Like, what's gonna happen? Yeah. So the only thing know. is, I, I remember I, I early on in the film that they do say that she also went missing in 1989, so that's why I always felt that she was kidnapped that night. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because okay. there's a clipping. I, I, yeah. I can't remember in the in the producer's cut. They show her kind of see Michael Myers get taken. She does. I think, yeah. I think she they gets do. abducted too, though. It's tough. It's tough because they obviously didn't have a young. In the producer's cut, they do. I'm saying the theatrical cut, you do not see. There, the there I go. Yeah, oh, yeah. by the way, good news. Daniel Ferris says that because of that flashback sequence, that Daniel Harris does get residuals. That's great for any Blu-ray sales of Halloween. That's producer's cut. Wonderful. A couple other things. I think I can forgive the movie more for Jamie's early death. Because it's not Daniel Harris. Yeah. I think it would have made much more of an impact if it was Daniel Harris in mm-hmm. a negative way. Oh, on that farm equipment? Absolutely. Because yeah. Yeah. I think about um, Kristen from Nightmare on Elm Street. Yes. If Patricia Arquette had reprised her role in the fourth one. And they threw her in and the... They, f- and they threw her into the you know the burner after like 20 minutes. I would have been like, what are you doing this for? Yeah. But the fact that you were, you're replacing her, it's some other actress. It's it, whatever you want to do. Yeah. However, I do want to say... Daniel Farrens in another draft has mm-hmm. um, Jamie attacked in the barn. She gets stabbed. Michael leaves. She ends up at the hospital, which we all see in the producer's cut. But the finale has her emerging. Yeah. I, oh, my God. He says that the man in black goes in there to shoot her, much like in Halloween 2 when Michael Myers goes into the hospital room and stabs yeah. the pillows, but um, Lori's not there. He goes, shoots. Jamie's gone. And then there's a big confrontation at the end between Jamie, um, Tommy, and Michael Myers. Which would have been great. Which would have been great. I like, I like that a lot better. Well, because also with the producer's cut, like I, I agree with what Cap's saying in that, oh, it's it's better, you know, because of the legacy of that character, it's better to have her around for a little bit. But still, I mean, she's pretty much around in the hospital bed. We get, we get the negative bonus of the farm scene not being as scary because she just gets kind of like stabbed randomly and left. And then she just gets shot in bed. And so, so to me, it, it does still feel kind of like cruel and pointless, you know, like I feel like if you're going to keep her around, keep her around for a reason. Yeah. Um, and I feel like if she had been sort of the, like saving the day in the end, that would have been fantastic. Well, that's an example of the ending because even again, once I keep name checking Daniel Ferrance, but look, it was a great, it was a great Daniel commentary. Ferenc. Even watching the finale of that producer's cut, he acknowledges that it's not perfect and that there needed to be changes made. Absolutely. And I think that one of the changes you could have made was you just eliminate that shot of her being shot in the head yeah. and have her wake up and, and show up for, what, a, a couple days worth of filming? I know. That would have been terrific. And you have JC. She could do it. Good actress. By the way, British. She came all the way 
to Utah. To film, <laughs> now, to I want to point out, we talked about the inconsistencies of this baby plot. We'll get to that later. Mm. But I, I've there's a, a script I've taken a peek at. I have not read all of it. But if you search for the script online, you can find things. And there is an aspect to the Danny, Stephen, Child, Thorn, what the fuck is happening here thing that actually would make a lot of sense. And I don't know, think it was ever filmed. But it ties it all together. Mm. Yeah, there, I have multiple endings that we're going to get to that I wonder if there one of these is in there that, that ties to that. This is exciting because yeah. I don't know about these multiple endings. Yeah, yeah I'm I mean, forward to that later on. Also, you know, J.C. Brandy got a lot of dings for appearing to be a lot older than Daniel Harris. Mm-hmm. Only a year and a half older. Yeah, that's crazy. I think people were just so used to seeing little Daniel Harris running around yeah. in Revenge of Michael Myers, not realizing that she was, you know, 17 yeah. when Curse of Michael Myers came out. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's it is still a shame that you couldn't get Daniel Harris. It's still one of the the. I remember as a kid just being destroyed by it, and at the time you don't really knew. I mean, you didn't really know anything that was going on with behind the scenes stuff because the internet was so budding. But it's still, I do wish that they they could have gotten her. Uh, at least, especially if they're going to go for the longer ending, because that would have just been so much more impactful. And as a trilogy of these movies, it would have been really cool to see. Uh, although I again, it, you know, with Donald Pleasance dying, I think that they kind of panicked in the end, also. So I don't even think they even thought about the idea of bringing Jamie back at that point. It was just like, all right, how the hell do we just wrap this up as soon exactly. as possible? I guess, you, know? you know, he died, I think, eight months before yeah. the movie even came out, and yeah. obviously he was gone yeah. by reshoots. So but we'll talk about. So we got we got a couple we got on. a few other women, uh, so a few other September girls uh, to go over. Let's. Uh, um, who you want to go next? Let's talk about Beth. Briefly, <laughs> yeah. Beth is she's uh, probably the most uh, indis- like probably most disposable character. I don't, yeah, I don't like yeah. like her for that reason. She's it's, not important. It, it, at least not annoying like Tina or something. But yeah, I mean, fun she, fact: she's a strong, a strong man. It's, it's it's this is actually kind of funny. So we we talked about how Brother Kane is very similar to Allison Chains. Let's just say that uh, Mariah O'Brien, who uh, appears as Beth, she's got a connection to Allison Chains. She appeared and was photographed for the cover of 1992's Dirt. That's why she looks so familiar. Mm-hmm. Well, there wow. you have it. Wait, wait. <laughs> she's she's the girl, like the superimposed girl, lying in the dirt. Yeah, um, is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah. that's super interesting. So, interesting. Pretty awesome. Interesting. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, you know, maybe they saw her and they were like, "Hey, we got to get Brother Kane." Jerry Cantrell was like, "Listen, uh, I had this girl on the cover of Dirt. You gotta check it out." <laughs> yeah. Fun, fun fact: uh, Dirt was released on September 29th, 1992, and Halloween Six also came out on September 29th. Uh, wow. Yeah, which also happens to be my wife's birthday. Uh, Ka is a wheel. As, hey, as hey speaking, of, speaking of marriage, do you know who uh, Mariah O'Brien was married to? Who? Giovanni Ribisi from 1997 to 2001. Wow. So, yeah, well, congratulations to the then happy couple. Yeah, so you know, two years after Halloween 6 came out, Giovanni saw her and was like, hey, I really loved you as Beth and I want yeah. to marry you. Dan, I think you said the best. A fairly disposable character. Yeah. But – I would say she's still infinitely more likable than like the five people who get killed in Halloween Five. Absolutely, right? Oh, yeah, she's an she, activist. She, the performance is good. Yeah, the performance is good. Like that, you know, it's natural. She doesn't feel over the top or annoying or anything. And and you know, look, I think any horror movie, you do need a couple people who are there just to be like fodder for the the main villain. You know, that's just right. how, it, how you call well, horror movies. It, and it's interesting because this character could have easily just been a like a total joke or or an extreme like the really annoying girl that we want to see get killed. Mm-hmm. But everybody's pretty down to earth in this, and you know, she's not 
like you know i don't know she's just she is disposable but i kind of appreciated the fact that she wasn't like just like some stereotypical character mm-hmm. that we're waiting to see like we actually kind of care about tim and and this girl and then yeah, the cuts sudden... and, and the flashes do not match the tone of the no. character portrayals. Right. a fun fact about her death actually uh, she is killed while on the phone with Kara. yeah that scene is a nod to director Fred Walton, who directed the very famous uh, When a Stranger Calls starring Carol King. Interesting. Oh. He was supposed to direct Halloween 6. Oh, wow. And that scene was supposed to be a nod to him, and so, and so, which would have been a fun little sequence yeah, to shoot. Which, and it kind of feels like an allusion to the whole Linda thing, too, from the first one. Yeah. You know, so it's, it, it's kind of a great little parallel. Uh, You're seeing it happen, and we'll compare the death sequences. In the theatrical version, of course, it goes to this weird slow-mo, fast-cut, yeah. slow-mo, fast-cut Whereas in the producer's cut, you see a couple stabs and that's it, mm-hmm. which is much more believable because yeah. at that point, Kara starts running. Another example of the MTV occasion of that theatrical cut <laughs> as opposed to the... Yeah. I don't want to say subtle because, again, this does end with Tommy Doyle running around in a cult robe, but <laughs> it's still a more subtle yeah. uh, version, I guess. Well, Revolver magazine uh, produced this great little article uh, in 2011 called Alex and Chains Dirt, the story behind the cover art where they have a ton of behind-the-scenes photography from this entire shoot and mm. also showcase that, in fact, Miss O'Brien was on the cover of Spinal Tap's Bitch School single. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> awesome. I she, love I love O'Brien. I love, I love Spinal Tap, too. I, I, did anyone get like kind of like a Wiccan vibe for, from Beth? You know what I got? I got a... I think she's part of the, the craft. That. I was thinking the craft. I literally just Googled it to see if it was the same year. Was it, it, was, same it was 96. It, it was... 90, oh, so maybe well, the craft. Yeah. I think it helps because she's when she dresses up as, you know, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, that yeah. probably... I think it's that is very, true. Kind of like like esque you know. Yeah. Look. Well, yeah. I think it's time to move on to somebody who I believe has showcased in the best sequence of the film. Mm-hmm. And that's Deborah Strode. Love Deborah played Strode. Played by mm. Academy Award nominee Kim Darby. She's the little great. girl in the original True Grit with John Wayne. Mm-hmm. She was also oh, that's yeah. Crazy. She was also the I have a little list here. The professor with a secret from Teen Wolf Two. Mm. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. She's right. also a werewolf, and she's also in uh, Better Off Dead. Uh, she's oh, the she's mom. the mother in Better mm-hmm. Off Dead, and yeah. she is the death row inmate in one of the more underrated X Files episodes, Sight uh, Unzeit. Ah, oh, love that. Which is the precursor to Closure. Uh, great performance in that as well. She is, yeah, Deborah Strode, the mother of, mm-hmm. of Kara Strode. And fun fact here, Deborah Strode and John Strode, named after Deborah Hill and John Carpenter, because oh, Dan Farron's ah, felt that they were the, uh, mother, the mother and father of the franchise. Right. That's great. Cool not, That's great. He and said the, he wanted to make it clear he nothing that John Carpenter. <laughs> he wanted to make it clear he nothing that John Carpenter was a, a monster like John. Yeah, Strode. I was going to say <laughs> it was just a fun little nod there. Well, but, maybe that's why I felt bad for him when he's wandering around looking for his dinner. Well, I got to say, I really, I do love her performance in this movie. Mm-hmm. I really like. That scene when she's on the phone with John, she's like, yeah. "You knew," and 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 talking to him about about being the Myers house, it's so good. Yeah. It has no business being that good, yeah. you know. Like, but it's a <laughs> gripping, it's a gripping moment. It's and like you Oscar really care. Clip. <laughs> you really like her because she all of a sudden you're like, "Oh man, she knows," and she, you know. And then and then we put her in immediate peril. So it's like just as we start to really like this character and who's standing up for herself. Well, because uh, because Michael like her, up. like like her daughter Kara, like she's very inquisitive and very intuitive. Like the minute that she suspects that something's wrong, she starts realizing like like the axe thing is a big deal. Like I mean, most characters in that sequence probably would just be like, eh, whatever, you know. 
and it would be you, the viewer, that would notice the axe is gone. Mm-hmm. But she notices it's gone, yeah. and she also starts peering around her her back, like when she's she feels that there's someone there when she's initially talking to John, and then or is it is it she's talking to Doctor well, Loomis? No, she's talking, Michael's there, and then she turns and doesn't, and he's not. Yeah, yeah and the, yeah, oh, yeah, the, the second like, call yeah, is yeah. when the when the man in black calls or something yeah, like that. Right, yeah. Right. So I I mean yeah I mean in terms of like. I feel most bad for her actually with with her death, and it's really brutal too. Because it's a, it's a pathetic death, if you want. Yeah. Do you know what I mean by that? Because she's stumbling around, her glasses have fallen off. She's just reaching up desperately for the sheets. Yeah. And there's that incredible shot, that POV shot of him just standing there behind mm-hmm. the sheet with the axe. Which was well, another great gif from the '90s as well. That was like one of the first yeah. Michael Myers gifs I've ever I ever saw. Like if you went to the site, you'd see it <laughs> like coming down. Also, too with Deborah, I mean, it, it, she's kind of a tragic character in that. It, she dies right at the moment she finally decides to defy her husband yeah. and, do what's right, and do what's right for her kids. Like she's packing her suitcase. She's like, fuck it. I'm going with her without you. I, I, I care more about my kids than you. And then she gets off straight away. And that, that to me just adds some, some dramatic irony to it. That, that is really kind of heartbreaking. And then like you guys said too, just the, the overall scariness of the, and slow burn of the sequence as well. The one thing that sucks about her death is the way that her death is revealed to the other characters. Yeah. And that is that she inexplicably pops out of the attic crawl space in the middle of, like, Kara yeah. leaving the house. Another classic horror movie trope of people falling out of doors. And, yeah. and it's super weird, too, because, like, the husband goes downstairs, he checks the washing machine that's malfunctioning, it's full of bloody sheets. Crazy. Yeah. But then Michael put a bloody... That would mean imply that Michael put a bloody sheet in the washing machine... And it was like, you know, I wanted to shove the body in here because that would be funny, but <laughs> I, where, where the fuck am I going to put this thing? Well, I think, <laughs> I think he steps. wrapped her in the sheets, took her up into the attic, and mm-hmm. then was like, all these bloody sheets, was like, oh, I got to wash these. <laughs> and I went downstairs and, uh, you know, in true Michael fashion, just started doing some laundry. And he was probably like, he's like, tied. He, he's like, he's like, this is my house and I keep a clean house. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where's the sensitive skin? So, yeah. We don't we don't have a lot of time with Deborah Strode, but again, I think it's a pretty effective sequence. She does mention uh, John's brother. You know the whole like you you know he couldn't sell the house, yeah, yeah. and so that you get that connective tissue to uh, Laurie's father. But and I like Donald like, Strode. Is it Donald Strode or something like that? I think or, it is Donald yeah. Strode. And yeah. uh, is that not the Donald Pleasance? Uh, <laughs> yeah, who's also in the movie? I, I I do I do like that because it's we get some a little exposition, but it it makes sense because she's finding out and kind of calling him out on it, and it doesn't feel forced. Well, let's move on to the character of it's, Nurse Mary. It's it's actually Morgan and Pamela Strode. Okay, I, there you go. Dan, I just want to make Morgan sure that. Yeah, yeah. yeah just um, wanna, Nurse yeah. Mary, played by Susan Swift. You know, I consider myself a horror movie connoisseur, but I had not realized who this actress was. And why she was cast in this? The nurse, oh, the nurse in the beginning. Who the gets nurse killed. that saves Jamie and the baby and, and gets them out. What's the story? She was Audrey Rose in that really? horror movie Audrey Rose with Anthony Hopkins from the seventies. I did not know that. And she was deliberately cast in this as a nod to uh, her role in that. How about that? Because she's not really she hasn't acted in a lot, I guess, since then. Yeah, well, I, it it shows. Yeah, she's, <laughs> she's frantic in this. I guess I, you could say. I mean, there's a scene where she's like, so she she get. Here's here's my backstory for this character. So she's okay. she's been an accomplice to this massive conspiracy, and she's like I guess like cult adjacent or something. They got her, they brought her in there, but she had some serious misgivings and had her own little adventure getting the, this special child, like somehow managing to sequester away the young baby. And 
and then be like, all right, here we go. Not only do I have this baby for you, but I've got this really dope, like, like strap so you can just swaddle this baby quite easily and let's go come on and she's so frantic and so crazy and then they finally get to the stairs and she's like her head's bobbing around she's so exhausted or whatever and then she runs away and she hears a noise and she's like jamie like mm. what like no it's fucking michael myers come on lady. You've, been, you've been a part of this for like 20 years by now come on you know who it is do you guys think that because she they do hear this kind of um this like clanging door or whatever and they seem to know that something's coming so is the idea that thorn is just kind of keeping michael locked away and then they he i don't know where where does michael myers live i guess is what i'm wondering in this in smith's grove i think the less we know the better i I think um, unless he was just walking around having a late night snack maybe well (laughs) i think he has i I think he definitely (sighs) has a curfew and shows back up at, at at you know, at night, but I think during yeah. the day he probably is like hanging out at that that old cave where he lived with that man for <laughs> in part five, yeah. and then and then he was like, oh, it's it's dusk, I've got to get back, and well, then he realized and, Jamie's on the loose. So yeah, in the producer's cut, we actually see the burglar bars open and Michael Myers' uh, feet like going after them before we actually see him come out of the shadows. So yeah, I guess it's implied that he's he's kept somewhere separate from everyone else. Well. The good news about Susan Swift and you mean, uh, uh, yeah, yes, oh, sorry, it is Susan y- Swift. Yeah, Susan Swift is that you know she didn't you know continue acting too much, but she is now an author, lawyer, and one conservative mother. Hashtag two A. Hashtag profile. Uh, hashtag Catholic. Hashtag MAGA. Oh well, God bless her. Yeah, fucking so. heart. <laughs> um, I I don't feel bad about anything I said about her shitty fucking acting performance. <laughs> well, yeah. I'm gonna say, uh, you know, she she got uh, a spike through the head, and we can leave it at that. Well, anyway, again, um, we're not we don't judge anybody. We don't bring politics into not judging all. anything at all. Oh, Lord no. Uh, there is one other woman, one other September girl, Mrs. Blankenship. Oh yeah, played by Janice Nickram. Terrific. Mm-hmm. She's she really comes in there. Creepy. Hits a grand slam for her one major scene where she's got a lot of dialogue. Uh, Which is used heavily in the trailers. Yeah. To great yeah. effect. Yeah, I agree 100%. You think that she's going to be like a good guy? Oh, yeah. There's no mm-hmm. reason why you so would So when otherwise. she turns around and, and, and I believe has, has a knife in her hand, yep. that is truly like, it's, it's just like you, you think you're safe and yes. then the, the one person that you think is actually like totally not going to be that kind of character turns around and it's very like rosemary's baby it's yeah very scary yeah absolutely because it, it in you know, rosemary's baby you have that one neighbor that's like so so close to her and right all of and a sudden, i mean obviously in that you definitely know there's something up with them but, yeah yeah but it was just like it is a very it's a very scary reveal you, you know you think you're safe and then you just realize i mean everyone's in on this this is her first role what yes Really? Was she yes. like a Utah community theater actress? Or uh, she was born in Andover, Massachusetts, and died in Salt Lake City. So I imagine that she yeah, was. Yeah, she was probably yeah. a local actor. She That's went on great. to do Invasion of Privacy, SLC Punk, which was obviously oh. filmed in Salt Lake City, uh, in Everwood. She's in a couple other things, but yeah, I think the, the she's what's really great about her is that similar to a number of characters in this movie, from Terrence Wynn to obviously the Strode family that we just went over. She is also connective tissue, and we find out a lot of things about her when you know when she talks about like little Mikey Myers and goes oh, into yeah. the, her whole backstory about Michael. And you really that she's kind of like the tip off to finding out even more about who Michael Myers well, is. She's one of the most important characters in this entire series. Yeah, it's kind of crazy, you well, know. Farron says that he imagined that 
because the beginning of Halloween, obviously, you see him walking out from behind the tree across the street from mm-hmm. his house. That's supposed to be Miss Blankenship's house. Yeah. And Ferens imagines that it was something that she did with him that really set him off on his way. Now, which is also for people that like vagueness in their horror. And I don't need to know all that. But again, if you want to do connective tissue, congratulations. I kind of also like the fact that she was baby. She was his first babysitter, and it's kind of like this unconscious thing where he, I don't know, maybe he is like trying to kill all the babysitters because it's someone that did this to him. Yeah, but. That's thinking way too much about it. It's a little and Jason. <laughs> I also, I also agree with Justin, though. You know, I, I, I hate movies that have to go back and explain things. So by all means, we really shouldn't like this movie at all. But I think the most interesting thing about it, about this whole idea of Halloween Six, is that they honestly really tried to explain the Man in Black. I think that's what's so interesting yes. to me about this movie, not the fact that you know they, it's, it's almost like explaining everything and not make and making it not scary anymore. But it's just, it was such a mess, and to, to really go. We're going to try to make sense of this. I yeah. think that is just what's still, really interesting. I'll say that ad nauseum, but I respect the hell out of Daniel Ferens yep. and the Akkads because they easily could have said, you know what? It's been six years. There's no internet. Mm-hmm. Unless people are dire fans of these films, nobody's talking about these films in general public anymore. Let's just do our own brand new thing. Forget everything that came before. But there was a challenge. They mm-hmm. made their bed and now they're lying in it. And it obviously gets very complicated. Peter's out at the end, but... I, it drives me crazy when when these franchises now just three years later say, "All right, we'll just do another one." Yeah. Or now we yeah. to, we'll just keep moving on. Oh, yeah. no, we'll, we'll we'll explain that away. Yep. No, they really said this is our story, and we are going to tell the rest of the story. Yeah. I, and I applaud them for that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it bothers me. I mean, I've said this uh, both like online in articles and on this podcast. It really bothers me too. And half the time, it's the same people who were involved with the other ones, like Jamie yeah. Lee Curtis. And I love Jamie Lee Curtis, and I'm I'm so excited for this movie. But also, like you're already in a retconning, you know, it, it seems mm-hmm. like it's really irresponsible. And I, and I still think it is kind of insulting to like shit on H2O the way she has a little bit, you know, just by being like, Oh, well, I just kind of did that for the money. And like, yeah, well that's not what you said back in 1998. And yes. it, it, the whole thing just feels very cynical to me. And uh, as much as I'm excited about this new movie, it's the whole like idea that we can just not have any responsibility towards the stories we've already told just has always bugged me a little bit. I mean, even Halloween resurrection, <laughs> Paid homage or paid attention to Halloween H two O and that impossible ending. Yeah, yeah. look, Halloween Resurrection is an you know an unforgivable oh, sucks, abomination. Yeah. But they didn't just pretend like the end of Halloween H two O didn't happen. They tried to explain it away mm-hmm. in a way that uh, obviously sucked. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Miss Blankenship is also a reference to a character name from Halloween three, the season of the witch. So once again, is it really? Yeah, there's a character named Miss Blankenship in that. Oh, interesting. So, I, yeah. I think she's uh genuinely frightening in a lot of these, uh, a lot of the scenes in this movie. Like when she's just randomly walking, they have that one shot of her where she just walks down the hallway and she's just kind of like monotonously, like you kind of wonder, like, yeah, I guess in hindsight, you're like, Oh, maybe she's actually listening to them. The, yeah, the witch they're talking yeah. about in that room. But at the time when you just see her, it's just like, Oh man, what a creepy old lady. Um, that's just quiet. And, and and I and I in the producer's cut you actually see her as a cult cultist uh, when well, she's, she's like keep, watching yeah. what's going on and which is so well, creepy. It's kind of like she's basically keeping tabs on Tommy who's like yeah the one that's closest to figuring well, everything out. Yeah, yeah, the Mrs. Blankenship character is a very muted character early on, mm-hmm. very quiet to herself. Unlike some of the buds and bobs we're about to talk about, so let's move on to that next category. Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. Don't make me cry. I need your pie. I'm going to go out on a limb here. Hmm. 
this movie has my favorite buds and Bob or my favorite bud or Bob. And that is or Barry or Barry. Uh, that is Paul Rudd, Paul Stephen Rudd as Please. Tommy Doyle. Starring and introducing Stephen Rudd. That's Starring and introducing. Paul, Paul Stephen Rudd, excuse me. Well, um, I, I think I, I, he's so exceptional in this movie. Uh, even if he does this weird sort of like Shakespearean style delivery at points, uh, Michael Myers was twenty one. <laughs> but he's just—he's such a hero in a way that I don't think this series has had yet. He's almost well, like who's the character in um, Tommy Jarvis? Like he almost feels like a Tommy Jarvis from Friday Thirteenth. Yeah. Like he actually—I feel like oh my god, I didn't even think about that. Like he basically is the Tommy Jarvis, yeah, really. You're bringing Tom, you know, Tommy Doyle. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Well, I, I think going into the movie, just knowing that this was going to be this character, I was really excited. Yeah. that they were mm-hmm. mining some. You know, like you're always like where, and and, and we're still like where's Lindsay? You yeah, know, like yeah, uh, I would love to see her come back, but uh, but yeah, I, I was really all on board. And this is the very first thing that I ever saw Paul Rudd in. Ditto. And I was yeah. really excited, uh, especially just. I mean, after the film, I just, I still, I love that scene where he's trying to break into that room yep. and Michael comes in. And he just kind of has that weird, like, incredulous, <laughs> like, I, I like laugh. I mean, he doesn't know how to handle the, like yeah. the horror of it, and it's just. It's so fun, and uh, yeah, I, I, I dig Tommy. The first thing I saw him in too. So for, for the years to come, I was always very excited. I was it was always a situation where I was very happy for him because so I thought he was really good in this movie, and the movie obviously got dismissed, ult, you know, right away. Actually, right. So when I saw him pop up, for instance, in Romeo Clueless. and Juliet, or Romeo Object Juliet of My Affection, as, um, <laughs> I forgot yeah, the name of the Clueless. He's yeah, but Romeo yeah. and Juliet is in it for like two seconds. He's the, pr- he's yeah, the, the one prince. of the prince. Yeah, yeah, he's the prince. He's a bigger part in the play, but the movie's just dismissed. Uh-huh. And yeah, Clueless. And then Cider House Rules. I was like, oh, good. Paul Rudd's still getting work. Congratulations, Paul Rudd. This now movie he's a did. Star of Marvel movies. Yeah, this, did, this movie did instill that with me also as well. Yeah. Like, he, he was always the underdog that I rooted for. It was kind of like the same way I look at, like, with Jeremy Renner with National Lampoon's Senior Trip. These, like, kind of like fringe movies that give you these like you know future stars or whatever but at the time yeah you didn't even know like but anytime you did see him pop up he's just so likable and there's something there's something angelic and about him Uh, no i really do think so like i I do think he's just so much fun to watch and there's he's he's very cherubic well this one he is for sure but with this you know this move this role could have gone so bad Mm. because he he comes off like he could have been just as this weird creep like you know untrustworthy we've seen these type of roles uh you know before where you know they they they're like they could just come off as a know-it-all um that just just is kind of unlikable and what paul what paul rudd does is like he kind of toes the line between being creepy but also heroic so you kind of buy the sense that yeah he's been like sort of like emotionally fucking drain from from, he's like a real weird recluse but you kind of you you buy it and then when he's like the way that his lifestyle is you're kind of like oh man this is like it's it's kind of like what i what i hope they do with jamie lee curtis in the new one where they're able to like kind of sell this idea that like this obsession is is warranted and you you were really with him it's kind of like almost like what i wish they would have been able to do for um with jake gyllenhaal's character in zodiac like you know you you really do believe that like tommy has spent every fucking waking moment thinking about myers well and he's also he's not necessarily even the hero in this he does heroic things obviously Mm -hmm. but he's still very clumsy yeah and he's awkward as hell throughout the entire movie too I feel like you know. Again, if we were making this movie today, he w- he would have lost those attributes. Oh yeah, 
We've been like the cool badass guy. He's back in town. He's gonna yeah. help everybody save the day. Yeah, would have been played I, by somebody from like Supernatural or something like that. When you know, I like saw Jensen uh, or something like that. Yeah. When I saw Ant Man and Wasp at the Alamo Draft House before the movie, they showed uh, just like clips of old Paul Rudd things that he had worked on. Like he was in a, uh, I think before this, he was in a Super Nintendo commercial or something. Yeah, it's a famous one. And I, yeah. yeah, and and I kept waiting for them to show clips from Halloween Six because that seems like right in the Alamo's audience, you know, in the audience's wheelhouse. But they didn't. They didn't show anything from Halloween Six, and it was uh, a big bummer. Missed opportunity. Mm. It is a Mitchell. You know, it definitely is a missed opportunity because I, I I do think that this is kind of his. People don't well, yeah, remember I feel like Maybe this. when you were seeing at the Admiral Draft House, were they too busy getting your order while they were showing things? <laughs> <laughs> that too, yeah. They, uh, no, hey, I like I like the special menu for Ant Man. They had it; it was a tiny menu, and they give you a little magnifying glass. It was I thought it was very clever. I uh, oh, enjoyed boy. it. Well, he, he, I think he, it's just something like please pretend like Harry Knowles never came here. <laughs> well, he does. Uh, he does some really like kind of. There's a lot of nuances to his performance too, like. The way he he when he first sees Doctor Loomis in the hospital, there's this sort of in, you know incredulity to like his like he's like oh, like, oh my god like Doctor Loomis and you really yeah. buy it and then like even when he the way he's like so matter of fact about things like when there's just like you know who, who are you talking about and he's just like him and he like 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 points over to Myers and it's just there's something I feel like. I feel like Daniel Farrens wrote Tommy as himself. Like, mm. like he's just like well, this. The, I mean, you know. Tommy is the f- not like a fan. He's of, like a fan. I mean, yeah. not he's not really a fan because obviously he's on a crusade. Yeah, but it's you know the the research is there. He's got the the board with everything pinned up. Well, I always like when the computer pulled up with the thorn screensaver. <laughs> yeah, with the cool. He's also there's also a discovery that you found while, while watching oh, it that's here. Right. This guy's wall is out of control. Yeah. His bedroom wall, there's a couple things I wrote down here. Mac actually pointed out that he's got a poster of Michael Mann's Thief hanging out. Oh, I love we're all very love excited it. about. Great Makes movie. me love him even more. A couple other things I, I noticed. He's got a magnet of Divine, the mm. John, John Waters yeah. ingenue. On his fridge, he has got a poster of uh, Vim Vendor's The American Friend. So he the likes American his cinema. Friend is based on the book Ripley's Game. Which is a oh. sequel to The Talented Mr. Ripley. Yeah. Oh, wow. Dennis, Dennis Hopper plays Ripley in that movie. Oh, wow. But something that really struck out to me, <laughs> struck out and stuck out to me, was above one of his, I think his closet, is a sticker that says, I'm the NRA and I vote. Now, if this movie was made in 2018, do you think he would still have that bumper sticker no. on, his, on his wall? No. no. <laughs> I think it's right underneath his gun, too. I this think is probably it, Charlton I mean, Heston's favorite yeah, movie. The guy's into survival, and he, I'm sure he does have weapons and things, you know, thinking Michael's going to come back, so... But yeah, yeah it, obviously it's just kind of kind of funny, kind of funny catch. Also, another Farron's draft had the DJ character as a pirate DJ, and Tommy was the pirate DJ. And guess who his girlfriend was? Lindsay Wallace. Lindsay Wallace. Oh wow! Wow. wow. I'd love to read that draft too, Daniel. If you're if you're out there, let's get all these drafts. I want to cover all these drafts. I, I I do think it's kind of fun that they do this sort of like. De Palma esque like blowout thing where he's like re listening again and again to the recordings. And I do love that. I love that he plays this young detective. Like, you know, usually it's so pandering when, you know, we talked about how like this movie is very adult. You know, we get Loomis, who's like, I mean, he's like 80 years, you know, years he's old. He's about to die. Yeah. And, and, but then you also, you know, sometimes they always have like, it's like what I hate about the new X Files. They try to like recast Mulder and Scully as this younger thing. You could make the argument that. Tommy is this new, like Doctor Loomis, which is true. But they sell it so well because he's so reverent to Doctor Loomis. Like he and and Tommy admits that he doesn't 
he doesn't always have all the answers. Like he's still looking towards Loomis, even though Tommy pretty much does have all the answers like throughout this whole movie, you know, like he, but there's that, that, that sort of reverence there that, I don't know, they pull that off. I think that's the the biggest thing that the biggest success of this film, I feel, is Paul Rudd for me. Um, yeah. Or, as, or as Tommy Doyle. And what, what like, was mentioning about like his eccentric performance, his weird accent and everything. These are all hallmarks of someone who is uh, a shut in or yeah. maybe homeschooled or like just someone who is who is due to some facet, perhaps Asperger's or something has retreated from society to a degree. And clearly yeah. he's he's experienced trauma and so on. But he's he's high. He's highly functioning. But he's also like. He has his own ways, yeah. and Rudd really does an amazing job of like of playing someone with quirks who's enough. That, like he makes he'll make any character the view and the viewer raise their eyebrows of like I don't know if I can trust this guy, mm-hmm. but then he'll prove to you immediately that like I might be a little dangerous, but I am on the level. Yeah, that's a great description, Cap. And yeah. I think what Rudd probably did was Price went to a bunch of conventions and listened to the Q and A's. Um, uh, one other thing I think that's very important to bring up about the casting of Paul Rudd mm. is that I think they cast him as um, a future pillar of the of the franchise. Uh, correct, because if they had stuck with the producer's cut ending, which has Loomis discovering the thorn symbol on his wrist, I just caught myself saying these things out loud. So <laughs> I know. Anyway, if Dr. Loomis, the, the ending, power of the rune stones the, the stopped him. Oh, that, we'll talk, oh, God. Well, the intention was for the part seven film that Ferenc would have been involved with, according to Mustafa Akkad, is that, yeah, Tommy would have taken on the Loomis role, and Loomis would have become something of an adversary who's, on, who's in Michael's corner. Which would have been cool. Which would have been interesting. Uh, who knows how they would have executed that, too. Yeah, I don't God know. I, I don't think well, that yeah, would have right, been Kathy, good at the end of the day. would have happened. Tommy yeah. would have been the new major, major protagonist. Yeah. Well, speaking of Dr. Sam Loomis, Donald Pleasant's last role. Last movie. Last performance and everything. Um, did not get to see it made. He said that he would have done 20 27 films. Or something yeah, like that? something like yeah. that. He, he loved coming back and doing these movies. You think about it. This is somebody who really... His career was set before Halloween. Like his legacy was intact. He would always be known as this really famous stage actor and genre actor at that point. So really from Halloween on, everything was a bonus, in my opinion, at least. So I think he was just having fun at the end of his life, just coming in, doing this iconic role and everybody loved him in it. Was he, and I, and I'm not sure, but was, was he doing other films in between these movies? Was he still actually acting a lot? He was in a lot of Carpenter films, obviously. He was in Prince of Darkness. He was in Escape from New York. He was in Dario Argento's Phenomena. Well, I mean, Major I, role in that. I mean, uh, leading up to, to this movie. Oh. Like, was, was, did they pull him out of like semi-retirement to do this? And then he, he was, just in, was like, I'll do it because I love these movies? He was in failing health big time. They had to rewrite certain things. I think they gave certain things to Tommy that he otherwise would have delivered in the film. But... Yeah, I mean, he, even watching it now, you can definitely tell he was winding down. They had yeah. to give him a lot more breaks in between scenes, but they said that he was a total pro. And you know, I, I think the last scene when he's talking to Deborah Strode is like the last gasp of of Doctor Loomis in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. in terms of that histrionic delivery of yeah. "We don't know who Michael yeah. Myers is." Giving yeah. this speech, yeah, yeah. he yeah. has one in like every single movie. I, I still, the thing that's so great about this film is how they introduce the characters specifically that just over the the radio using barry sims Mm. you know ridiculous character but the way they use him in the beginning to tie everything together and kick off this story is exceptional uh and gives it a lot of 
sort of energy and tension and um, sort of gravitas. But when you see Loomis for the first time and he's behind the typewriter and then he turns around, he's like, oh, no, but very much retired. Yeah. It's just it's really like it's that it's the reason why sequels are made. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of see these characters again and just like it's like that, that catch that up scene. feeling. Yeah. And I love those th- those feelings. And then and then also like the way that they pan over to Tommy Doyle. It's just like there's so much like self-awareness of like these are important moments these are important characters and you're back with them legacy is such an important component of of good sequential fiction mm -hmm, mm -hmm. like i mean even one of the things that dc did uh, dc comics did that was like the most upsetting of anything was was creating the new 52 when they did a hard reset of their entire continuity and destroyed any sense of legacy that their characters had which is one of the things they're actively reclaiming right now and that's because like prior to that they had leaned so heavily into legacy it was but um, you know, to what their publishers believe was that was a detriment. But here we have when I mean, you can have um, characters passing the torches and not doing it in a, in a really pandering way, but being able to to grow with them. Like you know, every one assured assured thing about human existence is you will grow old, yeah. and it's so assuring to see characters who you know and love in in the fiction that you love growing with you. Yeah. And going yeah. on their own yeah. stories. And there's there's a there's a kind of, of gratification that humans experience in that circumstance. Yeah. There's something I, to be said about spending time with like a seventeen years with a character, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to just again, this kind of goes back to how it's easier for me to accept the early death of Jamie because it's not Daniel Harris yeah. also. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's somebody brand new who we've only been with for a couple minutes. And that this is also I and no we don't really talk about this, but aside from Michael, Loomis is such is the connected tissue between all these films yes. and making them. I mean, I know you get Jamie and stuff, but Loomis has been there from the beginning. Mm-hmm. So to have him in in one, two, four, five, and six, it really it's it is kind of baffling the like how we just now ignore the, a lot of these films and that. Well, and again, like I understand what they're doing with this new film, but like th- those feel more to me like Halloween than. You know, H2O. Oh, totally. Or like Jamie Lee Curtis driven Halloween, or like Resurrection. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you yeah. know, you look at the history, you know, Jamie Lee's only been in, well, she's been in uh, half and half. And like, I don't think yeah. that, I, I think Resurrection's not good. I don't, I don't really like H2O, but she either. was in the first two. Yeah. You well, know, I, I don't know. know. I, this is, this can be a deal breaker for me, this next one. It depends <laughs> yeah. on how you look at it because she's either been half and half or one timeline she's been in a quarter and then the other timeline she's been <laughs> yeah. in another quarter. So it depends on how you look at the series. Yeah. I, I, that's actually a really good point about the Deborah scene though. And I kind of want to go back to it and watch it again mm, with that yeah. in mind because he doesn't really have any other major scenarios per se. Cause there's a lot of, it's just him reaction. It's like reaction yeah. shots. You know, he's reacting to win revelation. He's reacting to, <laughs> when they're standing outside, I actually really like that shot when they're when they're both like waking up from like you know being drugged or hit, and they're kind of figuring out where to go, and he's just like, well, it's his game, and you know I know where he wants to play it, and then he you all after that you really just see is like him trying to stand up, and he just gets pushed down again, yeah, and then he just has that one last shot with, you know, or he frees them, he shoots the depending on what sequence or just depending on what cut you watch. Ooh. He frees Kara and Tommy in the theatrical cut, and in the producer's cut, he obviously clearly has a very substantial role at yeah. the very end. You just hear him screaming off camera. Yeah, but you don't. Yeah, you the really theatrical don't. cut, and in the producer's cut, he discovers he's got the mark of of thorn on his wrist, and 
you know, a, a weird tattoo transference that do. makes yeah, it, no it appears sense. in his wrist. You're right. It appears. I do wonder if, you know, if they were able to continue this and he hadn't died, do you think we would have gotten that ending where they gave, they made him become the man in black still, if they would have reshot it and done, you know, gotten a little bit more out of his performance. I wouldn't have been surprised if that stuck in there and they just decided either to add something on top of the runes, stopping Michael or eliminating that completely. But I wouldn't have been surprised if they still ended it with Loomis finding out that he had mm-hmm. that's the symbol. I feel like at that point they had doubled yeah. down, tripled down on the whole Thorn Cult thing. It's so weird that they like, of all the, the endings that they wrote, like that's the one that they filmed and had the best footage of, the best footage to even cobble together something featuring him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also a weird cut because, okay, so like at the end with him, his fate is that if we're going to go by the theatrical cut, which I guess is the canon one, um, well, who knows what the fuck is canon anymore in this franchise? But if, I mean, really, if you think about it, we don't, we have no idea what's canon anymore at this, well, in this Mike, thing. there is no well, canon. Wait, let's get, back, wait, wait, canon. Let's oh, get back to what, what are you saying? So, with but with this, it's like, uh, with, with Loomis, if you get to the ending, so... What happens to Loomis? What do we think happens to Loomis at this point? So in the theatrical one, he goes back inside and he's killed by Myers? I think he's killed I, by Myers. I guess Myers. it's just implied that he, yeah, he's killed by Myers. And then, but it's weird because then you see Myers' mask on the ground and he's gone. So they didn't even sure need to do that shot. They could have easily yeah, I done. I think they were clearly just trying to let us know that Michael's still out there. I also think that it, it's very clear to me that he's supposed to have been killed. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be because killed. Because you also too. knew that he was going to die. He died in real life. So they had to explain why he's not going to show up again. And mm-hmm. so that's why they did that. I don't like it, and I don't think that they knew what they were doing. I, and I don't like the, the, the rune thing either no. because I would not have liked that. It doesn't make any sense. Cause what, are, are we supposed to be feel sad for when then if it wasn't actually his choice? No. That he, he was like now – like is he now just this evil overseer? Like like what what does the tattoo do into anything? Like yeah. he's still Loomis. So unless we're saying that he's like possessed by this like entity that is now going to watch over Myers, like it doesn't make sense to me. Like that that means that Wynn wasn't in control of his actions originally either. So, so I don't know. It's just weird. So technically, if we really want to be right to the Loomis storyline, we have to assume that he's either he either died by Myers' hand. At the theatrical cut of this of, of of sex, he becomes the man in black at the end of the producer's cut of sex, or he dies at the end of Halloween two, or with the, the or he lives after Halloween two and then dies in retirement when because that's what they say in H two O like he he had only he still had another study or and this new canon though is that he just he sees a Michaels disappear from the throat from the the Wallace house at the end of Halloween and then catches him and then they catch him around the corner I guess. So I'm sure, we'll, I'm sure we'll find out what happened to him in this new version. Too. We will, yeah. Like five different outcomes for it's pretty exciting. Which five is outcomes for Doctor Loomis, what, but it's uh, kind of crazy. Like, what what is the best scenario for Doctor Loomis at this point in terms of what's what's more for me? Yeah, I think the most triumphant one is blowing up Michael Myers in yeah, Halloween too. I agree. Um, and also, uh, there is another version of what could have happened to him, which is the one that you and I thought was the case in the producer's cut, muddy though it was. Is like we're like, so what happened there at the end? Did he? See that he had the thorn and die of fright? That's oh, I was yeah, that's another one too, is that he could have just had a heart attack at that. Like that's actually what we believed genuinely for years. Yeah. Oh, I just thought he was just upset that he was Yeah. He had the mark now. Yeah. He don't seem to fall down or anything, right? Not no, like but he, he he has like the I used to think that was he was so strained about it 
that I thought it was like, <gasps> oh God, you know, at the time he probably was pushing it a lot. Yeah. I mean, actually, yeah, that's actually a good point too. Wait, yeah, what, did, what did Don Pleasant die? Was it like, uh, just, it was just being old and old drinking age. a lot. It was yeah. old age. It actually, anything. he went back to his home in London and, uh, Sean Connery was waiting for him. And, um, oh, that's a, you li- you only live twice reference from Michael Rothman. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I'm sure we're talking about Loomis Sweet Peppermint through other things. One other thing I wanted to point out, though, is that in the producer's cut, he is the one that does the opening narration. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not Paul Rudd. What do you prefer? I, got, I like Loomis. I like, I like Loomis. Just yeah. for Loomis, because it's Loomis. It's Loomis. Nothing against Rudd's narration. He's fine. He's a good actor. but Plus, you get that score. Get Loomis. Yeah, and you get that great Nosferatu score. Well, I want to talk about my boy, Danny Strode, <laughs> played by... Devin Gardner, something I want to talk about real quick is that his introduction was actually changed the day of shooting. We were supposed to get a sequence that mirrored the original Halloween, in which we, it's a POV shot of him going upstairs and killing his mother, Kara, and then waking up from the nightmare. Oh. And she's like, what's wrong? And but, So in the theatrical version, what we get is him seeing the man in black in the corner saying, kill for me. Kill for right? me. Mommy! And then she wakes up. Or then he wakes up. On the day of the shoot, Farron said that because of budgetary reasons that they were cutting. <sighs> I kind of wish they had that opening. Yeah, I like Those that. intersections are so fucking terrible in both versions. Actually, they're worse than the producer's cut because they, they happen more op- like, yeah. like the Jamie the di- flashback sucks. And then also there's the uh, at the, the morning breakfast table, there's one that happens in the middle of the dad slapping Kara. And it, it delays yeah. the whole scene so that so that then uh, um, Eddie Vedder Jr. Um, <laughs> comes. It's like his, he delivers the, the now classic line, "Get away from her!" Yeah, just... and, but it happens with this like he gets the she gets slapped, weird like go for me, and then like and then the dude's like, "Hey, <laughs> get away!" It's it's very weird that that they would have that. I, the opening would have been really cool, and it would have been if it, if we looked at this as like almost like an ending, mm. it would well, be so a cool cool. bookend. And the fact that, obviously, this one's just a nightmare, whereas the original actually happened, too. Yeah. A little fun little twist on that. Yeah. Uh, the character name is a nod to Danny from The Shining. Oh, a 237 reference. As well. And uh, and Danny Farron's, too. <laughs> <laughs> he, like, wrote himself he, in there. He's, he's right. He's like, this is for me. <laughs> uh, uh, do we like Danny? Eh. He's, just, he's part of the complicated Thorn plot, too, though, ultimately. He's, just a, he's a plot device. I mean, he's yeah. either going to be oh. there for Kara to save... Is he also going to be the one that carries on this well, this curse? The kid's a fine actor, I guess. But he's, he's such an affected kid. It's not even like I wish he. I wish this kid was more like Tommy, just like like a normal kid, and not just like this. I don't think I remember him saying more than like one line in this movie. Like I just remember him yeah. standing around a lot. Like I wish he was just like a normal kid uh, that we were really connected to, and and. That had these bad dreams. There's a, I, another fun nod that he has. He gets though is um, when he runs into Tommy and the yeah. pumpkin falls. That's a yeah, great that, scene. That's fun. That's and, fun. And that's because that's the first time we're seeing all these kind of throwbacks to the original Halloween. Mm-hmm. And but hey, guess what? We're going to see him again in October. Yeah, we I will. Think the, um, I think the issue with Danny Shirt also is just that like the thorn, the the whole thorn ritual and mythology is already so complicated, and like. It, I think I think just having the baby that you're trying to kill so you can control Michael Myers is enough. And then you add in this wrinkle of like, 
oh yeah, but we're also passing on to this other kid, but they don't even explain that in the theatrical cut. So he does feel kind of unnecessary to me as a character. I have nothing against the kid's performance. I think it's just like, it's just like a too too much uh, uh, like jargon on top of everything else. Yeah, because you kind of splinter the thorn thing because you're like, all right, so we're trying to transfer it to Steven, but then he's hearing voices. Is it just because he's in the Myers house? Exactly. That they're focusing well, think, on him? Oh, yeah, and that's weird though. Like, like I think the idea is that they'll kill, like they have Michael kill Steven and that's, that will be him wiping out his family. Michael will die because he's killed Steven and then they'll pass it on to Danny because they, there needs to be a new family of Thorn. And the way they'll pass it on to him is that he'll kill Kara. <laughs> and, I mean, I mean, it but also why easy. kill Michael? You already have him figured out. He's getting he's old. Not, he can't die. Well, he can't You're die. You're getting anymore. old, Michael. He's only he's 37 getting... years old in this movie. <laughs> Which is so ridiculous. Like, I just don't get like, it's so overcomplicated. Like, why do they have to have... I mean, Steven didn't even have to be in this movie, if you really think about it. It could have just been that Jamie escapes and they're used, the, the, the cult was using Jamie as bait for Myers or something like that. And then... Or, or, you know, or they just have, you know, Paul, Paul Rudd. They have Paul Rudd in the movie now. <laughs> I, they, have, they have Tommy finding the baby and then somehow the Strode mother yeah. comes in and instead of having... Of son feels like she's got to take care of this baby with Tommy, like you yeah. know, and then it's just the three of them. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, you know, there's the a lot of what is, but they obviously didn't. Whatever. Yeah, the kids, yeah, kids, the kids in the movie. Whatever. Why is he in the movie? We'll never. Know. Well, Danny was supposed to have a bigger role at one of the many endings that they wrote. So in in this thing, it was, it was supposed to be this list that I have uh, of all the different endings. They say in another version, Loomis discovered that Carol is going was dead in the bus station where Jamie had been hiding the baby earlier in the film. Only to find little Danny, bloody and catatonic, holding a knife and the baby. So it's gonna be kind of like the same thing with the ending of Halloween Four. So I'm not yeah, that'd yeah, be that's stupid as shit. But so who's uh, who's up? Just well, now? up next is one of our favorite villains from Dharma and Greg. No, from <laughs> uh, he isn't Dharma and Greg, but from Lethal Weapon, Mitchell Ryan as Doctor Terrence Wynn, making a triumphant comeback from his 90 <laughs> second sequence in the original <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> I always loved bringing Wynn back. I just thought it was an it was a, a car- forgotten character that they were bringing in to serve a, a more interesting purpose. I mean, because if he wasn't Thorn, who the hell was Thorn going to be? Like, like just some rando guy. Like, yeah. I, I don't Tommy know. I just don't. Uh, yeah, that Tommy or, or Lindsay or Lindsay would be interesting Wynn, too. Wynn is not the same actor from the original. No, right? no, 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 that's no. Robert Ryan. Phelan who was. Also, if someone's both, watching me, uh, yeah. they're both uh, they're both still alive. So I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't have mind just like seeing the original dude. I, when when I was younger and I saw it, it was confusing to me who Doctor Wynn was, just because he didn't have a mustache anymore and he didn't yeah. look like that you know, guy. I, know, I think of, that was an example, though. If you you don't necessarily have had to be a diehard fan of Halloween to just understand this is just a doctor that worked yeah, in the yeah. Loomis. I think that was much more of a well. If you like Halloween, then you'll appreciate this nod. If you don't, yes, you yes. can still follow along. Farron's actually wanted and wrote the the part for Christopher Lee. Yeah. So it would have been a great standoff between these two horror icons, Don Pleasance and Christopher Lee. But the studio wanted to have Mitchell Ryan because he was such a big villain in Lethal Weapon, like, you know, again, yeah. eight years earlier. Yeah, right. But still. Honestly, I think he's the right choice. I think I yeah. think it would be cool to, you know, have Lee and Pleasance in the same, you know, scenes doing this stuff. But but this this guy he seems friendly he seems genuine he seems like yes. the, like the, he's mm-hmm. exactly the right person to me like when when you realize it's him if you're not like actively trying to be like who is the man in black you don't you're not even really like it's kind of surprising you're it like is. oh 
And he's a good actor. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. fucked. Yeah. Well, well so is it is it implied that when the whole oh may, uh, for God's sake, Sam, he doesn't uh, know how to drive a car, and he says, oh, maybe someone around here gave him lessons. Is it implied that Doctor Wint did originally give him lessons? Oh, like that now. You could think that. Yeah. Ferens the idea actually. Oh my God. So, yeah. It's, it's, I would it's love like it. a joke. So it's like you know what? Yeah. What if that did? What if that was the case? What if somebody did give him lessons, and that's I, I would, why he did I, win. Uh, I would love to see a deleted scene from the first Halloween of like the mustache one. Like, all right, Michael, like, now, now make sure you uh, you uh, balance the clutch and the shit and the stick and like him like running into cones and you, just getting, you know, getting the, frustrated. The, the deleted scene would be after Loomis drives away frustrated. It's like a one shot for like two minutes of when walking back into the hotel and saying, we have to destroy his driver license record. <laughs> Immediately. Um, yeah, but I'm with Cap uh, on this. I think that this was a better choice because, you know, as we all know, when Christopher Lee is casting something these these days, you know, he's always he was always like a villain. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think it's 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 you would have seen it coming a mile away. Well, Whereas this one, Howling Two, your sister is a werewolf. He's a good oh guy. god, yeah, all right. Well, yeah, that, that's that's. There's no problems with that movie though. I, I do like the idea that if they made a second Halloween TV cut when the Curse of Michael Myers came out. And they did film that scene, and just like the TV cut from like the the early '80s, they add, you know, they add, they reshoot and add more scenes. And they're like, "All right, Car- uh, John, you know, you got to come back for just one scene, one se- one sequence." And Mitchell Ryan just dons a black mustache, and, and they, they they just <laughs> oh, have that's like, like the George a Lucas. random that's extra. Like the George Lucas. Like, so it's like the special like- edition. They 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 bring him in, and they have him. Uh, <laughs> they dub the voice. They put like gross brown paint in his hair to make it like Auburn. Yeah. You know, oh, God. <laughs> And, it's right. like, and, it, and it goes from, like, Robert Phelan to him w- within, like, like 90 seconds or something like that. Oh, my God. So, real quick, the win has two outcomes. And, and the first outcome, the theatrical version, I guess he gets killed in the, oh, he's killed. Yeah, they in don't the show surgical it, room. Yeah, slaughter. he's killed. Okay. In the producer's cut, he has switched wardrobe with Michael and is now Which pretending is... to be the shape uh, trapped behind the runes. And then he, you know, passes on the curse to, doc- to uh, Dr. Loomis. And says it's your game now, and here we go. Which ending do we prefer? <laughs> well, well, Michael really wanted those spurs, and that's why he yeah. insisted on getting out of his overalls, putting Wait, them it- on Win, and then putting a mask on him. And then I wonder if, if in this scenario, did Michael put the man in black costume on first before he proceeded to put on his overalls and the mask on Doctor Win? We see, we see him in the man in black outfit in the producer's oh yeah at the cut? ending of at the ending yeah. of the producer's cut he's wearing when you say the uh when you say the spurs thing though it's kind of confusing all right so you so see oh no he's he, not he doesn't wear the spurs thing he, when, he just wears his his regular but that's what's confusing though because when you see uh when laying there dressed as michael myers he has michael's boots on oh my and god then they, <laughs> and then they show then they show they actually show michael in the man in black outfit and as to confirm that it's michael not the man in black they zoom they you pan down oh my gosh that's hilarious <laughs> You know, he, he had Michael has the entire garb on, but he still has his own regular shoes, and that's supposed to be the reveal. Like, no, it's actually Michael because he has work boots and not cowboy boots. But like logistically, it doesn't make sense because Wynn is wearing the boots, and also it's just like a funny reveal. Like that's what like clues us in. It, that you it's, know what, Dan, 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 Dan. It sounds to me like this was a troubled production. <laughs> okay, well let's move on to. I can't wait to talk about him. The great Keith Bogars, Tim Strode. Uh Cap, I think you were the first, or maybe maybe it was Dan that mentioned the line, and then maybe Cap mentioned it after that. But this line that he gives in this movie, I can't think of another movie that has such a dated reference. The the butthead line. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's cool. It's cool. That is so time stamped. It's unbelievable. Like there are more dated references. That's more of a dated reference to something from like The Naked Gun Two. 
<laughs> two and a half. <laughs> Gosh. I mean, it's crazy. I don't know. Yeah. It, it takes. I mean, it was ninety five. Performance is that is that is that scene right there? I don't. I, I hate that line, but I like that character. And in most of the movie, I actually do kind of like him. It, well, except for that when he sticks up for her at the dinner, at the breakfast table. But get away from get away from her. <laughs> I, we, I know we had this big long conversation when we were watching th- this time where he's like, "Is that true? I live that I live in the Myers house," and we we're like, "Yeah." You've been living here for how long, and no one's told you this. And this has been, I mean, they keep putting Myers stuff on your house, and I think they just moved there, like, though, right? Yeah, there's still boxes everywhere. They just moved right, in. and so so that okay, so that makes sense. That's fine. But then this guy moves fast. He's already got a girlfriend in this hey, town. You know what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It was the '90s. Yeah. Well, um, good death scene. Michael emerging from the shadows. Uh, he gets out of the shower. Hey, where are you when yes, I need true. you, babe? That's true. Yeah, he gives him the towel. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually kind of cool. I yeah. like that. That's How long do you think Michael was standing outside the shower holding the towel? Probably a while. Was he planning out like, well, maybe what if he doesn't ask for a towel? Well, maybe <laughs> just, just, just break the glass? the curtain and just, oh, I'll kill you. He, uh, there's a lot of patience with Michael in this one, especially since there's a lot to do. You know, it seems like there's a, you know, it's, it's going to be a very long night. You got to get back to Smith's Grove. You got to solve the whole baby crisis. And he's waiting around outside the shower for Tim to get done. It's just well, we didn't mention this, but there's a lot of time issues with Michael. I think there's a part where Danny looks out the window and sees him standing across the street, and then ten seconds later he's killing Barry Sims. Yeah, and then ten seconds yeah. later he's back killing. Same thing killing with uh, man, same thing with the Man in Black too. You just they're kind of able to go everywhere, you know. But I mean, I know that stuff never bothers me too much. Well, just 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 the spurs on boots. Uh, it should be it should be noted that uh, Smith's Grove is over a hundred miles away from Haddonfield. Let's not forget that. Well, people and, stay unconscious for a long time these days. Yeah. Pump up some, some of the, that green liquid that they were giving Michael at the very end. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Logan. He's like young Michael again all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Have we ever well, seen Keith Bogart again? Is there anything left to say about Keith Bogart? Uh, well, know, he, but... the last role he was in was uh, Pinot Grigio as Sam. Well, my and that was 1999. Uh, okay, Keith. Oh, wait. I do, I do have one more thing uh, to say about Keith. Just, just one more thing. I think he's cool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, am I talking to Butthead? <laughs> is this Butthead on the phone? What's, you know, it's really Judge. This is a really deep reference, though. But apparently, when Tim says that, uh, you know, he's making the stomach pounder, the quote unquote, that's apparently a reference to the fog. Yes, that's what Daniel Farron said too. That that is a direct reference to the fog. Weird reference. This the is stomach pounder. And this is. I don't want this to be a uh, insult, but this is. Like a fan fiction script. Yeah. In a lot of ways. Yeah. No, it is. Okay. Let's talk about another member of the Strode fam. Oh, yeah. This guy. The man of the house. Given 102%. He's also, of course, the same actor who played one of the security guards in Higher Learning who tries to stop Michael Rappaport from killing himself when he tells him he can still be an engineer. Ladies and gentlemen, Bradford English is John Strode. Uh, We've been talking about him throughout. I love to hate him. What a jerk. He is a jerk. He, he plays it so well, though. He I does. It. It's great. Paid, he paves the way for Forsyth. Yeah. Oh, he does, actually. He does yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't eat with his mouth open. Another, another awful father breakfast scenario. <laughs> Bastard. Big, his death scene um, is so ridiculous in a theatrical version. He gets electrocuted. He starts foaming at the mouth, and his head explodes. <laughs> his head explodes. I kind of love it. It's uh, so but the producer's cut, he's simply electrocuted. And we still get that great effect of the exterior of the house with the light flashing out yeah. of the basement. Yeah. 
I like, I like it, the little... It uh, is a very Halloween 2 death. It's like a little bit much. It's a little bit more, and you, especially with the foaming and stuff. But the head explosion is kind of the where, head explosion. Where I, I checked out. On it's that a punchline. Like it was one of the. It was the first moment watching it as a, as a child that like we're like this ain't it. This ain't <laughs> yeah. This, yeah. yeah this, you guys <laughs> you like take your hand on, finger off the pulse of the arm with the the mark of thorn on it. I, I like I, I like when he comes home though, um, <laughs> and he's just like oh, she really left me. Yeah. And it, it, there's there like you were saying before, there's something adult about that that reaction, that revelation. That you know, he could have just came home and was like, "Where's my fucking dinner?" You know, and stuff like that. But no, it's like this is a really genuinely midwestern and and, and he came home it. drunk. Yeah, and he comes home drunk. Like you know? he he's he's sad. He's angry. Yeah. Like he's very he's. He's awful, but he's very real. Yes, exactly. He, yeah. I, I feel like I had friends' dads who reminded me of him. Like the, the dad, the, the friends who are kind of like nervous to go over to their house because, yeah, like, yeah. you, you oh, know, God. their dad like yell at them or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's John Strode, and he and he plays a really convincing drunk too. He like doesn't overdo it, which I always appreciate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love when he's just when he's talking the the how blunt he is with Kara. He's like, well, "Who the hell asked you to come back?" And mm. it's just well, it, he, uh, he he makes no. There's there's no question that he is like the head of this household and mm-hmm. and he can do whatever he wants and say yeah. whatever he wants. Yeah. So there's no repercussions. Yeah, I mean he the first he plays it really well. It's it's he reminds yeah. me of that. Um, I think it's that Chevy Chase Jonathan Taylor Thomas movie. Oh, oh, man of the house, man of the house. house. I, uh, yeah. Dan, no laughing from you for that joke. Uh, oh man, no, I, 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 I usually put on mute when I'm not talking, but I was laughing because I, I was. No, what I was thinking. This is the dumbest. Like, I don't know why this is why I think of for that movie because I saw it in theaters at the Dollar Theater, NBC Six in Newport Ritchie, Florida. And I remember there's a line where he's like, "Oh, don't you have any pets?" He's like, "Oh, I have a squirrel named Num Nuts." And I remember on the, I remember on the t- the TV version, the Disney version, <laughs> they like changed it to, "I have a goat named Butthead." <laughs> like, <laughs> Wait, I love that they didn't name to redo it. Like, Wait, you mean yeah, no. isn't Butthead a, a reference that's also made in Halloween: The Curse of Michael Myers? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that movie's cool. <laughs> I think it, it all comes back. So John Strode's head explodes. Oh, by the way, we've reached the, the three-hour mark in which we have to talk about Chevy Chase's Man of the House. Yeah, every, every time. Uh, yeah, <laughs> now on. So who, who else are we talking um, about? <laughs> anything else to say about Johnny Strode? No, no, it's a bummer. Character actor. Is he still alive? He's been in some stuff. Yeah, he's been in some stuff. The last thing he was yeah. in was uh, Lucky You, 2007. He was Tommy the Poker Host. Isn't so. that Curtis Hansen's Lucky You? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Rest in peace, Curtis Hansen, by the way. Pain. Rest in peace. Well, we got it's one more time guy. to move on. I got a couple more, but let's move on to the DJ rockin' Barry Sims, played by Leo Getter. Kind of, kind of dig uh, this ridiculous performance and character in this film. Mm-hmm. I know that originally what, what they were trying to go for like a Howard Stern esque. They were thing. trying to actually Howard, uh, hire. I oh, think he was. I think he was actually in it. He was signed to it, but then when the production got delayed, he was doing private parts. So, but I think he was actually going to oh. be in this. Yeah. yeah. Well, that would have been really distracting. Um, so I'm <laughs> glad. Say I'm glad yes. Well, and it's like it makes more sense that they just got this this shock jock. I think he's very good at that character, and I think that's why the, all that stuff, that radio stuff in the beginning, works. And we're talking about dating the film, but I think the idea of everyone listening to this radio station on Halloween, and I, I kind of love that at the beginning, uh, and, the, and the phone calls, and I don't know. I just I really like how. Again, we were always we we're always talking about like cell phone horror and how it doesn't work. This yeah. is one of those last movies before the turn where you still it feels it's it's still very modern, but it's still very much like 
we don't have that. We just have that's pay phones and, and shit. And that's a great and point. That this radio is show is is really indicative of that. This so. is before satellite radio. This is before podcasts. Yeah, everybody's kind of tuned in to the same channels in the same small town. That's a good point, Mac. The actor Leo Getter, mm. he appeared in Penny Dreadful as the character Barry Sims. Now, this is the 2005 movie, oh. Penny Dreadful. What? But his name was Barry Sims in that movie. What? Where did you see that movie? What is it about? I don't uh, Let me look. Uh, but he's also in The Stand as Chad Norris. Really? Oh, that's who he is. I was trying to think of... Because of, I saw that he was in The Stand, and I was trying to think of, of which one he was. But he... Um, the, my, my thing with him, it's not, the, it's not the performance. I think he does a fine job. I do feel like all the stuff in Haddonfield feels a little unnecessary because, like, what do we get out of that other than him getting killed by Michael Myers in that rain sequence? Because, because the whole thing of like, oh, let's record at the Myers house, and that, it never, it never amounts to anything. I feel like it's just kind of dead weight a little bit in the movie. I, I do guess that whole it? sequence was supposed to be a lot bigger. Of course, once again, so much was cut back because of the budget woes and the production development hell. So, well, I okay, so like... he does play the same character in that movie. What? What the fuck? According to trivia on on IMDb, Leo Getter plays the same character as he played in the 1995 Halloween sequel, Halloween the Sixth, The Curse of Michael Myers. In Penny Dreadful is a 2005 film starring Emily Vaughn and Sebastian Lacaz and Betsy Palmer. Betsy Palmer played Mrs. Voorhees. Yeah, so there's a lot of horror there. Um, Jessica and David Clausen are upstate an upstart couple who come face to face with the supernatural effort inheriting a beautiful townhouse in New York City's West Village district. That's it's just weird. Like, why would they is randomly to take place before this movie? Is I don't it know. Tied in with the universe, I don't understand why it's they would do weird. that. It's weird. Well, a couple other things. Yeah. Anyways, the raining red sequence was conceived originally as Tommy stumbling into a group of kids, seemingly hitting like a hanging pinata, Ugh. and the kids don't realize it's actually a dead Barry Sims hanging from the from the tree. This is awesome. Pretty brutal. Yeah. The producers cut. We discover that. Barry accidentally got into the Smith's Grove van and not his own van. And that's revealed after he's killed. Which is kind of pointless. Yeah, dumb. Dumb bit. Yeah, and, the, and the pan is so awful, sense. too. So and is it, Michael just hanging out in the van? Like, that's dumb. Yeah, just no. Have was, him be there to deliberately kill him for no reason, I guess. I don't know. Hey, guess what? Trouble production. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of things didn't really make a lot of sense in this movie. No, no. A lot, no. Of, um, a lot of buds and bobs in this film. A couple brief things. The, the motorist played by the great Tom Proctor. He gets killed off in the very beginning. He's the one who's having oh, a yeah. beer in the pouring rain. Yeah. While somebody gets his <laughs> in his truck. Like, what's going on here? A beer in the pouring rain in an abandoned facility near a sanitarium. Near a train track. In the middle of the night. Kind where of where there is a cult being hidden through a, an entrance way that you have to go through a dumpster. That's underneath Smith's Grove Sanitarium. I think he I think, just pulled over to use the restroom, but took his beer with him. Yeah. Hey. I think he's, uh, he, for me, he's like the Bucky of this movie. He's like the boy, yeah. yeah. working class guy who just gets senselessly killed by, uh, by Michael Myers. Well, obviously, when you see his head almost get torn off, that... Shot is a reshoot. It wasn't supposed, oh, it wasn't supposed yeah. to be that violent, believe it or not. Now, yeah. somebody else who has a, a death, who, whose true death did not make his way into the producer's cut or the theatrical release, is, of course, the great character Smith's Grove Doctor, played by Fred Lerner. This is the guy in the theatrical cut who is running in the yeah. tunnel, Ugh. trying to run away from Michael. Right. And he gets crushed against the bars. Yeah. And the, ultimately, the, the gate crashes. The deleted scenes that we saw... 
his entire face gets crushed through the bars and like pieces of his face fall out on the other side. Oh, jeez. Which Brutal. is absolutely disgusting and over the top, but it looks pretty great. Yeah, in, in the DVD version of the theatrical cut, there's a gallery of about 89 stills, and among those stills are some shots of the prosthesis for the exploding head and also that particular thing, which is the first time I'd ever seen it. I haven't seen deleted scenes. Hmm. So like I saw that, I was like, Whoa, they didn't even go far enough. But yeah, apparently they were just wanted to dodge that NC seventeen rating. They were afraid of it. They didn't even attempt to get rated to, to like, you know, go do then a recut. I mean wow. they're probably under the wire too, like we gotta get this thing out. <laughs> it's been yeah. a year. Yeah. It's time to get it out there. The the, the makeup artist for this movie is John Carl Buescheler, who you horror hounds will know as the director of Friday thirteenth part seven, The New Blood, whose <laughs> movie was also Mangled yeah. by the MPAA. All of those death scenes were cut dramatically. Probably the most neutered of the Friday the 13th. More violent movie. Yeah. And yeah. if you go online, you can see the deleted scenes. Nothing happens. Would have been a lot of fun if you like that kind of thing, which I do. <laughs> well, we're out of the buds and bobs, and we haven't really talked about a lot of surprises. So let's talk about the most shocking death in the segment we like to call. And one of them was Annie. Oh, Paul. I can no longer Well, let's just go around. Dan, let's start with you. Let's go around real quick and just say what you thought the most shocking death was when you're watching this movie for the first time. <laughs> uh, it's got to be Jamie, no question. And mm. I, I, I really thought she was going to be around for a while. Um, in, and in both versions, too. And I think especially in the theatrical cut, that getting getting uh, impaled on a uh, thrasher like that's just it's so upsetting like the way he shoves her down and then pulls the lever um yeah so for me it's jamie both in execution and just the fact that she gets killed at all mm-hmm. this answer is going to date me but the most shocking death for me was donald pleasance now because i didn't have the internet uh, until 97 mm-hmm. And I, you know, you don't know these things at that time. It's not like I'm looking through public records or, you know, reading newspapers from like the Hall or reading the Hollywood Reporter or anything. But when they said in memory of Donald Pleasance, Mm. I had no idea that he had died. And that was that was the first time I had ever seen that. And so knowing that he died and his character died with that film was hands down the most shocking thing for me, Uh, because I assume that you know he would be in the next one just as he's always been in the other ones and you know that was just it was bewildering to me so this film still does feel like the movie that kills dr loomis and so for me that's that's such a huge thing you know Mm -hmm. like i mean like you were saying before he is the glue of the series so it's just like it's tragic and also in the sense that like you know for paying homage to a character that initially died in the second one that was you know ceremoniously brought back to only unceremoniously be stowed away and so we could scream off screen. That's kind of sad too. Yeah. You know, and it's really tragic. So for that's mine. It's funny real quick before I want to digress too much, but I remember learning about his death. This is our second reference to entertainment tonight, but this is in the glory days <laughs> when they John really Tash did some journalism, real high quality stuff. But I remember there was the announcement of his death on that. And they showed behind the scenes of Halloween six and oh, talking wow. about how much he loved the, the movies. I remember that vividly. Wow. And that's how I learned. Do about you- his death. Do you think they will address what happened to him in the new movie since they're writing? They'll, they'll, they'll at least like reference. I mean, I guess he theoretically sure just died of old age. Right? They'll just say died. It's, of you know, when the kids are walking together, they, I'm sure they talk about every single thing that yeah. we want to wrap well, up. Yeah. Anyway, my most shocking death 
it's I think it's Jamie, right? Alan, it's gotta be Jamie for everybody. Well, is there a more shocking death than that? If you, if you were familiar yeah, with the first five movies, I, well, I, it's Jamie for me, but like I think the most shocking death is Papa Papa Strode. Yeah, John John Strode for me. I mean, like <laughs> <laughs> literally I, shocked to death. I mean, he, he deserved everything he got, but at the same time, I mean, you just don't see that coming. <laughs> the head explosion. The head explosion yeah. filmed in like like uh, I mean. They they w- went all out when they when they filmed that it's it's got a, a good frame rate on that explosion there so yeah I mean we, Mike we joked we joked about that yeah. motherfucker's exploding head for years yeah. after yeah. seeing that for the first yeah. time it, it is hands down the most gratuitous death in all of the Halloween movies I feel Not it's it's just... cartoonish in, in to a degree that the series seldom saw to that point yeah yeah oh I agree no real no mine is Jamie it's yeah. Jamie too yeah. yeah. Real. I mean, shocking in terms of I can't believe this person's getting killed. It's, it's yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Then. Moving on to our next segment, we like to call one good scare. Louis, the boogeyman is outside. Look. One good scare is actually nothing to do with the scariest or most shocking moment. It just is our favorite moment of the film, and we talked about it earlier. I, I think the whole Deborah Strode. Yeah. sequence particularly her running in the backyard through the sheets that's my favorite uh part of this whole movie and it's also daniel farron's favorite moment as well he mentions in the in the uh, commentary well i'll make it easy i concur <laughs> there you go oh really <laughs> cap absolutely mrs blankenship easy because like you even get that shot with an out of focus michael behind her in the window oh. it's perfection i'm not kidding cap i've got that right here too that's my other option <laughs> Ms. Blankenship with the flashing michael yeah. in the background mackie's I, I think uh like just I mean, I love those both of those moments, but I think just the personal thing that I always go back to in my head and I always remember is just that that scene when Tommy sees him again for the first time. Yeah, it's a uh, that's such a good that's so the, that's one of the things that the theatrical cut gets right. Centric, out of so strange. That's but that's definitely my favorite. I just, scene. That 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 moment always stuck with me from the first viewing, and mm. uh, uh, but I do love those other sequences too. Miss Blankenship's truly freaky and, and checking in from the rolling mountains of. Tennessee, Tennessee. <laughs> and the Smoky Mountains. Smoky uh, yeah, Mountains. My, yeah. My hands down, my favorite sequence is the is Deborah Strode's death. It's the one. I mean, I feel like I always tend to like the sequence that feels the most classic, the kind of most in line with the first movie. However, mm-hmm. I would like to bring some attention to the theatrical version of Jamie's death. Not not like her actually getting impaled, but Michael stalking her in the barn. In the theatrical version, we see lightning flash, and you see like his face, and then it goes away for a little right. bit. You it's know, like Ghost Myers. <laughs> Totally, yeah, and that that's always freaked me out. But uh, but I mean, yeah, the the Deborah Strode kill, and it comes at a good point in the movie too. It's kind of like midway through, and it, it it it's I think it's when the movie is still running on all cylinders before things go completely haywire. Yeah, I mean, in terms of scariest, I, I do think the Deborah Strode for yeah. sure. But in terms of favorite, I would like I've, that scene with Tommy is great. Though I got to go back to that introduction with like the whole radio sequence with you introducing really Tommy well. yeah. and and Loomis is so like smart. that's my favorite part of the whole movie. It's smart. It's- Cap, I think you said it's structured really well too. I mean, it's mm. it's really cool yeah. for a 1995 horror movie that for a genre that was on its way out. <sighs> okay, <laughs> this next part, this is the get out now category. You, you had it. You had answers, a seg too that would, that you just said. What would it have been? You were just like, oh, that was you know trying to get out, and then you, 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 you get out now. <laughs> so we ask ourselves, 
This is actually, there's two answers for this one. Do we buy Michael's survival at the end of <laughs> the theatrical cut? And do we buy a survival at the end of the producer's cut? Mac? We definitely buy it in the theatrical cut. Mm, definitely. Uh, he, he, well, yeah. I mean, and I, I kind of, I always saw it as him kind of being free now of the Michael curse. He leaves the mask behind. And he goes on to be, uh, you know, like a real estate agent somewhere. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, personally, I, I, yeah, I buy it. I think he gets away at the end. I mean, that's kind of like, oh, Michael's still out there kind of thing. Uh, in the theatrical cut, at least. In the producer's cut? Mm-hmm. I kind of like the next movie just being like this road trip of like him as Thorn. Wait, it sounds like <laughs> as you, Thorn. You, you and Quentin Tarantino should get together. Yeah, I know. Well, it, in my version, it would be it would be Michael as it would be Michael as Thorn, and and I don't know who'd play him. I don't uh, I don't know Treat Williams or something. And then you have <laughs> and then Quentin Tarantino would be just like his buddy. <laughs> oh, QTS himself. This He's gonna be in it. Yeah. Oh, like, like in uh, Dustin Dawn. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Does he does he also continue to like eat eat people and bite them and stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah. Scary, creepy. Mike, for like, do we think if he survives? Well, at this point, yes. I think Myers is is just gonna keep going forever. Tommy bludgeons him, I guess, kind of. You don't really see exactly where he hits him. Like, they do that super cut where the things are getting like it's his eyes MTV. are being juiced. But look, Laurie shot him twice, you know, mm-hmm. in the eyes, and he, the guy still got up, walked, and Tommy or uh, Loomis blew him up. At this point, you're not gonna stop him. You know, he's Jason. He's Jason. He's this Jason. movie, he's definitely Jason. Yeah. You know, even though they don't technically, until the very end, really hurt him that much. Producer's cut. Of course. Even more. <laughs> because the like the funniest thing about the producer's cut is when, <laughs> and it's like, if we always talk about, you know, about the, the doofus look of My- Myers doing stuff. But when Myers is just standing there and wins, it's like, oh, Michael, what they do to you? <laughs> it's, it's so lame. It's like you've it's like it's like blue with the raptor, like, like the raptor blue. Uh. Like you've taken this this person or this thing that's supposed to be terrifying. And he's literally standing there in a light underneath. What do they call those lights with the the um the the, the lights like, that are overhead? Fluorescent um, lights. Like- yeah, the, the there's like the under fluorescent lighting. And he's just standing there like an idiot and like a gimp. And like, and, and he's I'm like, oh, what are you doing? And so, yeah, of course he's going to survive in the producer's cut. And, you know, he gets some cool threads. He's so frugal. I mean, he's got another pair of shoes. Yeah. That's pretty incredible. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, producer's cut, he for sure survives. We literally see him walk away. Not to the sunset, <laughs> but into the uh, dark, sweaty abyss of the uh, mm. tunnels beneath Smith's Do you buy his survival, though? Do I buy his survival? Under those circumstances? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about his survival under the circumstances. <laughs> so Tommy sprinkles out what um, what the uh, the author of the script call, called the uh, the magic acorns, a willow reference. I was mm-hmm. delighted to hear in the commentary. <laughs> um, so he sprinkles out the runes. Oh, the runes have stopped him in place. So he gets stopped in place, and then inexplicably, like, like wind shows up, something goes down, and I guess Michael is able to uh, wrestle himself away from that you know whatever powers were controlling him takes off win's clothes gets in win's clothes dresses up win and says i am my own man michael myers is stepping out it's time to live my life i'm gonna kill all the bitches i'm going to texas i'm gonna go to texas hang out with the rest of the cowboys live my life it's gonna be like that ryan gosling movie all good things which is based on actually there's that movie is that it's actually a sequel to this that they thought it was a sequel to another film but it's called black thorn 
Oh. With, uh, it was a <laughs> Black Sam Thorn. Shepard just reference <laughs> the direct-to-video sequel to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Yes, Black I one? did. Oh, wow. Dan, what do you got? <laughs> Damn, that's before, the deepest reference we're going to get. Before before I, I give my answer, Kat brings up a good point. And, and also, theoretically, if those magic acorns made Michael his own man and essentially got rid of the curse and got rid of all this blackness they put in him as a little kid... Maybe we're meant to think in the end that he's just walking away as a normal man and he's not going to kill. You know? What, do you know what I'm saying? Because like the whole, isn't the whole thing Look, with the acorn, like the whole thing of the acorns is like, oh, he says like, oh, the um, the positive energies will counteract the dark ones, and it's, so theoretically, is he like freed from his curse? Is he just like a normal person now? I, who's I think that just that just stops like, him from being able to move. forward. Legitimately, Dan, anything is possible. They provide <laughs> so much information and yet explain so little. We can reconfigure this any way we want. Follow up though, uh, the theatrical cut. Of course, he survives because you're right. They do confirm that he's yeah, Jason. Yeah. He like they essentially show that Tommy caved his head in, making all this green juice come out. Which I might add, you could interpret as being from the syringes he's been injected That's with, what I think it is. or I think it is. you yeah. could interpret it with they've been experimenting on him this whole time since they recovered him from the big hospital fire that they've been pumping him full of who knows what. They grew his eyes back. That's true too, and one yeah, I think the, true. And, and I think the babies are supposed to maybe reference that they're like trying to clone him or something. I have no idea. Um, as far as like if I, as far as like if I buy that he survives in either cut, I mean, <laughs> I guess yes because they they explain the curse and the curse makes him immortal. I mean, it's stupid, but like it's uh, you know in terms of like lining up with the mythology, like in Halloween too, and we didn't know any of that stuff. It was kind of like. Okay, how is he? How is he surviving all this stuff? But they they do give an explanation. So yeah, I guess I guess I buy both versions that that he survives. I obviously buy the producer's cut more because yeah, no, I see him. I, I think what happened was Wynn just stepped over that barrier and therefore was now susceptible to being hurt and taken over by Michael. I think it's stupid. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. That Michael again just. I can't imagine just like knocking him out and like stepping out of his overalls, and like dressing again, and then just walking out with his little cowboy hat on. It's well, does stupid. He, does he knock him out? I don't understand. Uh, yeah, but, he knocks because Wind looks startled when the mask is taken off of him. Well, that um, that propensity towards swapping clothing, I think, is a very important part to a discussion that's going to happen in the next episode. I won't be here for it, but I'll leave Mike to carry on that tour. Or it'll be oh. the episode after that, actually. Uh, right. I'm talking about H two O. Well, I guess it's I guess it would be the one after that. But yeah, the no, one after that is when we actually see it. Ha- we find out that it happens. Yeah, so it's just it's that's either way. We're getting there. Survival. That's we're getting there. That's where, um, yeah, that's where we're at now. I think again. I keep going back to my childhood, watching that ending in the theaters, thinking, "What in the fuck is going on here?" He's been pumped through. He's been pumped full of this greenish fluid. Now he's just, you know, everything's seeping out of his orifices, out of his eye sockets, and his mask. He's getting beaten repeatedly. You can't really see anything happening. It's it's awful, but because we hear Loomis scream, sure he survives. Yeah, well, that's all I need. So it's it's, it's okay. Michael Myers, like you said, Mike. It's it's Jason at this point. He's Jason. Well, we've been talking about it a lot. We might as well just double down on a segment we like to call the Mark Thorne. Michael Myers is my business. It's been quiet here for six years, and that's the way it's going to stay. And the last thing I need now is you going around spouting off ghost stories. I suppose it was a ghost that did all this. I... It was a ghost talking on the radio last night, and that's a ghost being carried out here right now. I'm feeling now. real thorny right now. Hey. Yeah. So, so here's what's up. 
in an article posted this very year in January on comicbooks.com, there's a little discussion about some other versions of this movie predating the versions that we've even been talking about. But it does offer in this, before we dive into something completely deep and dark, it offers an explanation of the sequence in the producer's cut with Loomis. Uh, an interpretation that none of us have shared today, and me oh. reading this during the recording was uh, was surprised by. Yeah, okay. uh, maybe uh, maybe this is just one person's interpretation that is also wrong. Yeah, sure, um, but let's, let's hear it. Yeah. So, um, the ancient ritual imbues baby Michael with a demonic spirit, explaining his superhuman abilities and bloodlust. By the end of the film, Doctor Loomis managed to perform a ritual to free Michael's body of the entity and allow it to enter himself, ridding the Myers bloodline of the curse. That is how this writer interprets the end of the producer's cut, which I don't even I can't even begin to make sense of. But that's making sense to me. No. Yeah, because he seems genuinely surprised that he has the Mark exactly. Thorn on him. Like he didn't do that on purpose, or or maybe maybe he thought he was doing the rune th- the rune thing, and then didn't realize it was just well, transferred to him. But but it doesn't seem like Michael's aware of anything. Okay. So why would he be aware at that point? Yeah, I don't. What's the next one? <laughs> oh, okay, so have have you heard of the Phil Rosenberg draft for Halloween Six? Not at all. No. Okay, never heard. Of I, this. I, 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 this is all news to me as well. Apparently, wait, is this the sorry? Is this the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond? That's Phil <laughs> Rosenthal. I apologize. Okay. <laughs> okay. Right. Oh my god. <laughs> all right. So, um, but this is before Farron's script. There was a Phil Rosenberg draft, which a fan bought on eBay. So here's this outline as presented on comicbooks. Dot com. The film was called Halloween 666, The Origin. Mm-hmm. That's the original title. All right. So it follows reporter Dana Childress investigating how Haddonfield, Illinois, had recovered from the murder and mayhem Michael Myers brought to the community. Through her investigations, Dana discovers that she, much like Laurie Strode, was a long-lost sister of Michael. Oh, oh my Lord. God. You're kidding me. No. Uh, Michael, since Michael was left for dead at the end of Halloween 5, he's now homeless, wandering the streets of Haddonfield safely, as no one knows what he looks like under the mask. Wait, left for dead? He gets... Abducted, right. I'm I'm having doubts about this article based on everything that's happening in (laughs) it. I don't know. I'm just reading what's written here. Yeah, let's hear it. Um, Tommy Doyle is in the the script. Okay. He possesses a VR Ouija program. Which offers him glimpses into the past, including Ugh. early Samhain Sam or Samhain festivals, depending on who you ask, and, <laughs> and how the Myers family had become cursed, uh, explaining Michael's bloodlust. And it, it made really no attempts to explain the thorn tattoo, the man in black, um, and it only featured one scene with Dr. Loomis. Next one. <laughs> Is that it? Oh, that's that's oh, it. Oh, yeah. God. Wow. Well, I'm surprised they didn't go with oh, that. Oh, <laughs> God. Well, yeah. I, well, I really want to hear are the 10 different endings you guys have. But can I go through real quick some of the other little tidbits mm-hmm. from the commentary? Yeah. That I couldn't really find a category for. If, you, if you've got the Blu-ray, if you're seeking it out, the producer's cut commentary with Daniel Ference is just excellent. Like, I keep referencing him, and there's so much more that he talks yeah. about. Jamie's escape in the beginning was supposed to be a really cool sequence through a forest. As a, wow. Which would have been really atmospheric. It's yeah. It's just... Side streets and the train yard. Well, that's the second time. Oh, well, that's the first time, I guess, it's going to be cut out because there's a forest sequence in H2O that was cut out also. Yeah. Is it that hard to find the fucking forest? <laughs> it's known as the producer's cut because the Akkads were actually on the side of Farron's and mm-hmm. Chappelle. It was Miramax and the Weinstein and, and those producers that were the real hard asses and impossible people to work with. In the end, the Weinsteins were the monsters. 
Can you believe it? <laughs> what the a surprise. is incredible. That's the, I keep the hammering this in. Part. <laughs> um, one of the bus stops that we see listed at the bus station, when we see all like the different stops, Haddonfield, uh-huh. one of them mentioned is uh, Russellville. Yep. Where oh, Charlie Wells cool. killed his, his family. That was fun. In that same sequence, there's a bus station employee whom Tommy talks to. And Daniel Ferens wanted them to hire Brian Andrews for that role. Brian Andrews was the original Tommy Doyle. Well, they actually looked for him yeah. to be in the role, but they, he didn't have um, he wasn't being repped, so they couldn't find him. So they went with Paul yeah, Rudd. This which, is before the internet. <laughs> let's be real, you know. So yeah, yeah. Go. When Wynn and Loomis go in to discover um, that Jamie's been killed in the barn, originally they were supposed to come in via helicopter and see a crop circle with the thorn symbol. Instead of the hay, I like the hay. I like the hay First also. Well, it makes more sense that yeah. it's not so complicated. As I have like another little hot helicopter sequence that's gonna in robes. that they conceived of. Ugh. Something that was filmed but was deleted was an, an another alternate opening where instead of the um, above shot of the baby getting the painting of the thorn symbol on him, yeah, it's a paint. It's a shot of the baby in an incubator. Oh being yeah, taken care of by a hospital employee. Oh, we watched that. Which is, yeah, yeah. Nice. Which honestly, I kind of wish they would have cleaned that up to use for the theatrical version, because yeah. then you would just get rid of the whole candlelit thing Agreed. in general. I mean, well, other than the fact that she has to escape through the candlelit tomb. Never mind. The producer's cut, as I mentioned earlier, is called Halloween Six. Mm-hmm. There's a six in there, and the A is the thorn symbol. If you look at the title, closely. yeah. Oh. I thought that was fun. I did too. And I'm glad that they kept the six because you have four and five and three and two. Like, I mean, it's just... The title continuities, I like that too. The only reason you're dropping the six is to get the people in the six. Yeah, exactly. The return, the revenge, the curse. It's fine. An early draft had the character of the mayor of Haddonfield who would have been a red herring. This would have been somebody (laughs) who would have just worn all white. I kept thinking about Colonel Sanders. Yeah. And you would have thought the whole movie, oh, maybe this is the man in black before the Dr. Wynn... Weird. The end. Mike, I think you mentioned it earlier, but Farron's is very complimentary of Joe Chappelle. He said yeah. that there were too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. He thinks you did the, as good a job as you could have done under the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Which um, I agree with him. I think the directing in both versions is like, I mean, it, my issue with either one is not the directing at all. You know, it's just the, yeah. the story, which, like you said, too many cooks. I agree. Uh, there's another, you might have this actually, there's another ending where we see what happens after Tommy, Kara, Danny, and Steven leave. The sanitarium. They go to the bus station, which mm-hmm. you saw in the beginning. And Tommy hears a scream from the bathroom. He goes down. He sees um, Kara's dead. Danny and Steven are missing. And then the cops show up and presume that Tommy's killed Kara. The end. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. Which is I so good. Yeah. I love that. Like... And what like that's that's a horror movie ending. Instead, we get yeah. like the end of this like plucky adventure comedy by the end of the cut of the. But, but wait, what, what what's the implication there that Myers is still alive or that Danny? I guess Danny killed her, and or that the cult is also still going strong, and the cult yeah. is still out and there. Da- and Tommy's been screwed over. And Tommy's been yeah. Although to to this point of the where the cult's focus is in, you made a good point today, Cap. Like, why didn't they just go after Tommy? <laughs> oh right, yes, yeah. This is something I brought up to Mike prior to the show. Um, you know, when offers Loomis like the opportunity to take his place and he's like, you know, you've been, you've been worth this this whole time, you know, let's, let's do this thing. But it's not a compelling argument, not to the audience and not to the character. Also, he's 85 years old. Right. So wait, so this guy's going to take on 
your your legacy, dude. You you're younger than him, yeah. man. <laughs> well, the producer's cut. When does say to Tommy, you should join us? When he he's does. Being held by a knife point. Yeah, yeah, which is fuck it. And that's a, like a weird moment of comedy that yeah. I, yeah. I love. That whole like, sequence. Like it's like I forget what he says exactly, but it's kind of like you're hey, good at this. You, you got pluck, kid. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, like Tommy Doyle, who's been. <laughs> Under the watchful eye of one of their highest agents, Miss Blankenship, this whole time, is is primed and ready to be indoctrinated into the cult of Thorn. <laughs> I, think that, I do think that Tommy hates Michael Myers. He does. I, that's I think that would keep him. But out think about cult. but think about the the seduction the seductive techniques that cults use the control. No, Tommy, this is a dark power. It's a primal power. It's it's the power of fear. It will rise up at this time of year no matter what, and we are part of a sacred and ancient order who control that because it is a valve that must be released for for, for humankind. It has to happen. Don't yeah. you see, Tommy? It's like the like, purge. I believe that they could have convinced him. I'm more convinced that they could have convinced Tim Strode. Tim Strode, oh, yeah. <laughs> Not Tommy Doyle. Stomach yeah. But, but here's the thing. We want to talk about, like, like the the – what they're trying to do with the Thorn Cult, especially what they're trying to do with Danny, because what are they trying to do with Danny, right? They want another, like, kid to to just go on killing. Well, yeah. In in a version of the script, which you can find online if you search for Halloween 6 script, I don't know, there's no data as to when this was in the production cycle. Uh, there's a lot of different things about it. I only skimmed it, but they actually have it set up so that rituals going on um, you know, in the stone slab room, they want Danny to kill the baby. They got Danny with a knife over the baby. Do it. Eliminate the mm. my, you know, like the Myers line. Do murder the child, and and then there's this whole conflict where like Loomis, like for starters, Tommy's wandering around the facility and finds a crate full of automatic rifles. Oh my god, this is so. Rid- Again, this started from. A mental patient escaping asylum to go back and kill babysitters. Remarkably, those are just used as conversational leverage. Not there's not like firefights that okay. take place, um, but there's a whole scuffle. Like there's like like there's Loomis versus Myers. Like in as this entire ceremonial room is thrown into chaos by Tommy and Loomis arriving on the scene, and it all it all it, it's actually pretty okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think I love how the, this all came from that that abandoned opening in part five, <laughs> with the, the witch doctor putting the symbol on yep. Michael and all that. Like I can't remember the name of that. Who is it? Doctor Doctor Death. Doctor Death. Death. And the fact so that, that I'm like, who 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 was it that wrote that? Why aren't they Why aren't they reaping all the benefits from from this film? <laughs> I, it's bizarre. Like, what a dumb thing to have to be felt, feel beholden to. It doesn't he not like no. coming on the movie anymore. Dominic, I have not seen Ward oh, One from yeah, Dominic Wilson so. and Gerard. Uh, hey, you know, I wouldn't either. I'd be like, oh god, get over it. Maybe he lives in a hermit shack. One of you were talking earlier about how there was a draft of the new Halloween film coming out. That does try to to connect all the other films, right? Yeah, yeah. Something very yeah, similar. Be, yeah. It was, well, it was the new, the new one. That, yeah. yeah, like I mean, I don't, I don't know how long ago of a draft it was, though. It could have been forever. You That's know? right. Well, well, Kevin Williamson's original treatment for mm-hmm. Halloween Seven also acknowledges that these other movies existed, mm-hmm. and I still don't understand why you don't just say. She was in peril. She faked her death. Yeah. Left and left and left Jamie as a, a well, foster child or an adopted child. Ro- don't, why don't you? Just Robert do that? Zappia's script for H two O, who was which I think it was like supposed to be like an update 
on the Kevin Williamson treatment because yeah. I think only I think Williamson only did a treatment, uh, only did the treatment. and and it's awful. But there there's a sequence in Robert Zappia's far superior script where he talks. He had, there's a sequence where Carrie Tate, who's uh, you know Laurie Strode, has a student that's like giving some report. And the student details the murders because it's like, it, you know, it's like Halloween. She's like, oh, this is a, you know, a, a report that I did about the Halloween murders or something like that. And explains everything that happens to Jamie. And then Carrie leaves the room and in guilt, like vomits, like in the um, the bathroom, like over like the idea that like cause she's finding out that Jamie died. And, wow. and it was like a really great scene that 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 script also has an amazing sequence Um with the the forest in there, we're gonna go onto it all of it in the in the next episode. Yeah, yeah. But it, it's but yeah, I don't know why they couldn't do it either, and it's like kind of a disservice. But look, some of the other deaths or some of the other endings yeah, well, to this movie run, run down real quick are insane. So these are all from Ferens in an interview with HalloweenMovies.com. So he goes, originally Loomis was going to be the surprise quote twist death at the end of the film after the battle of all battles between Loomis and Wynn a part I wrote for the amazing Christopher Lee which I don't think we mentioned it before but Christopher Lee was originally supposed to be that's what John Carpenter wanted for Dr. Loomis also. yes that's true so that was another homage so Wynn was dead and Michael was again missing Loomis stops and asks why not me Michael at which point the shape appears out of the darkness slits Loomis's throat with a huge slash of the knife whatever um I already talked about the Danny bloody death. Uh, and another version, and this is oh god damn it! This is the this is when we start actually getting helicopters introduced into the Halloween uh, franchise because Rob Zombie uh, carried we, on. Yeah, we, we, we Zombie carried on, and Kevin Williamson put at the end of his uh, treatment that we're going to talk about next episode. But in another version, Wynn gets into. <laughs> So insane. This is this is this is like a fucking Metal Gear Solid ending. Right, in, the, in another version, Wynn gets into a helicopter to escape the carnage at Smith's Grove. He thinks he's got the baby in his black satchel and doesn't realize it's uh, until it's too late that Tommy has taken the baby and put a bomb in its place. A bomb? Where did he get the bomb? <laughs> the Probably helicopter goes kaboom as Tommy, Carrie, and the kids make their escape. What? The fuck! It's like, like this is uh, it's like, what's, this is awful. What's the next? Okay, thing? so the next one is so finally they went with the power of the runes ending, which I jokingly refer to as Tommy's magic acorns, the version that wound up in the producer's cut. I didn't mind having Loomis take on the curse. The implication that he would now become Michael's protector rather than his destroyer was a great twist. And Donald uh, had Donald lived a little longer, the idea would have really made an interesting chapter in the series. And so that's he's just going over the actual other alternative one. Yeah. But um, I got another one. Oh, do you have another the one? The script that you can find online has another ending. Oh, Jesus. Um, which is a very much an anticlimax. Um, the Basically, with that whole security cage stuff that's happening, um, some of the, the folks get separated, and uh, Wynn has the baby and uh, escapes the helicopter. <laughs> and uh, Kara and Tommy are like, how are we going to find him? There are a ton of fucking endings for this movie, and it's clear that as we've, you know, one of the recurring bits of this episode is that uh, production was doomed, production was troubled, production hell. This is was not an easy movie to make. Well, and let's go around. I guess it's time to give our overall thoughts. Tommy? All right. As as we've talked before, I started out hating this movie, mm. like viciously hating this movie. I mean, I, I would get just almost like visibly angry about how insane and how far this was removed 
from the original film. And because I, I love the simplicity of the original film. Um, having said that, um, I've really grown to love and appreciate this movie. And for reasons that I've discussed in this episode, I mean, I think it's a very modern film and a very head of its time film, at least with regards to narrative. The, the amount of detail and the amount of reverence for the franchise that Daniel Farrens wires into the script is a very modern way of sequelizing that I don't think we've really seen until like how we, you know the MCU, Disney's MCU has really been you know, slavish with their details to past movies, whatever. And, and, and I think that's really great. And I think there's, there's something about the lived-in world of Haddonfield that we never have ever experienced. Maybe the closest is two, honestly. Like it just, this just really feels like a kind of a gripping, realistic town that is just burdened with like tragedy. And and it's also just really crisp, and it captures the the spirit of Halloween in ways that you know. I I, I think this whole trilogy does that really well, but I think Six does a really great job of it. But then you got a great performance by Paul Rudd. And I also think that this film just goes for it. You know, like it's it's like what you had mentioned before, Mac, like they could like they they really just go all in like they could have easily just fucking ran away and done something else. But the fact that they like try to make sense of literally everything is is wild. It's just wild. And I got to give it credit and I have to give it respect for that very reason. So for me, this is this is my Oh God, this might be my third favorite Halloween movie at this point. Yeah, so I'm giving it how many how many runes? Four and a half runes. No, Whoa. no, 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 not four and a half runes. Jesus, I'm giving it. I'm gonna give it. Uh, I'll give it three and a half runes. Wow. Yeah. Three and a half runes are the five runes. Yeah, <laughs> I am. I, That's I, just I, about I, keeping Michael out. You're gonna you cut your hand as well. I'm gonna cut my hand also. I'm gonna rub the blood on the runes. And then I'm going to tell Dr. Loomis later that the power of the ruins stopped him. Well, let me go over to my brother from the same mother, Mackenzie Gerber. Mac, what do you give Halloween, the curse of Michael uh, Myers? Wait, you know what? Take it back. Well, Mike, what do you give the – real quick, real quick. What do you give the theatrical cut and what do you give the producer's oh, cut? Oh, that's a good point. Real All right. Quick. I would give three and a half to – oh, that's true. It's really hard. I I, it's like an amalgamation between yeah. the two because I don't actually – Separate it so much, I almost keep them all as a whole. Okay, you can't so we'll, have we'll, just one. We'll yeah. just keep it like that. That's fine. The best, yeah. the best of yeah. whatever. So three it's hard. It's, it's just hard to split them. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say three and a half pumpkins. Wow. with some runes strewn about. I like. <laughs> I just think that I like both versions of the movie. It's really. T- it feels really tight. It goes by really quick. Mm-hmm. It's not like five. Anything coming after five is already going to be better. I feel. So it's it's it to me I think it's 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 an exciting watch when you're watching these films in a row because it is kind of such a crazy nuts adventure that you get to go on and then you also get to kind of go watch the producer's cut if you want to. I don't know it's just kind of like you you're on this ride and and now you can you have a like it, it's like a choose your own adventure at this point, yeah. you know? And I kind of like that. I kind of like that with this whole series. You can always go different routes. But sometimes um, within the movies, I think it's you know Michael Scary again. Love the mask. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I think Chappelle does execute the movie really well. I you know I don't really love the score, but I think there's enough in this that works for me. Uh, lore wise, 
even all the thorn stuff, I never minded that. I just didn't like how they wrapped up the ending. Yes. I think if they had done, if if it was a satisfying ending, I I still buy all the cult stuff. And I think after becoming a big fan of season of the witch after all these years, I love the I I love the inclusion of the cult idea. I did. Yeah. I just think yeah. it's it's not done. It's just not wrapped up correctly. So I I'm giving it three and a half. Uh, I just find it really enjoyable and. Yeah, I'm excited about the 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 next one. Ignoring it, <laughs> Danny boy. Yeah, I'm gonna stay with that three. I'm gonna give it three and a half uh, butthead heads, uh, cartoon <laughs> butthead heads. But no, I, also three and a half uh, for reasons everyone has has already laid out. Um, does it fall apart at the end? Yes, but I respect that it honors what came before it. Um, I, even its even its narrative insufficiencies don't bother me so much because. I don't think there's been a great Halloween front to back story at this point, probably since two, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not like I need the movie to be perfect from a story standpoint. All I want is that it's scary, has great characters and has atmosphere. And this movie has all those things. And and like, like we've been saying, I mean, uh, it, it's, I think it has like the clearest visual stamp, but Joe Chappelle does a great job of just making a, a sleek and competent film. Um, yeah. And it's funny because I, like Mike, I hated this thing when I was younger just because I didn't understand it, but like looking at everything holistically and you know having been a fan of these movies for decades now it's i don't know if it's my third favorite but it's definitely up there for me maybe maybe my fourth favorite or so but the, i think there's also something to be said with your with like that you know you know, i didn't understand it i don't i don't know if it's so much to understand i just think that in the long line of things you know, we talk a lot about originality and things doing like, a movie's doing something different. This movie fucking does something different. Like, you know, four it was, it was is jarring. like a remake of the first one in the most part. Five is almost like is kind of is just a regurgitation of stuff that they're already doing previously. But like this is totally different. Like this is it doesn't feel like any of the other ones. It does feel like an absolute it almost feels like a real it feels like the new nightmare of this series like it, mm-hmm. it's it's realistic and gritty in ways that the movies series has never been like and there are consequences to everything that weren't really there in the previous movies especially not four and five and i yeah. think that's i don't think i got that as a kid you know i think there's yeah, i think it, what you were saying justin it is very adult in that very way and i don't think i think there's something about the perspective of growing up and seeing it that has changed it for me also. I don't know, but sorry for just, just jumping in on that. But <laughs> Again, this is something that I really loved seeing it as a teenager and just having that experience of seeing Michael Myers on the big screen. Yeah. And then as the years went on, my, my appreciation dipped considerably for a while, but in the last maybe 10, 15 years, whenever I would see it on like late night, like on AMC or TNT, I would catch bits and pieces here and there. And yeah, it's in a strange way, in every way I shouldn't appreciate it because a lot of the things I forgive this movie for, I would absolutely knock anything that I would see like in a Marvel movie, for instance. Yeah. But again, it really goes back to the fact that I totally can appreciate the fact that the Akkads stayed true to the story that they had built. Mm-hmm. They did not get lazy and dismiss what had come before. They tried to continue on. Daniel Farron's clearly knew his shit and whether or not you like it is another, is another story you cannot dispute the fact that you had somebody who was not just a gun a hired gun i have a question for you okay yeah. is this is this peak a cod for the for the halloween films no in terms of like their role of like being of like well, like because like you know we've talked in the past about you know the cods meddling and kind of messing things is this like kind of like they're they're kind of like 
redemptive. They're the good guys in this scenario. Yeah. No, I I still think Halloween Four is their their round. Their, their, yeah. I, I still think that's I, th- I still think Halloween Four is better. Yeah. Start to finish than this movie. Having said all of that, I still think there's a lot to like here. I, we, we talked about earlier. I think the presence of the shape is really really good here until either ending really you get too much of them and it's, it's it falls apart at the end yeah. both versions do i give it uh three jack-o'-lanterns out of five i still recommend it i think it's i'm looking forward to talking about h2o i think it's underrated at this point i think it's roughly a thousand times better than part five <laughs> looking back on the series the only one i really don't like at this point is the fifth one even resurrection yeah. At this point. Well, at this point. Up to six <laughs> Oh, okay. Okay. First Michael Myers. <laughs> okay. Okay. And then things start to get a little slippy for about, what's, 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Three. Cap. Well, I don't know why on earth I would conceivably follow what you just said, um, because it's so thorough and well thought <laughs> and well put. Um, however, I'm going to say that I'm going to give it, uh, again, um, three and a half, but in this case, three and a half of Tim's famous stomach pounders. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it all goes uh, back to John Carpenter. I'm going to choke down every single one of them because it. Uh, I, I I thought this movie was, was absolute garbage, but then having seen the producer's cut, I'm like, I get it now. There's so mm-hmm. much good here. It's uh, it's always remarkable what difference an edit can make. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you're but uh, to Max's point earlier. Um, yeah, the best movie exists between the two of these things. Yeah, there's the, the the third act is awful in both, but it's actually worse than the producer's cut for all the successes that that cut has overall. And if you could just like splice the surgery scene together with something else so that that makes a little bit more sense, and then remove the um, weird abortion sci-fi facility completely. Mm-hmm. And figure out what to do. I don't know. There's something there. You could make a passable fan edit that is better than either of these, and that'd be four protein drinks. For I sure. agree. Have four. Jamie emerge. Oh yeah. After that, and have that finish with her somehow. If if they yeah. if that was filmed, yes. If in a perfect version where yeah. that where that film was made, uh, uh, absolutely yes. Oh, yeah. No, I think now the the. What I thought was that scene, not to get back into it, but the the surgery scene, I thought that they were like about to do something with like the baby, like pulling more blood or DNA or something from the it's baby. It's all fucked up. But I they have just no idea they what's just never on. they just never make it clear. No, it's just a mess. No. We digress. Ultimately, <laughs> the five of us like Halloween, the curse of Michael Myers. And I guarantee there are people out there listening who will be shocked to hear that at this point. I'm shocked to hear yeah. that. But I, I, like I it's true. And you know what else? Here's something else. I think maybe I'm touching upon what you said, Mac. It's not boring. No, it's never no, boring. No. Whatever you think about it, it moves. It goes. So. Well, and it's it's I, it is aged well to the point that I think I li- I've liked it better every single time I've watched it. Yeah. And I can't say that for Halloween Four. I can't. I even being a defender of Halloween Five, I can't say that for Halloween Five. You know, just look at I it can't. from a filmmaking standpoint. The shot selections are so timeless and crisp. In ways that don't feel of any time, really. The only things that really mar this film are the stuff that were studio hackery. Like, Mirror you Max. know, it's all the meddling of just like putting the MTV schlock in there and the re edits and the rejiggering. Because honestly, and when Kara jumps out the window, that's when the movie jumps out the window, also. <laughs> like, yep. That's literally what happened. Nailed it. Like, <laughs> the shark jumping out the window. It is, yeah. Um, and like, yeah. and then that's when the studio is like, all right, it's ours now. And then, you know, well, whatever. This has been fun. I feel like if you enjoy movies like Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Chivago, 
Heat. Heat. The Godfather. Uh, then you like a good three and a half, four hour podcast. So thanks again for joining us for Halloweenies on Michael Myers podcast. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to leave a rating and review for us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening from. And for all of your pop culture needs, you should really check in with the other fine programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Capzone, State, State of the, of the Empire. Empire, where we look for news in Alderaan places. All this year, we're doing a special dedicated coverage celebrating the 30th anniversary of George Lucas, Ron Howard, and Bob Dolman's Willow. Um, we've got some <laughs> exciting interviews coming up, some new ones that have just been uh, been coming together. Um, and, of course, our big uh, our big interview with Bob Dolman, the screenwriter, which is an incredible interview, one Great of my favorites I've ever done. Great Bob time. Dolman, of course, ran for president in the year 1996. That's right. That's a Bob <laughs> Dole joke for all you older people out there. Also, please check out the Losers Club of Stephen King podcast in which uh, Mike, Mac, myself, and old Dan over there in the Tennessee. He's, he's Tennessee right now. That's the podcast that we appear on. Hills in Tennessee. Mm, beautiful, beautiful Tennessee. <laughs> I love it. That's but uh, for our next episode, you know what? Ignore everything that we've been talking about for the past few months. Because, <laughs> because that's what they're going to do for Halloween H2O 20 years later, featuring the return of Jamie Lee Curtis as... Kara? What's her name? Not Carrie Kara. Tate. Carrie Tate. Almost Kara Strode. And you know who else is in it? Michael Myers. That's Josh Hartnett, LL Cool J. The list goes on and on. So, I guess this is uh, this is like our official farewell to all the really convoluted mythology until the new one comes out and we have to start oh, over. We'll you know have to adopt a it whole is. new convoluted mythology yeah. in the next one. Dan, but I think that- have just stepped all over my outro. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in, Mike, Dad's coming in like Harvey Weinstein coming into the editing booth of, of Halloween, The Curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> so until then, lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. You don't want to go to Smith's Grove. Bye. Consequence Podcast Network.